Living a Life of Fire, an autobiography written and read by Reinhard Bonnke. Dedication for Hermann and Mita Bonnke, true parents in life and in the Lord, and for Louis Graf, who obediently carried the gospel with the living fire of the Holy Spirit to East Prussia, and set the pattern for me to follow. Part 1. A Divine Appointment Which thread should I choose, Lord? There are so many. They hung before my eyes like strands of silk in a doorway, each promising that it will weave the finest tapestry of my life. But it is not my tapestry. It is not my life. So again I ask, which thread do I choose? Which strand will pass through the very eye of the needle? Chapter 1 I sit quietly with an explosion building inside of me. I lean forward to the edge of my seat. My hands explore the cover of my preaching Bible as my foot taps a nervous dance on the platform. Every molecule of my body anticipates what is about to happen. I think you would feel the same if you were in my shoes. It is a tropical night in northern Nigeria. We are in the heart of Africa. The air is warm and moist and full of sound. A local gospel group performs a melody of praise accompanied by a drum. A chorus of birds, frogs, and insects join them from the surrounding trees. The vast crowd standing in front of me radiates heat and expectancy. Nearly 700,000 tribesmen have walked for many miles to this side. Many of them are Muslims. Their upturned faces draw me like a moth to a flame. Two million, four hundred thousand will attend in five nights of preaching. More than one million, four hundred thousand will accept Jesus as Savior at the invitation. Follow-up teams will disciple each one. Anticipation makes my heart race. What about yours? As you begin to hear my story, I wonder, are you like me? Does the prospect of seeing the great commission of Christ fulfilled drive you day and night? If not, I pray that the story of my life will light a fire in you, a fire that will change everything, a holy fire that will convince you that nothing is impossible with God. I see that some in the crowd tonight are crippled. Some lie sick on pallets, others lean on crutches. Not all will be healed, but some of these crippled will walk. I must tell you, when they walk, I will dance with them across this platform. Wouldn't you? Some are blind, and some of those blind will see. I cannot explain why, but in Muslim areas I see more blind eyes open. I wish everyone would be with me to see it. Chronic pains leave bodies. Cancerous growths disappear. These are but a few of the signs that follow the preaching of the good news. I feel a low vibration. It is almost audible. 
Generators are purring inside their insulated containers nearby, feeding kilowatts of electricity to our thirsty sound towers and stage lights. We have imported our own power grid to this remote area. We are far beyond the reach of Marriott, Hyatt, Hilton or even Motel 6. Our team has installed a small village of trailer houses to shelter us for the duration. Cell phones are worthless. Satellites keep us connected. Few have even heard of this place, yet more than half a million are here tonight. My throat constricts at the realization of it. Hot tears seek the corners of my eyes. This is joy beyond any I have known. I smile, tilt my head up, looking into the sky of ancient constellations. I feel the creator of the universe smiling down on this corner of the world tonight. I breathe deeply. The smoke of the cooking fires paint the breeze and bring me back to earth. I'm a thousand miles from anywhere normal, and this is where I feel most at home. We have found another forgotten state where few have heard the way of salvation. I'm Reinhard Bonnke, an evangelist. Welcome to my destiny. Tonight, events will unfold like a well-rehearsed dream. I will be introduced. My eyes will sweep the crowd knowing that we all have come for the same Jesus. My heart will open to the Holy Spirit, and in my mind an image will appear. I call it the shape of the gospel. It is an outline that I will fill with an explosion of words that pour from my heart without rehearsal. I must now make a confession. This has become an addiction for me, but it is an addiction I'd gladly share with you. Leading sinners to salvation and mass, or one by one, is all the same. I eat it, I sleep it, I dream it, I speak it, I write it, I pray it, I weep it, I laugh it. It is my wish to die preaching the gospel. I am like a man starving until I can stand with a microphone in hand, looking across a sea of faces, shouting the words of his love into the darkness. It is huge now. The results are huge. I'm on my way to seeing 100 million respond to the gospel. More than 52 million have registered decisions since the year 2000. Without the decades of experience that brought my team to this harvest, we would be overwhelmed by these numbers. But we are not slowing down. We are erecting more platforms like this one in places you've never heard of. After hearing my story, I hope and pray that you will join me on each of these future platforms sharing my excitement. If you are unable to be there in person, then I hope that you will be with me in prayer, in faith, in spirit. In truth, I've done nothing alone. God has called me and has been my pilot. The Holy Spirit has been my comforter, my guide and my power source. As you will hear from these pages, he brought me to the perfect wife. He gave us our beautiful children and extended family. And he has provided a team that has grown with me through decades of working together. Beyond that, he has brought thousands to stand with us. 
They have supported us in prayer and in partnership. Our rewards in heaven will be equal. Oh, excuse me. I've got to go now. I've been introduced, and there's a microphone in my hand. I stand to my feet and leap forward, ready to preach with the fire that I feel in my bones. But just before I open my mouth, I feel a holy hush descend over me. It washes over the crowd as well, and I drop to my knees in humility and reverence, raising my face to the sky. For in the air above me, I sense an invisible crowd that dwarfs the almost 700,000 Nigerians straining to hear my next word. I'm speaking of heaven's cloud of witnesses, a numberless throng upon whose shoulders I'm carried. And from the heavenly crowd steps a man, a German evangelist, who has gone before me. I know him by reputation. He is in many ways like these Nigerians, overlooked, except by heaven. His life was sown in weakness, and some say in defeat. Yet tonight, every soul born into the kingdom will also be fruit of his ministry. The very words that I speak first poured from his heart. Now I can begin. Chapter 2 As I begin the story of God's work in my life, I'm flooded with wonderful possibilities. Too many to ignore. So I narrow my search. I think specifically of origins. Not of his calling and his many directions to me along the way. Nor of the road that led to Africa and the harvest of souls beyond my wildest dreams. No, I first look back to Ostpreußen, a time and place that is no more. As I look there, I feel a mysterious weight in a place near my heart. What is this weight? I ask. And then I know. I know that I know. It is the debt I owe to a man who died years before I was born. How easily I might forget him. He is unknown, his life and ministry uncelebrated. If I remain silent, no one will think of his name in connection to mine. But I would know, and I must not fail to tell his story. Each time I step onto a platform and look across a sea of faces eager to hear the gospel, I feel his gaze upon me from heaven's cloud of witnesses. I could not stand ablaze with the Holy Spirit today if this forgotten brother had not carried the flame to the Bonky family so long ago. I examine the weight that I feel and think it must be like the debt a great oak tree owes to the acorn from which it sprang, or the debt of a giant spruce to the seed that fluttered to the ground and died that it might one day stand tall as a watchtower above the German forest. Yes, this is the debt that I feel. It is the weight of a debt I owe to a man named Louis Graf. One day, when I was still a very young man, I studied a chart of our German family tree. It was then that I discovered the general ungodliness of our clan. 
I became amazed that my grandfather and my father stood out as men of faith in a spiritually barren landscape. I turned to my father, who was a Pentecostal preacher, and asked, How did God break into the Bonke family? My father's answer has marked my life and ministry to this day. He told me the story of Louis Graf coming to our village in 1922, 18 years before I was born. Louis was a German-born gunsmith who had immigrated to America as a young man. There he had amassed a personal fortune through hard work and self-discipline. Following retirement, he returned to his homeland in the power of the Holy Spirit after experiencing a life-changing baptism with speaking in tongues. The longer I live, the more I see the divine connections between myself and Louis, though I never met the man. So, as I prepare to repeat my father's story, will you please indulge me as I go beyond his words? I will share details that I have only recently learned about the servant of God. The story of Louis Graf is more than a personal narrative. It is part of the history of an entire movement of which I am a second-generation preacher. The movement of which I speak is the Pentecostal movement that began on the day of Pentecost, blazed anew at the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles in 1906, and then exploded across the entire world. Today it is the greatest modern force in Christendom, with more than 700 million adherents in our time. To understand the story of Louis Graf for me is to understand this great movement more perfectly and to see my place within it. For these reasons, I've done more than research. I have let myself enter a time machine. I've gone to a bygone era where I have entered the skin of another evangelist probing his feelings and thoughts during a time and place that are not my own. And I have been rewarded. I've come away believing that surely his story passes through the very eye of the needle. It is the first thread in the tapestry of God's work in my life. Chapter 3 An army of clouds marched across the sky, dressed in shades of dismal grey. It was early spring in 1922, and the grip of a long winter was not ready to release the East Prussian landscape. A fine new Mercedes touring car eased along a carriage truck through the forest. Its engine puttered like the cadence of a military drummer. Mud spluttered its silver-white finish as it passed beneath the trees. The car entered a large clearing. Across a field of deeply furrowed earth, a farmer turned to stare. He leaned on his hoe beneath a cap of thick natural wool, his collar turned against the wind. The expression on his face was grim and hostile. In this German enclave on the Baltic Sea, an automobile was a rare sight after World War I. 
Russian armies had destroyed roads, factories and cities before being driven back by the Prussian army. The Great War and its subsequent inflation had depleted not only the bank accounts of the German people, it had gutted their very souls. More than three million of Germany's best had perished in four years of fighting. The wounds of war were fresh and bleeding. The Mercedes driver beneath his jaunty aviator cap and goggles knew this fully well. He was a German-born American recently returned to his homeland after the Great War. He understood that this poor farmer had nothing in common with someone who could afford to ride the countryside in a fancy touring car. Still, the driver's heart remained tender toward the German people as he drove from one end of the war-torn land to the other. He gave a friendly wave to this farmer, hoping to at least spread some goodwill. Sadly, the man turned back to his hoeing as if he'd received an insult. The driver turned his attention back to the road. It disappeared over a ridge ahead of him at the far end of the clearing. At that vanishing point, he saw great arms of sailcloth turning against the horizon. As his car topped the ridge, he could see that the flailing arms belonged to a large windmill working to extract power from the sky. At the base of the windmill sat a flour mill. Beside the flour mill, a large stucco bakery with white smoke rising from brick oven stacks. The driver salivated. He had a kilometer to cover yet, but he could already taste the torts, strudels and house brought, taken warm from the ovens. He might even stop to stock up on salted pretzels for the road. These, he recalled from childhood, were always folded carefully in a triad representing the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. He chuckled to himself, I'm not in America anymore. I'm in the land where religion has twisted scripture into a pretzel. As he came closer, he would see a small village of a dozen or so houses. They lined both sides of the road at the far side of the bakery where the forest bordered the clearing. He figured the small village would provide a welcome stop for a cold traveler who had lost his way. He imagined a warm fire. Perhaps he could pay for a bed for the night. The day was far spent. He slowed the car and stopped near the bakery door, pulling the handle brake and cutting the engine. Immediately the aroma of fresh bread blessed his senses. He removed his driving gloves and opened the car door. Stepping out, he pulled off his goggles and leather cap. He stood for a while, brushing flecks of mud from his cheeks and chin. Globs of mire fell to the ground from the car's wooden spokes and pneumatic rubber tires. The stylized elegance of the Mercedes's fenders swept away from the main body of the vehicle like the wings of a swan in flight. But this swan had been grounded by the primitive roads of East Prussia. 
Meanwhile, a perfectly bald man with a full handlebar moustache emerged from the bakery, wiping his hands on his apron. He watched the driver, who had now removed his neck scarf and was using it to wipe mud from the door panel. As he worked at it, a hand-painted sign on the metal surface could be seen emerging from beneath the mess. It read, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? The driver turned, noticing the baker for the first time. A good day to you, sir, he said, extending his hand with an energetic smile. I'm Louis Graff, a servant of God. The baker slowly wiped his hands on his apron before taking Louis's hand. He spoke in a cautious tone. I am Gerhard, and we are all Lutherans here. Lutherans will do. Lutherans need Jesus. I was baptized Lutheran myself, but I have since met the Lord and received the second Pentecost. Have you received the second Pentecost? The man shook his head. He had no reason to know of such a thing. Well, I must tell you about that, because there is nothing more important to the times in which we live, my friend. But first, I was on my way to Königsberg, and it appears I've lost my way. Can you tell me what village I have found? This is Truns. Truns? I'm not sure I've heard of it, he chuckled good-naturedly. I'm more lost than I knew. But that's not a problem. I'm sure the Lord has led me here to preach the gospel. Hallelujah. I told you we are Lutherans, the man replied coldly. In the meantime, a young man on a bicycle had ridden up and was now inspecting the Mercedes with awe and curiosity. Louis felt a trembling excitement in his chest. He often felt this vibration when the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart. A still small voice told him that bondages would soon be broken in this place. He nodded to the baker. I can see my preaching here will have to wait until you have been made ready to hear it. These are the last days, Gerhard. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell me, is anyone sick in this village? Sick? Are you a doctor, too? No, I'm a preacher, but I represent the great physician. Let me ask you something, Gerhard. If I pray for someone who is sick and you see them healed, will you believe that I have been sent here to preach the gospel? Will you listen to me? Slowly the baker began to smile and nod. Yes, yes, I would listen. The baker knew something that Louis could not have known. Everyone in Truns knew there was someone horribly sick there. And Gerhard was smiling because this naive American was about to leave the village in utter defeat. He would never have to endure listening to his gospel sermon. In fact, there is someone sick here, he said, someone very sick. Listen, he pointed toward the village and then cupped his hands behind his ears. Louis did the same. At first he could hear nothing but the sighing of the wind driving the arms of the windmill above him. Then, 
After a few moments he heard it. Ah! He felt his hair rise at the back of his neck. The sound came from the far end of the village. It was something he might have imagined on a moonless night in the darkest wood, perhaps a sound of demonic origin. His first instinct was to leap into his car and accelerate toward another village. But he held his ground, rebuking the impulse of spiritual cowardice. The cry could be nothing, if not the voice of a man, a sick man, suffering as a man would suffer on a torturous bench. Who is that? His name is August Bonki. Gehat replied quietly, he is the Müllermeister here. He owns this mill and bakery and is the leading man in Trunz, a great man who has been struck down by a terrible disease, gout or rheumatism or some such thing. No one knows what it truly is. He has suffered for years and the doctors can do nothing. He cries out in pain night and day. Ah! The terrible cry sounded again, but this time Lewis heard it through ears of compassion. The elements of pain, desperation and rage coming from the man in the house at the far end of the village were sounds translated in his heart by the Holy Spirit. Here was a soul trapped by Satan, a soul Christ had died to set free. Here was a desperate cry to God for deliverance, the kind of cry that would not be held back by pride or stoicism or German willpower. This was the kind of cry God never refused. Lewis immediately understood that God had arranged for him to become lost on his way to Königsberg for this divine appointment in Trunz. I would like very much to pray for Herr Bonke, Lewis said. Do you think he would allow me to pray for him? The baker shrugged. He turned and called to the young man who was still enthralled with the automobile. Hermann, come here. The young man picked up his bicycle and walked it to where both men stood. Yes, Gerhard, Hermann, tell your father that the preacher is here to pray for him. Hermann looked in puzzlement from one man to the other, obviously surprised, not understanding what was going on. The baker turned again to Lewis. What kind of preacher should we say that you are? Reverend Graf? A Lutheran? A Catholic? An Evangelical? Lewis thought for a moment. Have you heard of Azusa Street, the revival in America, in Los Angeles? Gerhard and the young man shook their heads. They had never heard of it. It doesn't matter. Tell Herr Bonke that I'm a man filled with the Holy Ghost. When I pray for him, it will not be like when a priest prays for him. I will pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and his body will be healed. Tell him that. The baker turned to young Hermann and nodded that he should go and tell his father these things. 
the young man jumped on his bicycle and began to ride quickly toward the house at the far end of the village. That young man on the bicycle was Hermann Bonke, my father, just 17 years of age at the time. The sick man, August Bonke, was my grandfather. The Bonke clan lived in an isolated area of Germany called Ostpreußen or East Prussia. Our enclave had been created by international treaty at the end of World War I. It had been artificially cut off from the rest of Germany and it faced the Baltic states and the Russian Empire to the east. Along our western border, something called a Polish corridor extended from modern Poland to the port city of Danzig on the Baltic Sea. Today, Ostpreußen no longer exists. Following World War II, all Germans were ethnically cleansed from this region. In this isolated, cold, dump and forested land in the spring of 1922, however, the flaming torch of the Holy Spirit would soon be passed. Louis Graf carried that fire, the fire of Pentecost that would eventually consume my life. Chapter 4 Louis Graf entered August Bonke's household like a blazing lantern in a dismal cavern. Cobwebs of religious doubt and stagnation were swept aside as he moved toward the bed where the Müllermeister, the best man in Trunz, lay writhing in agony. He proclaimed liberty to the downtrodden, healing to the sick, and salvation to the poor, needy sinner, Lutheran or otherwise. He announced that the Holy Spirit had been sent for a demonstration of the power of God that could make all things new. Divine healings were signs and wonders to confirm the preaching of the gospel. He took the sick man by the hand and commanded that he rise and be made whole in the name of Jesus. August felt a jolt of heaven's power surge through his body. He leapt from his sickbed and stood trembling like a criminal around whom the walls of a prison had just fallen. He looked at his arms and legs as if iron chains had been struck from them. He felt his once swollen and inflamed joints and they were renewed to a supple and youthful state. His wife, Marie, who had been at his bedside for years, began to weep. He began to walk, then to run, then to leap, then to shout. He grabbed his wife and embraced her with tears running freely down his face. A moment ago he had been unable to endure the slightest touch on his skin. Now he was a man set free of pain. He was free indeed. He could embrace life again and embrace it he did. A new life of health and vigor had been given to a man condemned by an evil, tormenting disease. August Ponky would never be the same and would never, until the day he died, fail to testify of what God had done for him that day in Trunz. Chapter 5 
1922, Lewis Kraft did not see the great harvest he had hoped to see after the dramatic healing of August Bonnke. Spiritually, Germany was hard and bitter soil. Just two accepted Christ as Savior that day, August and his grateful wife, Marie. Louis led them in the sinner's prayer, and he laid hands on them, and they received the gift of the Holy Ghost with speaking in tongues. The torch of Pentecost had been passed. Two years later, Louis was invited to return for meetings at the local Pentecostal fellowship in nearby Königsberg. My grandparents traveled faithfully from Tons to these meetings, which continued for four months. Attendance outgrew the building. A city hall was hired, seating 800. Soon that was abundant in favor of a stable at the fairgrounds holding 2,000. In all, 4,000 people were saved in Königsberg meetings. This was an unusual large harvest in those days. Hermann Dittert, a lifelong friend of our family and one who attended those meetings with my grandparents, later wrote, Louis Graf was an evangelistic lawnmower. I found this quote only recently and it is fascinating to compare this lawnmower description to the one I began using as our crusades in Africa became too large for any stadium to hold. Meeting in the open air with standing room only, we began to see crowds with more than 100,000 in attendance. Within a year, we registered conversions in the millions of souls. I could feel an evangelistic paradigm shift taking place, and I said, we have entered the age of the combine harvester. I reflect now on the difference between a lawnmower and a combine harvester. It shows, I think, the difference between the era of Louis Graf and that of Reinhard Bonnke. In the 1920s, the lawnmower was becoming a common tool. Through the following decades, the combine harvester was developed for the massive agricultural operations we see today. These two symbols also reflect a difference in faith horizons. In the 1920s, the Pentecostals of Germany were so marginalized from the mainstream of religious life that they only dared to see the harvest field as a lawn to be mowed. Today, my team dares to envision an entire continent coming to Christ. A great highway is built along the route of the pioneers who first blazed the trail. The spiritual trail blazed by Louis Graf in Trunz laid down a pattern for my life and ministry a generation later. Even more, that congregation of Pentecostal believers in Königsberg provided the rich soil of fellowship that nurtured the faith of my grandparents and later my parents, Hermann and Meta Bonke. Two years after the Königsberg meetings, at the age of 65, Louis sensed in his spirit that he should retire from all speaking engagements. The duration of his evangelistic effort was quite short, merely four years. 
This remains a mystery to me, nor can I relate to it. I am celebrating 50 years in active ministry and am more passionate to preach the gospel than ever. I cannot imagine retirement. But in 1926, Louis Graf took that step and the evangelistic lawnmower fell silent. Nine years later, Adolf Hitler rose to power in the economic and political chaos that was Germany. As the world rushed towards the Holocaust of World War II, Louis was called home to eternity at the age of 74. Part 2. Out of Germany Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray, dear Lord, keep mommy and daddy, my brothers and my little sister, Felicitas, safe, and me too. Amen. Chapter 5 Peace and safety, then sudden destruction. It was 1945 in Stablak, East Prussia. World War II was drawing to a close and Hitler's armies were beginning to collapse. My comfortable childhood was shattered with a scream of artillery shells, explosions and the drone of Russian planes. I had no idea what had changed. I ran to the window and looked out. The night sky flickered and glowed with the light of burning buildings. To my four-year-old mind, they seemed no more sinister than embers in a fireplace, no more dangerous than candles in a stained glass window. Such lights swept the clouds and tracer bullets flew at the cross-winged silhouettes in the sky. My mother, Meta, gathered all six of us children around her and began to pray. I snuggled together with Martin, the oldest at eleven years of age, with Gerhard, who was nine, and the twins, Jürgen and Peter, who were six. Mother held little Felicitas on her lap. She was not yet three years old. Suddenly the door burst open. A soldier stood there. He was a foot soldier who had been sent by our father, Hermann Bonke, an officer in the German Wehrmacht. Why are you still here, Mita? he shouted. It may be too late. Hermann says you must take the children and run. Run now. Run for it. Mother sat on the stool of her beloved harmonium, her arms around us. She knew that she had waited too long. Day after day she had longed to see her husband again. She did not want to leave the secure nest they had made together in the military camp of Stablak. She simply did not want to accept that the end was so near for Germany. Hoping against hope, she had stayed in spite of the menace that grew each day. And now, this. Yes, tell Hermann we'll go now, she said, nodding to the soldier. He turned and disappeared into the night, leaving the door ajar. Dear Jesus, preserve us, Mother whispered. Weeks earlier, quietly, out of earshot of the children, Hermann Bonke had told his wife that the war was lost. World War II will go down as horribly as World War I 
for Germany. The Allies are invading from the west. Here, in the east, Stablak is surrounded. We will make a final stand, but Russia has built an overwhelming force, and they will prevail. We don't know when they will begin the attack, but it could come at any moment. He told her that he would stay with the troops. He might not be able to return home from the garrison to see her before the end. The army would make a final stand in an effort to allow refugees to flee. When all was lost, he would be ordered to pull back to surrender to the British or French in the West, rather than fall into the hands of the hated Soviets. He instructed her to sew backpacks for all of the children. We would use them to carry food and clothing. We would have to pack now and be prepared to flee at a moment's notice. It was early spring and we would have to endure temperatures below freezing, day and night. You must take the road toward Königsberg, then turn south. The road to Danzig is cut off. You will have to cross the Haff. It is the only way. The Haff was a frozen bay on the Baltic coast. Even though it was now February, desperate refugees were crossing the melting ice to reach Danzig. Mother's parents, Ernst and Nina Scheffler, had moved to Danzig soon after the war began. It was a German stronghold in Poland, on the southwestern border of East Prussia. It had an ice-free port to the Baltic Sea. Hermann knew that the German high command had begun the rescue operation codenamed Hannibal. Key military personnel and civilians were being evacuated from Danzig. The newly built German passenger ship Wilhelm Gustloff was currently in port, loading for a voyage to the German city of Kiel. This will be your best escape, he said. If you can make it to Danzig, then your father can book passage for you. Before leaving that morning, he took Meta's hand in his hand, and together they prayed for our safety. Many times, as they prayed, my father could be heard speaking in other tongues, pouring his heart out to God in this desperate hour. Then they embraced and said a tearful goodbye. Mother knew this could be the last time any of us ever saw father alive. Mother had not only sewn packs for each of us boys, but she had made them for each of the children of our neighbor. As the final Russian assault began, and after the warning by the soldier, she quickly called the neighbors to come and join us. The time had come to bundle up for a long trip to Grandpa and Grandma's house in Danzig, she said. Like most Germans, we owned no automobile. We would have to go to the road and try to find a ride on a farmer's wagon. There were 11 children and two mothers in our little refugee group. It was still the dark of the night. We could not imagine the fears our mothers were dealing with on this journey. For us boys, it sounded like a fun adventure, something like a winter hayride. Outside, we hurried towards the main road. In the distance, we could see that the way was clogged with wagons, military trucks, and thousands of people on foot, 
all streaming west towards Königsberg. We joined ourselves to the stream. Soon, Felicitas grew tired. She began to cry. Mother bundled her in a blanket and carried her. In the darkness, we did not manage to find a farmer's wagon that had room for our entire group, so we continued to walk until daylight. We boys soon realized that this trip would be nothing like a hayride. All around people were talking of the atrocities. Russian tongues were coming along the road behind us and they were running over people. Soldiers were shooting women and children. And those are the lucky ones, an old farmer said grimly, wagging his head as we quickened our pace. We heard the roar of an engine on the road behind us. Mother screamed at us to run into the ditch. All of the people scattered from the road. But it was not a Russian tank. It was a military truck speeding past. A truck loaded with German soldiers from the battlefield front. They were fleeing for their lives, leaving us to fend for ourselves. Where are the Russians? screamed a refugee as the truck rumbled on. They have taken Stablak shouted a soldier. Run through the forest. Hide yourselves. We cannot take these children through the forest, my mother said, as she looked at her frightened neighbor and friend. A farmer's wagon is no much for the speed of a military tank. What are we to do? Another truck came by, and another. My mother was deeply distressed that she had not taken to the road much sooner. She now understood that she had made the danger greater for us by waiting until the last minute. Chaos was the order of the day, the possibility that we could be run over or gunned down by the Russian army was now her first concern. The next German truck will stop for our children, mother said resolutely. They will see that I am a German mother. They will have mercy. The next time a truck sped towards us, my mother stood on the side of the road, hailing the driver. The truck swerved in order to go past. Mother leaped in front of it, and the truck slid to a stop in the mud. The driver cursed angrily. We have children. You must give us a ride, she screamed. Frau, this truck is overloaded. I cannot stop. With that, the driver put the truck in motion again, leaving us huddled beside the road. Someone will stop, Mother said with determination. Dear Jesus, move the hearts of these men to take us to safety. She attempted to stop the next truck and the next. They did not even slow down in their headlong rush to save their own lives. Mud spluttered over us from the spinning tires as they sped past. As we walked on, Mother hatched another plan. This time, she would have our neighbors stand apart with us children. We would remain fifteen feet or so behind Mother's position. If she managed to stop another truck and engage the driver, our neighbor would not wait for his answer. She would begin to toss children one by one into the back of the truck. We would land like eleven sacks of potatoes among the soldiers. Last of all, the women would beg the men to make room also for the children's mothers, expecting that they would not want to have to care for the children by themselves. This plan worked. Once inside the troop carrier, the soldiers made room for us, where formerly there was none. 
It was standing room only, but they pushed against each other to make a small circle in their midst. Finally, they pulled our mothers into the truck and deposited them on the floor beside us. The truck revved its engine and began to roll on towards the half. Mother sobbed and hugged us, thanking the soldiers again and again for their help. But they refused to look at her. The proud Prussian military had failed to protect its homeland. All had been lost, and now it was every man for himself. Their eyes darted left and right, searching for any sign of Russian troops on the move. Not long after that, the men began to scream and pound their fists against the cab. Someone had spotted a plane approaching. The truck lurched to a stop and the soldiers spilled out like scrambling ants. Hitting the ground, they raced for a cover in a nearby grove of trees. Mother grabbed her boys and Felicitas as a fighter plane swooped low over the truck and then pitched up into the sky to position itself for a bombing attack. We had no time to leap from the truck or catch up to the soldiers. We were a sitting target. Mother took us like a mother hen, hovering over her chicks. She put us under her body, spreading a coat over us, and began to pray. Heavenly Father, protect these children. Give us your angels for a shield. Let no weapon prosper. These are your children, Lord. Keep them safe in Jesus' name. She continued to pray as the hum of ballistic shrapnel filled the air, arriving faster than the speed of sound. This was immediately followed by the roar of the fighters' cannons, drowning all other sounds and thoughts. The track leapt and shook with a deep impact, thump, 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 of bombs pounding the earth in rapid succession. Explosions of soil burst over us as the plane banked towards the east from whence it had come. We could hear small arms fire from the grove of trees where the soldiers were hiding. The sound of the plane's engine died in the distance. Nothing had hit the truck. Nothing at all. We looked up. Mother shook soil from her cloak. Thank you, Jesus, she whispered. When the soldiers re-entered the truck, they were deeply shamed. None had looked to our safety. As seasoned fighters, they had been sure when they bolted for the trees that there would be nothing to come back to, no truck, no refugees. They went to great lengths after that incident to take extra care with us. We became their prized cargo. Darkness fell again and we continued on through the next night. In the pre-dawn darkness, we stopped in a forested area near the Huff. Hundreds of other families huddled in the trees by bonfires. The soldiers carried us into the wood and told us to build a fire. With dawn breaking, they would not cross the ice. The Russians were flying from their positions around Königsberg to bomb the refugees as they fled, they said. I was happy for the chance to stretch my legs. The search for firewood in the forest was just what I needed. I began to hurry along, looking for scraps of dead wood that might burn. But the other families had done a good job. 
There were no scraps to be found. I went deeper into the wood, searching the ground diligently. Suddenly I looked up and had no idea where I was. I ran to the nearest group of refugees. Have you seen my mother? No. I ran to the next group and the next. From bonfire to bonfire I hurried. No one knew me. No one knew my mother. All were strangers. Here is Meta, a voice called. I rushed toward the sound of it. A man pointed to a woman I did not know. Here is Meta. No, I cried, and rushed away from them. I had been suddenly wrenched from my sheltered life in Stablak. Now I was lost in a dangerous world full of nothing but strangers. All of the things that meant comfort and home to me had been snatched away in one frightful night. I began to cry like an air raid siren. A kind lady came and asked if she could help me. Between sobs I told her that I had been looking for firewood and now I couldn't find my mother. She picked me up and carried me from group to group until, at last, I saw my mother with a worried look on her face, searching for me in the distance. I leapt from that woman's arms and raced to meet her. I didn't even thank the kind lady. Mother embraced me tightly. My heart was beating so fast with a release from fear that I could hardly calm down. It was mother's custom to hug her children once a year, only on their birthday. Her hugs were especially precious. On the brighter side, I had unexpectedly found a way to get an extra hug from mother. It felt so good. As morning grew in the sky, mother and her neighbor lady lay their eleven children on packed bundles around the bonfire. We went to sleep hearing their prayers that God would provide safe passage for us across the ice. Suddenly the soldiers were waking us up. They gathered us and loaded us quickly into the truck. We did not understand it yet, but God had performed an answer to our prayer. As we rumbled down the slope toward the half, a thick bank of fog rolled in from the Baltic Sea. Soon we were engulfed in the most blessed white-out conditions imaginable. This was the divine cover needed to hide us from the bombing and strafing Russian fighter planes. As the truck ran across the half, the driver had to slow down and use caution. It was late in the season and pools of water on top of the ice splashed around our tires. At times we would slide sideways, nearly out of control. Sometimes the ice would groan and crack beneath our wheels. February was normally too late to venture out here in a vehicle. But desperation and the provision of life-saving fog drove us on. Occasionally, out of the ghostly mist, we would encounter the dark circles of bomb holes. Bodies floated on the dark surface of the water. Thousands had lost their lives trying to cross before us, but we reached the other side in marvelous safety. In Danzig we parted company with our neighbors. Soon Mita, with all six bonky children clustered around her, 
knocked at the door of Grandpa and Grandma Scheffler's second-story apartment. It was a tearful reunion. Mother's younger sister, Eva, was also there. The first thing Mother wanted to know was if they had heard any news of Stablak or any news of Father. No one could tell anything. Communications had broken down. Danzig had been under bombardment for days. As soon as the weather lifted, the bombardment resumed. We saw buildings burst into flames as planes and artillery hammered the city indiscriminately. Dozens of plumes of smoke could be seen around the apartment every day. It was then that we heard the awful report that when the fog had lifted from the half, the Russian Air Force had completely bombed out the ice crossing. That way of escape was gone for all the remaining Germans caught between Königsberg and Danzig. Oh, please, God, Mother prayed, show Hermann a way of escape. Don't let him be caught out there. And what about Grandpa August and Grandpa Marie, my brother Martin cried. They are still in Truns. We don't know where they are, Mother said, but we will pray for their safety too. Grandpa Ernst seemed especially troubled. He wanted us to get out of the city as fast as he could to escape its fall into enemy hands. At the beginning of the war, he had left his rural sheep farm near the Lithuanian border for a job with a woolen mill in Danzig. He was determined to stay until the end, but Danzig was no place for his wife, his daughters or his grandchildren. Daily he would brave the bombardments and go to the harbour. There he would jostle through the crowds, seeking passage for us on a ship. What about the Wilhelm Gustloff? Mother asked. Hermann said that we might find safe passage on that ship. For a long time Grandpa did not answer. His face was a mask of seething anger. She already sailed he said hoarsely. Mother assumed he was angry because they had sailed without us. His wife, Minna, knew he was troubled for another reason, and she could no longer contain her grief. She burst into tears. Tell them the rest of it, Ernst. Tell us what, Mother asked. A Russian U-boat sunk the Wilhelm Gustloff. Suddenly the gravity of the danger we were in became much more real. We had escaped from Stablak, but would we escape Danzig? Did anyone live? There were 10,600 people on that ship. Almost 9,000 of them were refugees, the rest soldiers. Most of them perished. Mother looked at her mother. Then we must pray. We will pray that God will lead Papa to find the right ship for us. I will look for a ship that is not going to Germany, he said bitterly, a ship that is not carrying soldiers. Mother sat quietly for a while, pondering. Might there have been a divine purpose in her delaying our departure from Stablak, even under the threat of the Russian invasion? What if we had arrived in Danzig in time to book passage on the Wilhelm Gustloff, we would all be at the bottom of the Baltic Sea.
On March 17, the city was still being bombarded. We had left our home more than a month ago, and the Russians had increased their positions throughout the country. Grandpa came home that day with good news. He had been at the port as an old coal freighter had docked. Visiting with the officers, he had obtained permission for us to ride along to Copenhagen the next morning. We would have to leave early. He felt that this was an especially good vessel under the circumstances. It was not a military transport. He also thought that its destination bode well for an unmolested crossing. It was bound for Denmark, the country that had suffered less than other under German occupation. As the war ended, this seemed the best possible place for us. That night, Minna, Ifa, and Mita fasted and prayed. Even though Grandpa Ernst had done his best for us, they were terrified. They wanted to hear from God about our journey on this ship. After a while, Minna got up and took a small box from the mantle. She removed its lid. It contained hundreds of Bible memory verses printed on cards. She held it out to Mita and told her to take out a card. She believed that the card would contain a word from the Lord as to whether we should go on this ship or wait for another. Mother reached out to the card box. She took a card and handed it to her mother. Isaiah 43 verse 16, Minna began. Thus says the Lord, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. She could not read another word, nor did mother reply for a moment. The three women sat with tears streaming from their eyes. The Lord had spoken. He would be the captain of this voyage. Now they burst out in praise to God. All of us came near to share the joy. We read the card again, and faith rose up in our hearts for the journey. Faith that God would see us through safely. The next morning we packed our bundles for the trip. We walked down the hill to the shipyards. When we got there, Grandpa was dismayed. Apparently, others had seized upon the same idea. Tens of thousands of people were packed onto the dock, ready to make the same trip. We were lost in the crowd. The ship could not possibly hold a fraction of those seeking passage. Our hearts sank. Mother was determined she had heard from God. She took us children by the hand and pressed into the crowd. Make way for the children, she said again and again as we pushed our way forward. Finally, the press of the crowd became too great. We were in sight of the gangway to the ship, but could go no further. Mother was fearful that one of us might be heard. The people in the crowd were desperate. Suddenly, someone began screaming and pointing to the sky in the east. A Russian fighter plane was sighted flying down the shipyard line, guns blazing, headed straight for where we stood. People began to scream and run. Mother knew the children would be trampled, so she huddled us together, telling us to get down and hide behind our luggage. Once more, as she had done on the military truck, 
she shielded us with her body. The air hummed again with the sound of ballistic shrapnel. Hungry bullets seeking flesh to destroy. But we were not injured. Needless to say, the crowd had thinned. My brother Gerhard remembers my mother's sister, Eva, stood up at this point and began screaming at the ship's officer who stood near the gangway. Sir, look here. Here is a mother with six children. You must take them now. The officer turned his back to her, pretending not to hear. But she would not stop. She ran as close to the gangway as she could, repeating her demand. More Russian planes were now circling above, seeking targets of opportunity. We grabbed our luggage and hurried after mother toward the gangway. Ifa continued to scream at the officer who seemed determined to ignore us. Suddenly, without warning, he simply turned and opened the gangway gate to let us all in. In this way, God made room for us on that ship bound for Copenhagen. We turned and waved at Grandpa as we hurried up the gangway. On board, they hustled us beneath deck. Soon other refugees were crowded together with us. They filled the lower hold of the ship with as many passengers as seemed prudent. Then they withdrew the gangway. Many, many more people were left outside pleading for a place on board, but the great foghorn sounded and the ship pulled slowly from the dock. Our voyage had begun. Once on the open Baltic, the conditions below deck deteriorated fast. The sea was making considerable swells and many more succumbing to motion sickness. The smell of vomit, feces and urine began to reek in the air. In the middle of the night, my bladder could hold no longer. Please, Mama, I need to go on deck to pee. Mother could not let me go alone. She sent Aunt Eva with me, who took great care, making sure I held tightly to her hand. We reached the main deck and entered the cold night air. I remember the salty, fresh smell of it. It invigorated me after enduring the stench below decks. After using the latrine, I looked up into the starry sky. As I gazed at Milky Way, slowly tilting with the roll of the ship, I heard the faint drone of a plane. Suddenly my heart nearly leaped from my chest. On deck of this civilian ship, anti-aircraft guns had been mounted and hidden under tarps. The covers were suddenly removed and the guns began blasting into the heavens at the approaching fighter. Aunt Eva screamed and dragged me towards the open hatch, but I broke free, fascinated by the drama in the sky. Before she could grab me again and drag me down the rope ladder, I saw the fighter plane burst into flames. Look, look, I shouted, pointing to it. For a moment, both of us watched, transfixed, as the plane fell like a burning meteor, splashing into the dark and icy water off to one side. The passengers on deck began to cheer. It had been a Russian fighter that plummeted from the sky. As Eva hurried me down below decks, she was thanking God 
that at least we had escaped the strafing that had targeted us on the docks in Danzig. I also recalled the terror of the bullets and bombs that had rocked the military track as we sat helpless on the road. Incident by incident, the realities of this war were becoming real to my four-year-old mind. Sometimes after midnight, we were awakened by an impact against the hull. Staring into darkness, all we could hear was the constant churning of the ship's engine room continuing on course. All of the passengers had heard of the fate of Wilhelm Gustloff. After some minutes, passengers began to panic as the ship listed hard to one side. The crew rushed to the lower decks with gasoline-powered pumps. Either the ship had struck a mine or had been hit by a torpedo. Water was rushing in from the gaping hole in the hull. Soon the sounds of the pump engines could be heard below decks, removing the incoming water. Mother called us to her side. Here was the supreme test of her promise from God. She began to pray, Minna and Eva joining her, reminding God that he was the God who had spoken, saying that he made a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. After some hours, the ship began to right itself. The crew explained that the pumps had begun to work faster than the incoming water and we were staying afloat. When the coast of Denmark appeared and we entered the harbour at last, everyone wept and cheered. I looked at the distant shore without a clue as to what awaited us here. All I knew is that I wanted to stay close to the woman who had prayed us safely through the fall of East Prussia though I could not yet put it into words. In my heart, I wanted to know the God she knew, and I wanted to know him like she knew him. Chapter 6 Mita bundled Felicitas in a blanket and carried her in her arms. She gathered all five blonde-headed bonke boys around her, and together we stepped off the coal freighter into the freezing sleet of a Copenhagen spring. Eva held Grandmother Minna by the arm as they followed unsteadily down the gangway. Other ships were unloading at the docks around us. Slowly we began to understand that we were but nine of a quarter million German refugees entering Denmark. Eighty-five percent of them were like us, women and children. At first we were treated well. The Nazi-supervised Danish government did their best to feed and house us in empty schools, warehouses and meeting houses. But in a matter of days, Hitler was dead and Germany surrendered. The occupying German forces withdrew and everything changed. For us boys, part of each day's routine involved helping to carry water and firewood to our cabin. Firewood remained in short supply, and getting warm and fed became the first goal of each and every day. As the day and months passed, Mother nursed us through the normal fevers, colds and bouts with flu, using home remedies and prayer. Doctors were not available, 
only basic medicines and first aid could be found. During our first year in the camps, 13,000 died, mostly children under the age of five. Today, moss-covered stone slabs mark the resting places of these German children in nearly forgotten corners of Danish graveyards. In some cases, one stone represents several children hastily buried in a single grave. I recall one I recently visited at the site of our internment. A single stone cross bears the names of Georg Kott, three months of age. Roswitha Rogge, three months, and Erika Rauchbach, who died after four days of life. And the headstones go on and on like this, row after row, 7,000 in all. Even as the war ended, the tragic momentum of death it had spawned simply would not stop. But of course, boys will be boys even in a prison camp. My older brothers and I found ways to play our games as mother, Eva and Minna bore the full brunt of hardship. I vividly recall chasing a makeshift soccer ball through the camp. One day I chased it up to a barbed wire fence. Stooping to pick it up, I saw an armed guard in a tower. It reminded me that we were not free to run and play as we had been in Stablak. It slowly dawned on me that we were not like the other children who sometimes stood on the other side of the fence staring. Sometimes their parents stood with them and pointed at us, and sometimes they cursed us for what we had done to the world. I slowly became aware that the army my father had served belonged to an evil empire. The truth about Nazi atrocities and Hitler's insanity began to make their way even into the conversations of German boys and girls at play in the camps. Our father's military rank, which had once been a source of pride for the Bonke boys, now became something we kept to ourselves. We were sobered and saddened. My brothers and I longed to see our father and to know that he was okay and to learn from him the answers to these terrible accusations. Mother had received no official word about Dad, but she reassured us that God would take care of him just as he had taken care of us on our perilous flight from East Prussia. But for many long months we were under a dark cloud, wondering if he had been crushed beneath the wheels of the advancing Russian tanks. In response to our questions, Mother finally sat us down to tell us that we would never see our home in Stablak again. That part of the world had been taken over by the Soviet Union. She explained that the end of the war had caught us in Denmark and that in time we would be allowed to return to another part of Germany where we would build a new life. Until then, we would have to make the best of life in the refugee camp. Carrying the full weight of parenting six children, mother let the sternness of her Prussian upbringing come forth. No doubt her strictness was compounded by the constant anxieties about our safety. 
we had to give account to her for our whereabouts at all times and get permission in advance to do anything or go anywhere with friends. She would tolerate no deviation from her every command, nor would she allow other opinions to be expressed once she had spoken. To run afoul of her was to risk a good hiding, as she called it. The word had something to do with the tanning of an animal's hide, which meant the punishment would be sufficient to change the shade of one's skin at the very least. She did not hesitate to spank or slap us with an open hand to make sure her authority was never taken lightly, and it seldom was. The threat was deterrent enough for everyone, that is, everyone but me. Somehow I earned more than my share of hidings. I might run off to play with a friend and forget to ask permission. Or I might express an opinion contrary to her rules, as if I had a perfect right to do so. I would become distracted while carrying firewood and end up playing soccer. On a sudden whim, I might fashion a fort from the firewood I was carrying and engage in a furious chestnut fight with an opposing team of children. My clothes would become torn and filthy at the knees. At mealtime, I might begin wrestling with a sibling and spill food and drink. There seemed to be no end to the ways I could get into trouble. It got so that in the morning mother would look at me and say, You naughty boy, I may just as well give you a good hiding right now to get it over with. And she meant it. As time wore on, I began to feel that she was right. I was an especially naughty boy. No matter how often I was corrected, it seemed I never learned my lesson. I wore my mother out. Often she would say, I so wanted a little girl when you were born, but you were my fifth boy. Dear Lord, it began to dawn on me that I was a heavy burden to her, but I couldn't seem to rise above it. Finally, it didn't seem to matter. Even when I managed to do everything right, I still sensed an attitude of exasperation coming from her every time I was in the room, it was more than misbehavior that irritated her. I felt that it was me. Not feeling well, my father Hermann Bonke lay in his prison bunk, staring at the wooden slats of the bed a few inches above his nose. He had been excused from work detail, which allowed him to spend some precious time alone in the British prison barracks. He thought of how many millions of prisoners had lain awake in claustrophobic waters like this throughout the hellish war years, victims of the Nazi regime. How many of them, millions of them, had died in horrible ways he wished he could erase from his mind. He had only recently learned of Hitler's final solution. He was still in shock over it. The extermination of Jews appalled him beyond words. As a Pentecostal believer, he had regarded the Jews as the chosen people through whom God had revealed the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind. 
knowing that he had served a government that had planned to exterminate all of them, left him permanently shaken. It haunted his thoughts and even his dreams at night. He wondered how the stablack prisoners of war were faring, those his men had guarded at the prison camp in East Prussia. They had been mostly Belgium and French soldiers. Some had returned to Europe with stories of even worse confinement after being liberated by the Russians. How were his fellow German soldiers faring? How many had survived the final onslaught? He thought especially of those who had stayed behind in Königsberg so he could escape by sea. He recalled how they had sacrificed themselves. You are a father of six children, the officer in charge had said. You must return to build a new Germany with them. He had been given passage on the last minesweeper to leave the harbor at Helau before the end. His fellow soldiers had held back the Soviets until his ship had made it safely into the open waters of the Baltic Sea. Rumors now had come that the men who had stayed behind had been marched away on the point of bayonets into the vast Siberian gulag in Russia. They would never be seen again. He raised his right hand and turned it over before his face. In the depth of his heart he wished he had never been the young boy who had raised a wooden sword in the village of Tons, dreaming of glory in battle. Little had he known that the Prussian cross he had so longed to wear would be hijacked from its godly heritage and twisted into Hitler's swastika. How the descendants of the Holy Roman Empire could be transformed into the Nazi regime he could still not fathom. But he had seen it happen with his own eyes, day after day, with a helpless feeling in the pit of his stomach. It had taken only ten years for Hitler to seize absolute power over his beloved homeland. He would never live another day without regretting being German. Hermann had been in this prison camp for 279 days and nights. Every minute of every day he felt the pang of longing for his wife Meta and his children. He saw each of their faces in his memory now as he had seen them last in Stablak. He prayed for them by name, asking that they be preserved alive and well and that they may be reunited by God's grace in due time. He had inquired again and again through the Red Cross of their safety and whereabouts, but had learned nothing. With each passing day, the gnawing ache in his stomach grew stronger, whispering that they had not survived. Still, in his confinement, he did not feel persecuted. It seemed small payment for the mega death and suffering dealt by the German army over the last few years. The trials for Nazi war crimes were even now beginning in the city of Nuremberg. He would not have to stand trial because, as an officer in the Reichswehr, he had never joined the Nazi party. He thought that if he were given the death penalty as a prisoner of war now, it would not be too severe. But alas, 
It could not atone for so many sins. The war's sweep was too massive and its evils too many for any court to ever set right. But there was one who kept perfect count. Not even a sparrow fell without his knowledge. The hairs of the heads of every war victim, not to mention of every perpetrator, had been perfectly numbered and recorded in his divine book. One day the book would be opened and everyone would stand before the great white throne to give account for his deeds. God alone could balance the scales of justice. And he had done so. In heaven there was a second book, the book of life. The members of the human race would finally not stand or fall based upon their own deeds, good or evil. They would be saved if their names had been written in the book of life. To accept Jesus as Savior, place their names in this book. This was Hermann's hope and the hope of every Christian believer on both sides of the war. As he lay there, in his imagination, he saw a pair of scales weighed down to the floor with an impossible debt. A tank, a bomber, a field helmet, a bayonet, an iron cross adorned with swastikas. Then, placed on the opposite side of the scale, the old rugged cross. Under the weight of that cross, the scales were balanced. This alone was the equation of divine justice. God placed on him the iniquity of us all. Tears ebbed from his eyes as his heart reached out to this infinite God in prayer. My heavenly Father, I'm yours for the remaining years of my life. No more military service for me. It is my heart's desire to preach your gospel and to serve you alone until the day I see you face to face. Across the empty barracks, he heard a door quietly open and close. Someone began walking softly across the floor. The flooring softwoods creaked beneath every step. Hammond thought perhaps it was a British guard coming to check on him or a doctor coming to see why he had reported feeling sick. He rolled from the bunk and stood up to face him, and to his utter shock it was a man in white, wearing a seamless robe and Middle Eastern sandals. He was smiling as he moved toward him, hands extended as if to embrace him. His hair was long and his beard full, and when Hermann reached out to take his hand, he saw that it was torn completely through from the force of a Roman nail. Hermann, I am so glad you are coming, the master said, and then vanished into thin air. Hermann fell on his knees. He could do nothing but weep for the rest of the day and night. How could the Savior be made glad by one so guilty? 
returning to his bank he lay down, his soul overflowing with the peace of God that passes understanding. Until this moment it had seemed inconceivable that an imprisoned soldier of the Third Reich could receive the smile of the Lamb of God and that the Savior would express God's pleasure at his desire to serve him as a minister of the gospel. The treasure of this encounter burned like a warming fire in his heart until the day he died. What a day for us when the Red Cross delivered that wonderful letter. The first of many. Our father had found us at last. Mother's tears fell freely as she read his words again and again, stroking his handwriting with her fingers, knowing that her beloved Hermann had miraculously escaped the war's end. I jumped with joy as she gave us the news that he was alive in a British prisoner of war camp near Kiel, Germany. Kiel, Mother explained, was not far from Denmark, just across the narrow straits of the Baltic. It would be years until we saw him, but just knowing he was alive and that he was that close to us in miles was enough for us. Our entire family had been spared by the hand of God from the terrible end of the war. I watched the joy on Mother's face and I reflected her happiness. I spent my time in the refugee camp with a new measure of purpose thereafter. Days later, while at play, I noticed a serious look on the face of my older brother Martin. He was speaking to Gerhard, Peter and Jürgen near the compound fence and he seemed deep in thought. I came near and heard some of what he was saying. Why didn't God save the people on the Wilhelm Gustloff? They were Christians. What about the ones who fell through the ice on the half? Did God save the bonkies and not them? God didn't send the fog that covered us. That fog was just part of the weather patterns. We were the lucky ones, that's all. Some days the fog comes and some days it doesn't. God didn't do that. These were big ideas, too big for my now six-year-old mind. Hearing them from Martin made me feel terrible, like someone had stolen my most prized possession. I walked away quickly, deeply disturbed. Later I found Mother alone. Mother, God kept us safe from the Russians, didn't he? Oh yes, Reinhardt, he did. I could see her face glowing with thankfulness as she spoke. And did he keep Father also? Yes, and Father, too, God is so good. We must praise him every day and be thankful for his protection over our family. So many perished, but we were spared. My heart became peaceful again. Her faith was the solid rock that anchored my drifting soul. To this belief, I would cling for comfort and joy. And in this way... I began to walk a path separate and distinct from that of my older brothers. Our ways would eventually lead us to very different destinations. After nearly two years in the camp, Grandpa Ernst Schaeffler contacted Minna and Eva through the Red Cross. 
he had survived the fall of Danzig and he had escaped to Neu-Ulm, Germany. The old sheep farmer was working for a branch of the same woolen mill that had employed him in Danzig. He had secured a home and had found a way to free his wife and daughter from the camp. We were sad and at the same time so glad when we said our goodbyes. We wanted Grandma and Aunt Eva to be free, but we did not understand why we were not given our freedom at the same time. These were questions to which we could expect no answers. We were merely German war refugees who in the eyes of many deserved life in prison. Meanwhile, we continued to receive letters from Father. These were the highlight of our remaining time in the camp. We would gather together and Mother would read them aloud to us and we would feel connected again. We would dare to dream of a future in which we would be together with Father. It had happened for Grandpa Ernst, Minna and Eva. It would surely happen for us. I remember the day Father told us of his release from the prisoner of war camp. We shouted and celebrated and sung praises to God. He had been allowed to go to a city in northern Germany called Glückstadt. There he had found a room in a friend's house and he had been offered a good paying job as a civil servant. He was preparing a place for us to come and live with him when we were released. We were ecstatic. The name Glückstadt meant luck city. As Christians, we did not believe in luck, but we certainly believed that it would be our very good fortune to live there with Father, especially when we learned that he had found a little Pentecostal church in that town and had joined the fellowship. This would be our church home when we joined him. We were sure that our time of freedom was near. We began to dream of life in the house with Father in Glückstadt. But as we waited, the days turned into weeks and into months, until finally we stopped asking, Mother, when are we going to live with Father? The question brought tears to her eyes. Another letter arrived that threw everything into tension. More precisely, the letter threw Mother into turmoil. Now that I am an adult, I can better understand it. In this letter, Father asked, if she would support him in a decision to turn his back on the secure income he would receive in a civilian job. He wanted to become the pastor of a small group of Pentecostal refugees in the nearby town of Krempe. He explained that Krempe was only five miles from the house where he lived in Glückstadt. He could ride there on a bicycle and become their preacher. He had great compassion for these suffering people, he said, and it was the desire of his heart to serve the Lord by serving them, rather than receive another kind of paycheck. He reminded her of his promise to God in the prison camp and of the visitation from Jesus he had received there. These things had been communicated in earlier letters. He also reminded her of his dedication to God before the war when he had gone to a soldier's retreat at Rheinbeck Castle. 
From that day on, he had wanted to respond to the calling of the Lord to full-time ministry, but he had been unable to obtain a discharge from the Reichswehr. Now, after the war, all that had changed. Mother prayed and sought God for her answer. This would not be easy. She was the struggling mother of six, living for years in a refugee camp, hoping for a better future. It appeared that the Lord had provided that better tomorrow in Glückstadt with her husband. Meanwhile, millions of Germans were unemployed. To give up an income with post-war security was like letting go of a life preserver after the Wilhelm Gustloff had gone down. In addition to her financial concerns, Mother could think of one other hurdle that stood in the way. Hermann had made a promise to her father, Ernst Schepler, in order to obtain permission to marry her. She wrote a return letter to father reminding him of the solemn pledge he had made. Had he forgotten? Could any preacher be a true man of God if he broke such a promise? Chapter 7 Mother wrote a letter reminding Hermann of a pledge he had made to her father Ernst. In order to marry Mita, he had promised that he would never become a preacher of the gospel. It had been Ernst's one condition. What was to be done with that promise? Could it be simply discarded? My father's reply was basically, yes, it could be discarded. He would approach Ernst to learn if he was still holding him to the promise. Surely he was not. But if so, he would have to inform him that he answered to a higher authority. Hermann remembered how he had signed away his life to the German Reichswehr while still a young man in his teens. Years later, after coming to the Lord and coming of age, he had changed his mind. He wanted to leave the military and enter the full-time ministry. But the government would not allow it. Bondage to a youthful vow had led him to serve the most horrific regime in history. Lessons learned. He would not be held to Ernst Scheffler's demand if it violated the call of the man with the nail-scarred hands. The question came back to the one between my father and mother. Would she support him if he followed this call? Once again she had to go to her knees in the prison camp, seeking assurance that God would supply for the family if Hermann made this change. At length she received peace in her heart. She wrote Hermann back telling him that she would support him fully if he felt Krempe was the door God had opened for ministry. The promise he had made to her father could not compare to the visitation he had received from the Lord confirming his calling. Besides her mother, Minna was a woman of biblical spirituality. She would help with any objections from Ernst. Subsequently, our father was provided a bicycle by the pastor of the church in Glückstadt. He used it to ride the full five miles to and from church in Krempe each Sunday. Every letter from him from this time on 
was filled with the stories of ministry. We learned of the extreme poverty among the refugees and how the town of Kemperhat generously provided a hall for his meetings free of charge. Each letter contained information that made us feel a part of what he was doing. Over time, Father's congregation grew to include 100 refugees. This growth forced them out of the free hall into a youth hostel that could accommodate the entire group. He told us of children in Krempe who would someday want to meet us when we came to join him in Glückstadt. I try to imagine what Glückstadt and Krempe looked like and what the other children in my father's church were like. All of the difficulty in the refugee camp seemed more endurable now that we had such a future before us. Most of all, I remember imagining my father in the pulpit. I was very proud to think that he was no longer a soldier, but a preacher of the gospel. Mother found ways to be a blessing in spite of the challenge of camp life. She managed to get access to a sewing machine and kept us well outfitted for the Danish climate. She organized a camp choir, copying sheet music by hand. When someone had a birthday in the camp, she saw to it that they were properly celebrated in song. When anyone died, she would conduct the choir as the chaplain said prayers and read scripture. At Christmas, our entire family celebrated with a concert of carols. As I grew older in the camp, I continued to earn her anger and harsh discipline. Often my misbehavior would reduce her to outbursts, even as she was engaged in leading the choir or sewing clothes. No one in those days thought anything wrong with a parent acting in this way. It was assumed that parents were responsible for the actions of their children. Under this kind of thinking, I was bringing shame to her. Nearly three years passed in the camp. On her birthday, mother was allowed to take us to attend a local Lutheran church. When we arrived, she was so thrilled to see that this particular edifice housed a fine pipe organ. After the service ended, she approached the preacher with a special birthday request. Would he allow her to play just one hymn on the great organ? He graciously allowed it. When she played, the preacher received a revelation. No one in his parish possessed mother's musical skills. He quickly realized that such a talent could make a marked improvement in the worship experience in his sanctuary. Now he had a request for her. Would you please come back, Mrs. Bonkey, each Sunday and play for us? And of course, it was a great pleasure to do so and to bring all six of us to sit in the pews nearby. I remember how tall the vaulted ceilings were in that church and how large the pipes on that organ. I recall the blasts of the various notes and instruments that seemed to explode from my mother's fingertips as she played, notes that echoed back like pelting rain from a vaulted heaven. 
That mighty music in that cavernous church left me with the feeling that God was huge and far away and indifferent to the squirming behind a young boy imprisoned in a hand-carved Danish pew. Until she finished playing, I was nearly beside myself to be free of that place so I could run and play soccer in the refugee camp field again. My four years of internment from the age of five until nine marked on my psyche the wonderful difference faith can make, especially faith in a loving and compassionate God. My mother, more than anyone else, etched that lasting impression upon me. As spring follows winter, as those who mourn will be comforted, so Meta's music followed after the agonies of war. In my heart, and years later in my head, her performance on that great pipe organ became a magnificent anthem. Those great hymns like Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God have a way of imprinting themselves indelibly in the memory. Watching the example of my mother as both a musician and a refugee, I began to know that the compassion of our Lord flows like a river towards those in prison. Whether victims or perpetrators, his blood was shed for the sins of all. No cause or effect of human failure is beyond his reach. Years later, as I began to read and understand the Bible for myself, I came across the words of Jesus as he quoted from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. My heart immediately recognized this good news as a message from the very heart of God. The God my mother knew, the God I longed to know, even though I was a very naughty boy. Chapter 8 Perpendorf, Perpendorf, Perpendorf. This word puffed from the stack of the steam engine that pulled our train along the shining rails, or so it seemed to me. Perpendorf was the name of the prison camp to which we were traveling. It was the place where we would meet father again. I could not sit down. For weeks after learning that we would be reunited, I had seen myself running faster than all of my brothers, and of course my sister too, and leaping first into father's arms. While playing soccer in the camp in Denmark, I had secretly tested myself. I was sure that I could outrun them all. I was the swiftest monkey in the clan, by my own measure, at least. As we rolled through the green farmland of northern Germany, I stood at an open window. 
I could smell and taste the sulphur-tinged exhaust from the coal-fired engine. The train took a long curve, and I strained to see past the white trail of steam and cinder smoke. I was determined to shout, Peppendorf, I see Peppendorf, at the first opportunity. My insides tickled like a balloon full of butterflies. I fairly bounced on my tiptoes with anticipation. When last I had seen my father, I had been four. Now I was almost nine. Mother told me that he would be very proud of how I had grown. I couldn't wait to show him how tall and how fast I was and to make him proud. There would be time enough for him to learn what a naughty boy I really was. Peppendorf! I see Peppendorf! I shouted, pointing to a large platform surrounded by barbed wire. I felt so proud that I had seen it first. The other children joined me at the windows as the train began to slow its chugging pace. Martin was now fifteen, Gerhard thirteen, Peter and Jürgen eleven. I was nine and Felicitas seven. The wheels beneath us began to scream with brake friction as we rolled slowly to a stop. Nita remained calmly in her seat. She knew that the time for happiness would be the actual moment of seeing her husband. There were many, many procedures to endure first. We were still refugees. For some reason, we could not simply be released even after being detained for so long. The international community had to inflict one last indignity upon us, forcing Hermann to re-enter a prison camp for our reunification. It must have been hard for him after enjoying recent years of freedom. Father had been a prisoner of war, a captured soldier. When his military service records had been produced and examined by the British, they saw that he had never joined the Nazi party and he had been released. Finally, we were being transferred from Denmark to British control at Peppendorf. There we would have all of our release paperwork processed. The officials needed to confirm that we were indeed the family from Stablak, who had been separated from Hermann during the fall of Ostpreußen, and that we were registered properly with all of the new West German government agencies. In Denmark, we had been released from the camp, issued new papers and shipped across the Baltic Straits to the port of Kiel. There, we had boarded this train under British guard and now arrived at Peppendorf. It was the most famous, or perhaps the most infamous, displaced persons camp run by the British Army. In Peppendorf, before we arrived, the British had confined thousands of Jews who had survived the Bergen-Belsen death camp. These desperate people had tried to immigrate illegally to Palestine aboard a ship they called the Exodus. The British Navy had turned the ship around and forced the illegals to return to Germany, confining them in Perpendorf. The firestorm of world opinion that followed embarrassed the British so badly that they had hastened to release the Jews. This embarrassment had also accelerated something quite unanticipated, an event 
that would forever change the world, the formation of the Jewish state of Israel in Palestine. Mother and father had corresponded with excitement about this great event. Out of the horrors of the Holocaust, God seemed to be orchestrating the fulfillment of Old and New Testament prophecies. In many passages it had been written that he would gather his chosen people from the ends of the earth and establish them again in the land he had promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We were seeing these words fulfilled in our time. It created a sense that ours would be the final generation before the coming of the Lord. I heard the words of Jesus quoted often, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. A year after the formation of Israel, it was our turn to pass through the gates of Peppendorf. Once there, our papers were duly stamped and noted, our belongings searched. We were led to the section of barracks where they told us Hermann Bonke would be waiting for us. As the final barbed wire gates to his compound were unlocked, I knew my time had come. I broke free of the others and sprinted across the common yard, searching among the other men who were waiting for their loved ones. Some of them were playing soccer and board games, others standing in groups, talking in the sun. I ran as fast as my legs would carry me until I reached the wall of the Quonset hut on the far side of the field. There I turned, sides heaving as I gasped for oxygen. I had not seen my father. I had somehow missed him. I looked frantically right and left. Reinhardt, I heard mother call, a familiar exasperation in her voice. Reinhardt, get back here now. When I turned to look back from whence I had run, there was my father near the gate on his knees, hugging all of his children, minus one, the fastest bunky in the clan. My disappointment was quickly overwhelmed by delight. I raced back and leaped on the pile, becoming the tipping point that threw the whole bunch of them to the ground. Hermann lay for a while among his children, laughing and crying. All at the same time, we each hugged an arm, a leg, his torso, whatever we could find for ourselves. We hugged and laughed and cried with him, unable to use real words to say just how we had missed him and how glad we were to see him again and how we loved him and how a dozen other things we had been saving up to say for almost four long years. He laughed and hugged us back because he could not help himself and he cried perhaps because he had remembered that he was the man his buddies had put on the last minesweeper to leave Königsberg so he could be here now with his wife and children just like this. And those men had paid with their lives. He hugged each of us one by one and told us how proud he was of us, remarking how we had grown. In the joy and energy of this family reunion, 
I did not find an opportunity to show him just how fast I could run. You see, Reinhard, mother was saying, you don't listen. You always have your own ideas. If I had not been here, you would still be wandering around looking for your father in all the wrong places. I know, mother. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Chapter 9 Martin, you have grown so tall and smart. And Gerhard, you are not far behind him. Nearly as tall. I can hardly believe it is you. Walk on your hands for me, Gerhard. Let me see that trick again. Gerhard quickly tilted himself up and made his way from one wall of the room to the other, walking on his hands, his legs above his torso. At the far wall, he turned and returned to the place from which he had started. It was something he had taught himself to do while in the camp in Denmark. Father laughed and clapped. When I tried to do it, I fell awkwardly to one side. No matter how many times I tried to balance, I fell. But for Gerhard, it seemed as easy as walking upright. Gerhard is the athlete of the family, father said. Martin, you will soon be old enough to join the military, but you are named Martin for good reason. You will preach the gospel like Martin Luther one day. Father went on joking with us and telling us what he felt we should become one day. Night after night, eight bonkers were stuck in the single room Father had found after the war. We shared the house with several other families. Even worse, each night Father seemed stuck on the same topic. The happiness of our homecoming seemed to be sucked from the room as he talked about World War II. We fought for our country, which is a noble ideal, but our country had been taken over by Hitler and the Nazis. They took the greatest military the world has ever seen, and they wasted it for ego and insanity. They betrayed everything Germany stood for, and it is no wonder the world hates us. In the end, the Soviets overrun us, and now an iron curtain divides Germany into East and West. It divides Berlin and most of Europe. This is what our war accomplished. Your grandfather August was killed by the Soviets when they crushed East Prussia. Now, Hermann, mother cautioned, do the children need to hear this? My boys will soon be old enough to become soldiers. Boys naturally dream of glory like I did. They need to know the truth. When the Soviets overran Tunz, they were filled with vengeance. Everyone ran in panic. Your grandfather August was too old to keep up, and the soldiers kicked him and hit him again and again as he tried to take your grandmother to a train station. Grandmother Marie was beside herself. She could not make them stop. They did it just for sport, for vengeance. Still, Grandpa made it with her onto the train where there was hardly room to stand. As the train pulled from the station and reached full speed, he died from his injuries and fell to the floor. The passengers had no tolerance for a dead person on that train. Even our own Prussian people had become like animals in the aftermath of the war. Some of them held Mother Buck as the others threw his body from the window of the moving train. 
This is how my dear father ended his days on earth. And now you can see what I mean when I tell you, war is hell. We were stunned to silence and deeply saddened. Felicitas was crying. Why didn't God protect grandfather? Martin asked somberly. If he protected us, why didn't he protect him? It took a moment for father to find his reply. That is a very hard question, son. I've wondered that myself. But for questions like this, there will be no answers until we are on the other side and can ask God face to face. For Martin, this answer was not satisfying. He remained deeply troubled. My other brother seemed to follow his cue. As for me, I embraced my father's answer wholeheartedly. It became my own. One might say it was because I was merely ten years old and my mind was less aware of the full tragedy involved. Perhaps so, but I will add that a great blessing followed my childlike faith, a blessing that has returned dividends for the rest of my life. Twelve members of our family had been marvelously preserved through the fall of East Prussia, but for a reason none can explain. The patriarch of the clan, my spiritual ancestor, August Bonke, was lost. To magnify one tragic loss above twelve miracles of preservation would seem to tarnish the joy and meaning of my relationship to God. By embracing my father's faithful answer, I could remain open and trusting towards a God who I believe had our very best interests at heart in spite of the things we could not understand. I have never improved on my father's answer. To this day, the unanswerable questions I leave in God's capable and loving hands. Every evening in Glückstadt we were jumped into that one room to sleep for the night. The bonky children shared blankets on the floor arranged around the one bed reserved for mother and father. We were crowded but happy to be together. At least we were out of the prison camp and breathing free air at last. Glückstadt was a small port town near the mouth of the Elbe River. The river emptied northward from the tip of Germany into the North Sea. Its estuary was situated just west of the great peninsula that connected Germany to the main land mass of Denmark. In fact, our city, whose seal depicted Lady Luck, had been founded in 1617 as the main trade center for the region. Fifty years before my family moved there, processed meat was shipped regularly from Glückstadt to America. This had kept the port viable for decades. But in the bigger picture, the town had run out of luck in direct competition with a huge trading center upriver. The little burg now had an inferiority complex, especially as it compared itself to Hamburg, the city of 1,500,000 that dominated the region. Ships from the port of Hamburg churned to and from the North Sea every day, passing the docks at Glückstadt without a pause. Only a few local fishing vessels were ever tied there. 
Perhaps I was especially vulnerable to the inferiority of Glückstadt. I began to feel it within myself, not just because of the small city in which I lived and the painful poverty of my refugee family and the fact that I was a very naughty boy, but for other reasons too. Our new life in Glückstadt held disappointments for me. First among them was my performance in school. As the bonky children entered the regular German school system, we discovered just how far behind we had fallen in Denmark camps. Much of the energy I would rather have invested in playing childhood games now had to be focused on extra hours of study to make up for lost time. Even so, I did not seem to overcome the setback as quickly and successfully as my older brothers did. They were energetic students. At the homework table they wrangled about the nuances of algebra, and their improving grades reflected their efforts. Soon they won high praises from mother and father. It was all endlessly Greek to me. My brother seemed to sow academically, why I plodded like an earthbound farmer sowing academic seeds that would not bear fruit for many seasons to come. Every class was hard work for me, but there was one class I detested above all others. English. Mother, father, why should I have to learn English? I'm German. They tried to tell me that it wasn't for me to question why. It was a required course in all of Germany now. I had to do it, and I would be held accountable to do it well, like my older brothers. Every day in school the teacher would dictate words in English. We obtained a standard workbook from the local bookstore and filled in the dictation on blank pages. When the book was filled, we were given a final test. Words were placed on the blackboard that we were to translate and write on our final page. On the day of the test, I wrote my answers in anger. In truth, I knew that I was guessing. I simply did not know the rules of the English language. So I wrote out of frustration and turned in my test before any other student in the room had finished. I then made a show of handing my booklet to the teacher before any of the others and being allowed to go out and play on the playground. What a shallow victory doomed to backfire and make things worse. The next day I was not surprised to see my workbook filled with red marks. The teacher's commentary on my work was not complimentary, even though I knew it was coming. I was crushed. As I placed that book in my bag and began to walk home, I knew that mother and father would see it and I would have to answer for my failure. The more I walked, the heavier that bag became. Finally, the weight of it slowed me to stop in front of the Glückstadt bookstore. That's when a wonderful thought came to me. I could buy a new workbook using my lunch money. I could exchange it for the old one. I would not have to answer to mom, dad and my brothers for my mistakes. I took the workbook filled with accusing red marks and threw it into a trash barrel. In this way, I became foolish like Adam in the Garden of Eden, using a fig leaf to cover the awful truth. Every thought in my head about school hurt. It weighed on me like a heavy yoke. 
I could not succeed and I could not escape. Now my sinful whitewash made the burden of it seem even heavier. Adding to the load, I soon discovered the intense scorn that Lutheran schoolchildren had for Pentecostal children. On a typical Sunday, our father would be gone before sunup on his bicycle traveling to minister in Krempe. We could not afford another bicycle, so none of us went with him. We attended the local Pentecostal congregation. The Pentecostal believers in Glückstadt met in a small schoolroom behind the Lutheran church. When we were seen leaving our humble meetings in the shadow of the great Lutheran steeple, the news quickly spread that the bonkies were tongue-talkers. The teasing began, and it was more than teasing. Pentecostal were seen as primitive people, religious Neanderthals, a knuckle-dragging sect that only existed because of its ignorance. This gave the Lutheran children license to call us every name in the book. As a boy, I had no real argument to make it in our favor. In fact, our faith did not spring from a seminary textbook, a baptism, a catechism, or a confirmation ceremony. Rather, both salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit came from a direct and powerful encounter with God. By that experience, the Word of God became alive for us, and we were guided to the truth of Scripture through our spiritual relationship rather than by the study of theology or church history or religious traditions. Our kind of religion bypassed all that the Lutherans seemed to hold dear, and we were punished for it. We were considered unworthy of social standing. I remember how all of our women were playing clothes and no jewelry, and they never cut their hair, wearing it in an unstylish bun at the back of their heads. This was done as a part of the holiness heritage that had been the cradle of Pentecostals worldwide. Holiness standards demanded that believers look and talk and act differently from the rest of the world as a testimony to the true nature of their faith. So in the little town with an inferiority complex, we Pentecostals were below the bottom feeders. We were quite visible and gave the local residents something to look down upon. My older brother simply rose above it. They continued to excel in school, winning praises from their teachers. Accusations of Pentecostal ignorance simply would not stick on them. While they resented the teasing from their classmates, in their hearts they began to deal with even more difficult tensions. Pentecostal practice and the claims of education went to war in their souls. This meant that at church they might betray their academic beliefs under the influence of a guilt-inducing sermon. Then again, at school, they might betray their Pentecostal faith when it seemed to fall short of the rational arguments of science. Father's congregation in Krempe began to grow, but they were still a group of poor refugee families who could leave little in an offering plate. It seems the new Chancellor of West Germany, Konrad Adenauer, had passed a law allowing the soldiers of the Reichswehr to retire early and receive a pension for life. At the age of 44, my father 
have taken advantage of that law, believing that was the provision of God to fund his ministry in Krempe. Mother thought it all sounded too good to be true. She did not trust the government to follow through on its promise to pay the pension. How would they raise enough taxes to support such a thing after the war? On a day I shall never forget, the postman arrived with exceedingly good news. He handed her a government envelope containing the first pension check for 799 Deutschmarks. She ripped it open, shouting praises to God. She danced around the room and insisted on giving the postman two Deutschmarks as a tip. I had never seen such a display of generosity in my life. Almost immediately, she sat down and wrote a postcard addressed to her parents, Ernst and Minna, now living in Neu-Ulm. She was very eager to announce the good news. Tensions between the Bonkies and the Schefflers over father's choice to enter the full-time ministry had grown in recent months. Objections centered on the lack of a reliable income to support a family with six children. Now that objection was gone. We would be able to move from the one room that we shared. Mother reassured her parents that regardless of the amount of salary, the little church in Krempe could pay their pastor. Hermann would be supported for the rest of his life because of his long-standing service in the Reichswehr. Something that had been a heavy burden for him had been transformed into a blessing. Mother gave all the glory for this benefit to God. As a result, something was introduced into the bonky household with which I had little prior knowledge. Money. And soon to my ten-year-old mind, money became nearly synonymous with chocolate. This money-for-chocolate relationship began when I accompanied mother to do her shopping one day. I saw her take a portion of father's money from her purse to pay for meat, bread, vegetables, dish and laundry soap, and a small amount of chocolate candy. The money, it seemed to me, was like the Russian coupons we had used in the camp in Denmark, except that the choices in Denmark had never included chocolate. Mother brought all the groceries home and cooked them for supper. Then for dessert, with a glow on her face, she carefully rationed a portion of chocolate candy to each of her six children. This was like getting Christmas in July. Such luxuries had simply never been afforded since we had left our home in Stablak. As I bit into the chocolate, I experienced a revelation. What marvelous sensation was this? My taste buds had never been so turned on. The flavor went all over me with a sense of delicious well-being. Life seemed to consist of many things that were difficult and dull and tedious, like school and homework and chores. But now there was chocolate. I simply needed to have money to have more of it. The solution became quite clear to me. Mother had plenty of money in her purse. Money was now readily available to our family. 
and it was free. She had given away two Deutschmark to the postman, hadn't she? A portion of chocolate would cost much less. She would not miss such a small portion of money from her purse. Though I was merely an average student, I immediately became motivated to achieve that math. Well, at least the kind of math necessary to calculate the proper amount of Deutschmarks necessary to buy an individual portion of candy. Once I had this figured out, all I had to do was wait until Mother had abandoned her purse in the bedroom and retrieve the exact amount from her change wallet. A little here, a little there. Once, twice, three times over the next several weeks, I managed to find the right amount of change. Just a few pennies. It resulted in a trip downtown to obtain the pure joy of a very intense and personal chocolate experience. Oh, how I savored it and how I was filled with a sense of being wealthy. And finally the day came when I took a full Deutschmark from her purse. In my heart I knew I was wrong. At the store, as I finished my chocolate pleasure, I began to feel a sense of guilt gnawing at my inside. I walked from that place and I made a guilt-born vow. One day, I will repay Mama 100 Deutschmark to make up for the money I stole. That is what I will do. How do mothers do it? How do they know? Where do they learn the exquisite art of timing? My hand was well into her purse when I heard her voice behind me in the gloom of the bedroom. Reinhardt, what are you doing? I withdrew my hand as if a mousetrap had just snapped on my fingers. Nothing, mother. Nothing. This was technically not a lie, since I emerged from her purse with nothing in my hand. Somehow, however, I knew that what I had been doing was much more than nothing, and it was very, very wrong, and I was about to get the hiding of my life, which I positively deserved. I was hopelessly naughty. Mother turned the light on in the room. She stood there thoughtfully for a long moment, deciding how she would handle my transgression. Then slowly and deliberately, she came to sit on the bed. Every moment of this process was pure torture. Opening her purse, she looked inside. The change wallet was open. Reinhard, have you been stealing money from my wallet? No, Mama. I don't know what the others have been doing with it. I wanted to pass the blame onto my brothers. Patting the bed beside her, she indicated that she wanted me to sit down. I did. Look at me, Reinhard. This was much worse than a hiding. I looked into the eyes of the woman I most loved and respected in the world and knew I had betrayed her. My pulse raised. It pounded in my temples fueled by the foul vinegar of shame. Reinhardt, you know that you have disappointed me again. Yes, mother, 
I know I have been missing money from my wallet before. Have you done this before? It took me a bit of mental reviewing to properly get this reply to come out of my mouth. I heaved a sigh. Yes, mother, I am so disappointed, but now I'm even more worried. It is one thing to misbehave, but it is another to be a sinner. Do you know what you have done is a sin before God? It's called stealing. Actually, I hadn't thought of it quite as stealing. I'd seen it as a way of getting, well, sort of sneaking chocolate. But now that she mentioned it, there was no denying that what I had done should be called stealing. I had taken her money, purely and simple. I nodded. Thou shalt not steal. It is one of the Ten Commandments. I nodded again. I had memorized the Ten Commandments. I knew them by heart. When we break God's law, it is a sin, Reinhard. You're a sinner, and I'm worried about you because sinners go to hell for all eternity. The pain of my transgression grew heavy indeed. Do you know this is why Christ died on the cross? I'd never thought of his death as applying strictly to me. In church and in family devotions, when we had heard about it, I had always thought of the sins of the whole world as causing the death of God's Son. Suddenly, my own sins were before me, slashing like a cat of nine tails into the flesh of the Lamb of God. The taste of stolen chocolate turned completely foul in my memory. It seemed to cost so much more than money now. I couldn't calculate the price. The death of God's son, I began to cry. Jesus died to save sinners, Reinhardt. He died so you would not have to go to hell for your sins. Would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior and be forgiven? Oh yes, Mama, I would. In truth, I felt the awful reality of being lost. This was more than a life lesson. It was an eternal life lesson, one that marked me for the rest of my life and ministry. Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish this knowledge in the heart of a sinner. I did not want anything in my life ever again that cost God the death of his son. Nothing. I wanted to please him in every way, and I wanted to be forgiven. I repeated a prayer after her, acknowledging that I was a sinner and accepting Jesus as my Savior. When we finished, she hugged me. It was a birthday hug and more. It was my new birthday. I felt as if a thousand pounds had been lifted from my shoulders. It was the last time in my life that I ever stole anything. There is something else, Reinhardt. The Bible said that if you believe in your heart and confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth, you will be saved. Do you believe that you have been saved? Yes, mother, I do. If you have believed it, then you need to confess it. Sunday, when we are at church, I want you to stand up and confess to the other believers what happened here today. That will be confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus. 
Will you do that? I was happy to say yes, and I did it. The people of the congregation welcomed me as a new member of the body of Christ that Sunday morning. When I confessed the Lord Jesus, something further happened in me. I knew that I belonged to the Pentecostal church. It was no longer just the church of my father and mother. It was now my church, too. They had welcomed me into the family of God. They were now my brothers and sisters. I felt affection for them. I began to love those who loved them and despised those who despised them. Needlessly to say, I had even less regard for the Lutherans in Glückstadt thereafter. Soon we moved into post-war public housing. It was something called a town council apartment. At last we had a space we did not have to share with other families. We had more than one bedroom, with a kitchen of our own. Father's pension had made that possible, and Mother was highly motivated to once again create a home that reflected her personality. A harmonium was obtained. Musical instruments and lessons began for each of us. I learned to play the guitar and sing. I was told that I had a wonderful singing voice as a lad. We became the musical bonky household again, as we had once been in Stablak, singing and playing hymns of praise to the Lord. I remember time after time during this period, Mother would suspect money was missing from her purse again. The first place she came to inquire was to me. Reinhard, did you steal money from my purse again? No, Mother, I did not steal anything. There is money missing. You have been a thief. Do not lie to me. Did you steal money again from my purse? My eyes were flashing as I replied, No, mother, I did not steal money from your purse. She looked deeply at me and lowered her tone of voice. No, I can see by your eyes that you did not steal it. Even so, the burden of my original sin haunted my innocence. I could never walk away from mother feeling that she would not again suspect me of stealing. Sin had begotten the death of trust between us. How it pained me. But even a sinful boy finds moments of reprieve. One Sunday, another boy my age at church invited me to explore the woods behind town. He said that he had seen a mother deer with twin fawns out there and he might be able to find them again. We got permission from our parents and spent an hour following game trails without seeing anything more than the trucks in the mud. The bees were busy pollinating flowers and the tall grass was buzzing with insects in the warm sun. As we walked and talked, we forgot about the deer. We both decided that when we grow up, we wanted to be preachers. The idea occurred to us to practice our preaching skills on the surrounding trees. This became a regular Sunday activity for a number of weeks. We even took a Bible with us so that we could properly read our text before beginning a sermon. As time went by, however, I began to notice that my friend Hubert 
was a much better orator than me. His voice was stronger and his sermons more eloquent. Though I loved Jesus with all of my heart, I found it difficult to express my heart in words that matched his. This was a source of discomfort for me. After being born again, I thought that I should be able to do better than this. Again, I felt inadequate. Deep inside, I suspected that God knew what a troublemaker I was for my mother. In my immaturity, I felt that somehow my salvation must not be as genuine as my friend's. Though she had married the preaching major and attended a Pentecostal church, mother too felt inadequate. She had never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. She had wanted to know God in this way, but had not found it happening, no matter how she prayed. Discussions about it between her and father were a normal part of our family experience. Now that father was a Pentecostal preacher, she felt the need for the experience even more. I remember mother reading scripture on the subject. In the book of Acts, it described that the people heard the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Then tongues of fire descended on the heads of all those in the room, and they began to speak with other tongues. Somehow, this image of the tongues of fire jumped out at me. I read the scripture with her. I could almost see the flames in the upper room. God blessed his people with fire. I wanted my mother to have this experience. Mother, did the fire hurt the people? Did it burn on their heads? She heaved an exasperated sigh. No, Reinhard. It was like the burning bush Moses saw. The fire of God did not burn up the bush. It's not like a normal fire. What kind of fire is it? I think it was a signal fire. It was a sign to the Jewish people in Jerusalem to say that the day of Pentecost had been finally fulfilled. Will you have a flame of fire on your head when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit? No, Reinhard, I don't think so. The Bible says that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. With just human strength, it is impossible to do what God commands. His word says, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to preach. I hope you will have the fire on your head too, I said just like in the Bible. In my heart, I began to ponder the idea that what I needed, like mother, was the same baptism of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps this was the power that would make me able to express the gospel that so dominated my heart. Not long after this conversation, I attended a life-changing Sunday service. On this particular day, husband and wife missionary team had been invited to speak. I do not remember much about them because as they were speaking, the Spirit of God spoke to me in my heart. It was as if he said very clearly, Reinhard, one day you will preach my gospel in Africa. 
until this moment. I'd been a boy born in Germany with very little exposure to the larger world. My mental picture of the continents was not well schooled, but in my heart it was as if Africa had been suddenly written there. When we are born again, it is like this. Our names are written in heaven, and our eternal destiny is sealed there. But we can also receive an earthly destiny from our Heavenly Father. That is what I received as a mere boy at ten years of age. I have often wondered if the continent of Africa had been suggested to my mind by those missionaries who spoke that morning. Germany had a historic presence in Africa during the colonial era. I had certainly heard of it, but nothing had been made personal to me concerning the Dark Continent. Perhaps this couple had been working in Africa and had shown pictures. I frankly do not remember, and little does it matter. What matters is that I heard God speak in my heart so clearly. This was something I simply had to share with Father. I could hardly wait until he peddled in from Krempe that day. I waited for him on the street. As I sat there, I knew he would understand the voice of God I had heard inside. He also had heard from God. I recalled that Jesus had even visited him while in the prison camp and when he had decided to become a minister. Surely my father would become as excited as I was over my call to Africa and he would confirm this great day in my life. When I saw him, I raced to meet him. Father, Father, God spoke to me in church today and said I must preach the gospel in Africa. I must have appeared to him like a bouncing puppy yapping out of excitement. He did not seem to understand. He dismounted from his bicycle and asked me to repeat it. Then he looked at me with a puzzled and somber expression. Your brother Martin will be my heir, Reinhardt. He will be the preacher of the gospel in this family. It was like a shower of cold water. But father, God has called me to preach in Africa. He scolded. How do you know that God has called you? Disappointment darkened my heart. His tone of voice spoke louder than his words. It told me he was in deep doubt about my claim. I thought he would understand how important it was that I had heard directly from God. My mind searched for a way to explain to him the reality of it. What evidence did I have? Jesus had not visited me personally nor had I selected a scripture from a box of promises like Mother when she received a word from God about our crossing from Danzig to Copenhagen. Nor did I hear an audible voice. All I had was the evidence of my heart, and I was not eloquent enough to put it into words to please him. On this day I began to understand that I had two fathers an earthly father and a heavenly father. Until that moment, I had assumed they spoke with one voice. After all, my father was a man of God, a minister of the gospel. Jesus had appeared to him in person, 
It was nearly crashing for me to realize that God might speak to me and my earthly father would not know it. But it happened that way. In the months that followed, I brought it up again and again. Each time my father responded in the same way, he doubted me. He quizzed me about how I could know the voice of God. Each time I had to deal with my deep disappointment and a gulf began to grow between us. Though today I understand his caution, back then it was as if my father and I knew a different God. In reality, we each had a relationship with the same God, a relationship that was as unique as our individual fingerprints. This is, of course, how God delights to relate to each of us. The very hairs of our head are numbered. He reads the thoughts and intentions of our hearts perfectly and designs our paths accordingly. Jesus pointed this out to Peter, who had asked, What about John? Jesus replied, What is that to you? You follow me. The steps my father took in his journey with the Savior would not be my steps. God does not make spiritual clones. He raised up sons and daughters. Looking back, I see what an important lesson this was for me. Above all, we are called to hear and obey the still small voice of our Heavenly Father communicated to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But if other voices are placed above that voice, we may come to doubt the very voice of God himself even after we have heard him clearly. Jesus taught, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. At ten years of age, God was giving me voice recognition lessons. More than I knew, God was testifying to see if I would follow his voice above all others. In this case, the voice of my own father seemed to contradict the voice in my heart. Jesus said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Though I was too young to make that kind of choice consciously, I did make it in my heart. My father's doubt did not turn me away. The knowledge that God had called me to Africa at the tender age of ten has never left me. The Pentecostal church in Glückstadt announced that the special minister would visit the fellowship. He would hold a seekers meeting. This was a special meeting for those desiring to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Mother announced that she would go with father. I wanted to go too, but they would rather that all the children stay at home. Mother already felt fresher enough. It was humbling and perhaps embarrassing for her to admit to the entire congregation that the wife of the Pentecostal preacher at Kempe had never known the experience for which the movement was named. I will pray that you receive the Holy Spirit with a flame of fire on your head, I said. At the meeting, the special speaker taught from the scriptures about the baptism with speaking in tongues. Then he invited those who were seeking to come forward to have hands laid upon them. Mother went forward. 
She received their prayers, but nothing happened. When she arrived home, I ran to her. Mother, did you receive the gift and the flame of fire on your head? No, Reinhardt, I'm sorry. I prayed, but I didn't seem to receive anything. I could see that she felt very disappointed, and I felt that I had made it even worse by asking about the flame of fire. No one could console her, and we all went to bed. Perhaps like the disciples in Gethsemane, I slept too soundly when I should have remained alert. So soundly did I sleep that I did not hear the sound of a rushing mighty wind as it hit the upstairs bedroom an hour later. Once mother had relaxed in bed, the false religious pressures she had felt at church melted away. Her self-consciousness and disappointment vanished. She reflected the words of Jesus. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? She had asked God for his Holy Spirit, but had been so pressured and distraught by her concerns that she had not been able to see the gift she had been freely given. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was not an experience acquired by religious diligence. It was not so much about seeking as it was about receiving. It was a gift made available by a loving Heavenly Father, and it was simply hers for the asking. Her faith to receive had been all mixed up with her own expectations and those of Father and those of the congregation. Suddenly, she felt herself falling into the loving arms of her Lord. Flooded with waves of divine love, another language began to pour from her mouth like a fountain. She wept and praised God and spoke in tongues for hours, completely exhilarated by the experience. My brothers woke up and heard the commotion. I slept soundly through it all. In the early morning hours, Mother was due to go to Hamburg on church business. She left before any of us children had awakened. On the breakfast table we found a note. Dear children, last night Jesus baptized me with the Holy Spirit. Mother, when I read it, I was dumbfounded. How had I missed it? All day I could hardly contain myself waiting to see her. I wondered again about the flame of fire. When I saw Mother approaching on the street that evening, I ran to meet her. The closer I got, the more astonished I became. My mother was glowing. Her eyes sparkled. Her step was like the step of a young girl. She ran to me and swept me up in her arms, and it was not even my birthday. I could feel the love pouring from her like I had never felt before. It made me want to laugh and cry. Something had radically changed my mother. I no longer needed to see a flame of fire to believe she had received the real thing. Above all, I knew that I wanted to have what she had.
Chapter 10. Next to last. That was my place in the bonky lineup. Not last, which would have brought some measure of distinction, but next to last. I must have been easily overlooked in that dynamic mix of children. Martin led the way, so talented, sensitive, bright, and the designated heir to the preaching elder. Gerhard followed close behind, adding his athletic prowess to the picture. Jürgen and Peter were highly remarkable because they were a set of twins. I was followed by Felicitas, the only daughter in the Bonke family and the apple of her daddy's eye. Except for my reputation for getting into trouble, I think I must have fallen through the cracks. Oh, yes, where is Reinhard? We also have a son named Reinhard. Is he here somewhere? Reinhard, where are you? I would be presented to the family guests as an afterthought. As guests often do, they would ask, Well, Reinhard, you seem to be like a fine young boy. What are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a missionary to Africa. I said without hesitation. In this, I distinguished myself. No other bonky child claimed to be called to Africa. Father would hear this and chuckle, winking at his guests. Children go through stages, you know. They usually grow out of it. This hurt me. I wanted my calling to be taken seriously. I took it very seriously. It was the only thing that gave purpose to my rather unremarkable life. Why would my father not help me move in that direction? My older brothers took the signal from father as permission to pile on with their own endless ridicule. They would sneak up behind their hands and shake their heads at me as if I was an alien. Reinhardt, the missionary. This was a difficult period for me. In German there is a word for how I felt. Null. It is defined by the synonymous zero, not nil. In many ways I felt I was a zero, non-existent, like I didn't really matter. Adding evidence to that feeling was that I was from a poor family, a social outcast, struggling in school, and the least child of the Bonky clan. In the mirror of my own mind, Reinhardt was not just a dull boy, he was null. Sometimes my own reflection simply disappeared. I began to mention to my father how I needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order to have the power to preach the gospel in Africa. He did not deny that the spirit baptism with speaking in tongues was for everyone. But he did not lead me to the experience. He considered me too young and immature. Just because you are a boy with a mind of his own does not mean that you are ready to receive the spirit baptism. Father, I asked one day, since you do not believe that I have a real call from God, how do you know when you have a real one? How does it feel? I think he was surprised by my question. He thought for a while, then he said, Son, 
when you have a real call from God, then you will know it. You will know it deep in your heart. You will know, and it cannot be shaken. Every word that he said rang true in my heart, confirming my call from God. To me, it did not seem to be just another example of having a mind of my own. Father, I know that I know that I have a real call from God, I said. The look on his face told me he was not comfortable to hear such confidence coming from the mouth of a child. Perhaps this was true because of his childhood. He had longed for military glory, and he deeply regretted the decision it had led him to make as a 17-year-old. In my case, however, the Spirit of God was leading me in the direction of divine service. My father had not known such a thing as a boy. I'm happy to add that many years later, when he visited me in Africa, this conversation between us about my calling became one of his favorite stories to tell from the pulpit. His eyes would shine with tears as he confessed with great pride how wrong he had been in his judgment of me as a ten-year-old boy. In late 1950 and early 1951, I recall how mother and father shared stories of the weekly Pentecostal prayer meetings in Glückstadt. It seems the little group of believers were having visions, prophecies, words of knowledge, and other gifts of the Spirit manifested as they waited before the Lord. My heart thrilled as I overheard these stories, and I wanted to be among the people of God at every opportunity. But prayer meetings were considered inappropriate for children. During my 11th year, I began to ask Mother if I could go to the Friday night prayer meeting with her. Again and again, she denied my request. In my heart, I was sure I was being denied because I was unworthy. All the years of misbehavior and self-will had disqualified me to be in the presence of God's people. To make up for it, I would do my chores all week and even do extra chores on Friday, trying to make her change her mind. Still, she said, no. Week after week it went on like this. I grew more disappointed, blaming myself for all of it. Finally, one day, she said no, and I could not hide my pain. Tears spilled from my eyes. Mother was taken aback. She sat down, astonished. She gazed at me as if she had not seen me before. What is this I am seeing, she asked. A boy of eleven who wants to attend prayer meeting so badly that he sheds tears? Your heart must be ready to be a part of these things. I sense the Lord telling me I must change my answer to yes. I leaped up and hugged her. Thank you, mother. I do want to go more than anything. From that day, I began to attend every church service, not just on Sunday, but every service during the week. If the church was in session, I was there. In each service, 
where they were singing, mother saw to it that I had my guitar and could lend my voice to the songs of praise to God. One weekday evening, at the end of the prayer meeting, I was standing beside mother and father, ready to be dismissed. The pastor made an announcement that Grandma Bouchos, an elderly lady in the congregation, had experienced a vision. On his invitation, she stood and related her vision to the members of the little group. I saw a crowd of black people, she said, a very large crowd. They were gathered in a semicircle around a little boy with a big loaf of bread. He was breaking the bread and giving it to the people, and as he did, the loaf of bread continued to increase. Then she turned to me and pointed. The little boy that I saw was this one. I cannot adequately tell you what happens inside a boy when something like this occurs. It was like pouring hot oil over my head, anointing me to see the vision from God confirmed and fulfilled in my life. Yet, in that hour, neither I, nor father, nor mother, could even faintly imagine just how powerfully this vision would eventually play out. We could only be thrilled with anticipation and wonder at this unexpected manifestation of a spiritual gift. My father looked at me incredulously. I think for the first time he began to get a glimmer that perhaps I had actually heard from God. But I could tell that he still doubted, and as time went by, it became quite clear that his hopes were still pinned on Martin to be the gospel preacher in our family. I'm sure that my continuing misbehavior helped move his thoughts in that direction. One fine spring day, I accompanied mother to the grocery store. As we entered, Something in the window caught my eye. It was a colorful poster announcing the coming of a circus. I told mother that I would remain outside as she shopped. When she had finished, I would carry home the groceries she had bought. This gave me time to study the fascinating poster in the window more closely. It featured a number of African lions jumping through hoops. There were trained stallions, bears, monkeys, and a wonderful circus elephant. A troop of acrobats, clowns, and a flying trapeze were also featured. At the bottom of the poster, the dates for the circus were posted. I studied them. A circus train was shown in miniature with an illustration of the trained elephant helping to erect the main pole of the tent. How I wanted to see that. It just fascinated me. The big top would be set up in a field at the edge of town. My blood raced at the thought of all these wonders. Reinhard, what are you doing? There was a familiar tone of disapproval in mother's voice. I had lost track of time. She had finished shopping and was ready to head home with her bags of groceries. Look, mother, I said excitedly, a circus is coming. Can we go? What? 
You are a boy who has been born again, and you ask me that? Can't you see that this is a sinful activity? Absolutely not. Oh, Reinhardt, when will I stop being disappointed with you? Mother, the lions jump through hoops, and the stallions walk on their hind legs, and the monkeys and elephants do tricks. Is that sinful? She walked over to look at the poster. Her face turned crimson. She turned to me with a look of near rage. Have you been out here all this time looking at those nearly naked women on the trapeze? Honestly, I had hardly given them any notice. No, mother, no. It were the other things, the animals I was looking at. Mother stuffed the grocery bags into my arms. The circus is nothing but an excuse for women to flaunt their bodies and arouse sinful passions in men. Take these groceries and get your eyes off that poster. I ought to give you a good hiding right here, on the spot. I wasn't looking at the women, mother. I was looking at the animals, I swear. She gasped and stopped dead in her tracks. You swear? You swear? Swearing is a sin. Do you see how one sin leads to another? My son is swearing. I didn't mean to swear, mother. I'm sorry. But I wasn't looking at the women. I was looking at the animals. Are the circus animals sinful too? Are they? She sighed deeply. There's nothing wrong with the animals, Reinhardt. They are God's innocent creatures, except they have been made part of that godless circus. That circus has spiritists, gypsy fortune tellers, palm readers, and all sorts of evil influences. No one from the Pentecostal church had better be caught dead there. I can tell you that for sure. We walked on in silence for a while as she became calm and serious. Reinhardt, how would you feel being at that circus when Jesus came? Do you think you would rise to meet the Lord in the air? while you are watching scantily clad women swinging through the air like that? Oh, dear Jesus, how could you go to an activity like that and think that you could be ready to meet our Lord? You can't live with one foot in the church and the other in the world, son, not if you want to be part of God's spotless bride. No, you can't. The Bible says, be hot or cold. If you are lukewarm, God will spit you out of his mouth. I had such high hopes when you gave your heart to the Lord, but now I worry that your heart is being led astray. I walked the rest of the way without another word. All that she said raised new fears in my heart. I did not want to be led astray, but she had said that the animals were not sinful. That was the one bright spot in her exhortation. There were innocent creatures of God, she had said. I knew that was true in my heart, and I focused my mind on it. It made me feel better to think that I had not been attracted to the wrong thing, at least. I knew nothing about gypsy acrobats and scantily clad fortune tellers. They did sound evil, and I would certainly avoid them. But the wonder of wild animals from Africa being trained to jump through hoops 
and perform at the circus seemed totally innocent and acceptable. My imagination ran wild as we continued to walk. The day the circus train arrived in town, I managed to get away to watch them. Tigers, lions and bears paced in their railroad cages at the station. This was the closest I had ever been to an exotic wild animal. The sight of them at such close quarters filled me with wonder. I walked along the tracks, looking at each of them. The animal trainers used the stallions and the elephant to haul the big tent and its trappings out of the boxcar and into the field at the edge of town. I followed them, in awe at the process. The power of the elephant was amazing as he pushed the huge tent pole into place in the center of the field. Afterward, the crew stopped to eat a sandwich. The elephant trainer put a small cotton rope around the elephant's leg and tethered him to a tent stake. This amazed me. I knew the powerful elephant could pull that stake out of the ground without even trying. How could the trainer trust that he would not bold for his freedom as soon as his back was turned? I came close enough to engage him in conversation. He seemed to be a very nice man, and he explained how this particular elephant had come from the Hagenbeck Zoo in Hamburg. This was the most famous elephant training zoo in the world, he said, and it had been rebuilt by the Hagenbeck family after being bombed during the war. The new zoo, he said, was the best in the world. He recommended that I see it one day. Why doesn't the elephant pull the stake out of the ground? I asked him. The trainer smiled. It starts when the elephant is a baby. We place a chain around its leg and we stake it to a strong stake in the ground. The baby elephant pulls against it again and again with all his might, but he can't pull it out. Eventually, he is smart enough to stop trying. When he quits trying to break free, he is fully trained. You can put a thread around his leg, and when he feels the slightest tug, he will think, it is the chain, and he will not go against it. His memory tells him that's impossible. A full-grown elephant would be a very dangerous animal if he wasn't trained like this. It's a good thing he can't tell the difference between a chain and a thread. Exactly, said the trainer with a chuckle. He's smart, but not that smart. All of this information just fascinated me. I stayed on and watched the entire process of setting up the tent until it was done. As I returned home, filled with vivid images from my experience, it suddenly came over me that something was terribly wrong. All my brothers and sisters were seated solemnly around the room. They were quiet and not looking at me. Mom emerged from the bedroom. I could see she had been crying, but on her face was not sorrow or pain. 
It was the rage I had seen earlier at the circus poster. Get in this bedroom now, she ordered. I knew better than to say anything at this point. I went obediently and silently into the bedroom. She shut the door firmly behind us. After I warned you, how could you go near that place of sin? Mama, I just went to see the animals. You were seen by Sister Kruger. She said you were there all day watching the tent being put up. I told you the circus was a worldly pleasure. The Bible says we are to avoid the very appearance of evil. Did you do that? I couldn't deny it. No, mother. I'm going to give you the hiding of your life. And she did. I will never forget it. I was literally black and blue in places. It was the most terrible punishment I ever received. Perhaps the real effect of the hiding was much more than skin deep. I felt something was truly wrong with me. I had failed to understand my own attraction to the circus. I had flirted with sinful activity when I should have fled from the very appearance of it. Mother had warned me. I had thought that after the chocolate incident I had really given my heart to the Lord. But now... I felt far from being a new creature in Christ. It was like I had to start all over again, like I had to repent and be saved again. Looking back, I can see that I was like the young circus elephant. A heavy chain had been placed around my ankle and tied to a stake too strong for me. It would one day be nothing more than a tiny thread, but my heart would tell me it was the heavy chain. The slightest tug on that thread would make me feel the weight of the immovable stake in the ground, even though it was no longer there. The good news was that I was not an elephant. I was a lamb in the flock of the Good Shepherd. He had spoken to me, and I knew his voice. One day I would be able to grow in my relationship with him enough to realize that he was not the author of this bondage. But at the time I did not have enough life experience to see over this setback. When mother left the bedroom, I felt as if God himself had left the bedroom. My mind knew better, but feelings can be very powerful persuaders. Her disapproval and God's disapproval seemed one and the same. It lay heavy on me. As I lay in my bed, I recalled the day Mother had come home from Hamburg after receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I recalled how she had hugged me and how the fountain of love had poured from her very soul into mine. Until that bright day, I had felt that she would rather give me a good hiding than give me a hug. Suddenly she had loved me without condition, and I felt that God must have loved me in the same way. I wept at the memory of it. Now I had betrayed that outpouring of love. I no longer deserved it from mother or from God. How would I ever rise above my own sinfulness? 
The first day of the rest of my life happened in 1951, the day I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was still 11 years old. A special guest speaker came to Glückstadt from Finland. His name was Pastor Artur Kukula, and he was well known for leading people in receiving this gift. Rather than have a seekers meeting in the main hall, the local believers decided to have him come to a smaller gathering held in a home in the rural countryside. I had been to that house many times for Sunday dinner after church. It was one of my favorite places on earth. This particular farmhouse was a bit of heaven because the family had rigged a rope swing with a spare tire on the end, anchored on a giant oak limb. The arc of the swing would send the rider out over an embankment. You could feel your stomach come up in your throat as the ground dropped away beneath you. I had spent many hours on that swing. I couldn't get enough of it. In the back of my mind, I thought that maybe I could go to the cottage prayer meeting and stay outside riding the best thrill ride in Glückstadt. Reinhardt, you said you wanted the baptism like your mother. Why don't you go with me to this meeting? I was shocked. My father was asking me to go. Immediately I felt condemned by my worldly thoughts. Instead of thinking of this meeting as my opportunity to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I had been fantasizing about riding the swing. It was so typical of my naughtiness and my unholiness. No, Hermann, mother quickly spoke up. I hardly think Reinhard is ready for such an experience. Mother is right, I agreed. I will stay home. For some reason, Dad did not accept this answer. Maybe God was beginning to speak to him about me, I wonder. This does not sound like my Reinhardt, he said. He's always talking about needing the baptism for his calling to Africa. Reverend Aswa Kukula is here, Mita. We should not ignore this opportunity. Besides, the Lord Jesus himself is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost. If he desires to baptize Reinhardt, who are we to stand in his way? And so I went with him. As we walked towards the farmhouse, I struggled with my feelings of unworthiness. How would God stoop to fill such a wayward boy like me with the Holy Spirit? I was surely not to be trusted with this priceless gift. When we arrived at the house, we could hear singing. Outside, the great swing in the oak tree swayed silently in the breeze, accusing me of my tendency towards worldly thoughts. I turned away from it, fervently asking God to forgive me, and followed my father into the house. As soon as I entered the room with those saints, I felt something begin to tingle inside of me. Incredibly, it was a growing expectation that I would receive the gift of the baptism this evening. My heart trembled to think that God would do such a thing. Reinhardt, the null boy, the worldly boy, the naughty boy, would be visited by the power of the Holy Spirit. I began to be excited and I felt broken inside. 
It was a good feeling because I felt broken before God and I began to sense his love for me as a broken boy. Surely this gift would lift me above the string of failures I had racked up. As Arthur Kukula spoke, my faith leaped up and shouted, Yes, within me. The words of scripture seemed to come alive in my chest. Suddenly, the entire experience was no longer about me. It was about God and his great love for his children. When Arthur invited those seeking the Holy Spirit to kneel and pray, I did so immediately. No sooner had I reached my knees than I was overwhelmed by an incredible sensation. No one needed to lay hands on me to pray. I received the gift of speaking in tongues spontaneously and burst out in a heavenly language. How can I describe it? Let me say first of all that there are many who have experienced the spirit baptism in a quieter and less dramatic fashion. What follows is not a how to receive. It is a description of how it happened to me at the age of eleven. It seemed to come from beyond me and from within me at the same time. My mind began to receive a stream of pure light and love from the very throne of God. It flowed over me and went straight through me at once. This was far more than a mere bolt of electricity. It was as if every cell in my body was being saved, healed, and invigorated by a surge of divine power. The word love is inadequate to describe it because that word has been so abused and misused. Yet it is what the power and spirit of God is, his pure, selfless, agape love poured into us. It has nothing to do with transient human love. It reminds me of the prayer Jesus prayed at the Last Supper, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All of my disappointments, feelings of unworthiness and condemnation were swept away and forgotten. The heavenly language cascading from my lips was the outer expression of something flowing within me that was too wonderful for normal language. Between my spirit and God's spirit, great mysteries were being exchanged. Paul spoke of the peace of God that passes understanding. Some blessings from God are beyond intellect. Spirit baptism is one of them. People who limit God to mere human rationality will never know this power and this ecstasy. As the Spirit flowed, I was being transformed from my human limitations to a place where all things were possible. As children, we all had heard the stories of how the Christian martyrs of the first century died. Some were burned alive to light Nero's garden parties. In the natural, they should have been screaming in pain, but ancient history books tell us that they died singing praises to God. Before experiencing my spirit baptism, such stories made me feel small 
and inadequate. Reinhard, the worldly boy, could never live up to them. I could never be that brave. But now I understood instinctively that the first-century martyrs were not brave. Rather, they were believers like me who had been swept from the natural to the supernatural on a flowing fountain of the Spirit. During my baptism, I could have easily sung in the flames with the martyrs, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. As my experience continued, it was as if I had received a mind transfusion. My thoughts were being replaced by an infusion of pure and heavenly thoughts that were simply not my own. Under their influence, I held nothing against anyone who had ever wronged me. No persecution or insult or act of spite or misunderstanding could find a place of bitterness in my overflowing heart. Forgiveness was as easy as breathing, and it flowed from me on a tide of tears. Believe me, this was a mind-expanding experience for a boy of eleven. Every form of fear, self-consciousness, and natural self-centeredness was blown away like chaff as God poured his love through me. Once I experienced it, nothing else compared. I immediately recognized the source of this blessing. It could only come from God. This was because the Spirit of Christ, which already lived inside of me, was programmed to recognize Him. Abba, Father, God is love. The Scripture informs us that if the Spirit of Christ does not live in us, then we have not been born again. I had already entered a relationship with Him by accepting Jesus as my Savior. Under the influence of the baptism, all doubt was erased about the validity of my salvation. I had been truly born again when I prayed with mother after stealing money from her purse to buy chocolate. Spirit baptism was not the same as the new birth that had happened then. The Bible tells us that after new birth, the Spirit of Christ comes to live within us. Yet, we may not feel its effect and we cannot see its essence. Still, we are told that one day the same Spirit will raise our dead bodies from the grave. Yet, day in and day out, after my new birth, I had not been able to see evidence that this powerful Spirit was living in me. Nor did I readily see it in other believers. I needed a helper. Under the experience of the Holy Spirit baptism, the helper became fully alive to me. The reality of the Spirit's presence sprang up in me like a fountain that became almost unbearably wonderful. Suddenly, love made it easy to believe. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor even my mother leaving the room in strong disapproval could separate me from the source of this love. I was lost in loving God and being loved by Him. This was life eternal. By the Spirit I instantly knew that we are all null. 
We are all zero until we leave our reality and enter his. At the age of 11, the spirit baptism began to lead me on an adventure of faith that has not ended. I literally took off like a rocket ship and no one could stop me. I continue to be empowered by it to this very day. When father and I arrived home after the meeting with Reverend Kukula, mother was sitting in her big rocking chair knitting a woolen shawl. That announced that the Lord had filled me with his spirit and I had spoken in tongues. Mother froze in mid-stitch. The chair stopped rocking. No, she said in disbelief, a stunned look on her face. It was plain to see that in her mind I was hardly a candidate for such a gift from God. Her response did not offend me. I was still aglow with the experience, overflowing with love, just like she had been the day after receiving her baptism. In my heart I had begun to understand that the baptism was a free gift, not a salary earned or a reward for diligence and a good behavior if we could make ourselves worthy to receive the Holy Spirit, then we would no longer need the Holy Spirit. The first step towards being filled was to be empty of self. I had walked in that farmhouse door a zero, feeling totally unworthy, with absolutely no confidence in my own righteousness. That turned out to be the perfect attitude in which to receive. I wanted to shout praises to God who loved me so much, to think that he would fill me with his spirit simply by my asking. I ran to my mother and hugged her. Every day that followed, I begged my parents to allow me to follow the Lord in water baptism. I was so eager to identify completely with Jesus after being filled with the spirit Mother's response was, if the Lord was willing to baptize him in the Holy Spirit at such a young age, how can we deny him water baptism? And so I was baptized in a special service held in Hamburg, Bachstraße 7a, in 1951. Soon after, I became a nuisance to my young friends at church. We must preach the gospel, I urged them. Let's go preach. We must preach to the lost. They did not quite share my level of enthusiasm. They still saw me as the boy who had barely outlived his dismal attempt to preach the trees. One day, I took my guitar and headed to a street corner in downtown Glückstadt. I had quite a nice singing voice as a boy, thanks to the training from mother. I began to sing until a small crowd gathered. Then I put down my guitar reached for my Bible and preached the simple invitation to receive Jesus. To my amazement, one man knelt and prayed the sinner's prayer with me right there on the street. I raced home as fast as my legs would carry me, bursting into the living room completely out of breath. Mother and father, must have thought that the city was burning down. Father, father, I cried, 
It works. It works. It really works. A man came to hear me preach today, and he accepted Jesus. The Holy Spirit really gives us the power to preach. The look on their faces was something that I began to see quite often. It was a look as if they were wondering if they had been given the wrong baby at the hospital. I know many people, yes, even Pentecostal believers who have encountered the power of the Holy Spirit, yet have returned to lead lives of quiet desperation. Reinhard Bonnke is not one of them. My life is filled with challenges, yet it is also full of passion, meaning, joy, enthusiasm, peace and blessing. I did not produce these wonderful things. These are fruits that flow from an intimate relationship with my Heavenly Father. They can be yours as easily as they are mine. You do not have to become worthy. If you are spiritually lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, it is not a curse but an opportunity. According to Scripture, Jesus stands at the door of your heart knocking. I am the bread of life, Jesus said to a crowd of religious doubters. Doubt is transformed into faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. I like that so much. I'm still the boy in Grandma Boucher's vision. I break now a piece of the loaf of living bread he has given me, and I offer it to you. Would you accept a piece of his pure goodness? Turn to him now. Begin your journey of faith and fruitfulness. It is that simple. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will eat with him and he with me. Part 3. School of the Spirit Heavenly Father, unbelievers send ships from Hamburg every day. I see them come and I see them go. You have called me to Africa. How long must I wait for a ship to take me there? Chapter 11 I stood on the familiar pier in Glückstadt watching ships in the Elbe River. High tide from the North Sea had filled the estuary to capacity, enriching the air with the salty scent of the ocean. The river was more than two miles wide at this point, the lonely call of gulls and the sound of water lapping at the pilings inspired me. On a brisk and sunny day, these sounds would carry my thoughts away to Africa. As a boy, I loved to get away from school, away from my teasing brothers, away from the chores and every mundane thing, and come to the waterfront to dream. Every hour of the day, huge sea-going freighters would ply silently up and down the channel. All that could be heard was a deep vibration from the engine rooms as diesel furnaces drove propellers powerfully through the water. As the ships left Hamburg again and headed downriver to the ocean, I longed to be aboard, sailing away to the African continent, thinking of the years ahead, waiting to fulfill my calling, left an ache in my chest. I felt as if I never could get there, no matter how I longed to go. 
On this particular day, something unusual had taken place. A large ship had tied up at the Glückstadt Pier. It was the only one I had ever recalled seeing at our little port. Perhaps it had been a temporary mooring awaiting an open berth in Hamburg. For whatever the reason, it sat now blocking my upriver view, its large side towering over the docks. I was reminded of the day in Danzig, now Gdansk, when Mother had led us across the crowded dock on our desperate voyage to Copenhagen. It seemed long ago, but I glanced nervously at a low-flying seagull, recalling the strafing we had received from the Russian fighter planes. God had marvelously delivered us from their blazing cannons. He had also preserved the ship after it had struck a submerged mine. Mother had prayed and the ship had righted itself. The captain had been quoted later as saying, I left Danzig, an unbeliever. I arrived in Copenhagen, a believer. I smiled to recall that the God I served was Lord of the wind and the sea. I approached the great ship tied so close to the dock. Huge hemp ropes descended from the bow and stern, anchoring the vessel weighing thousands of tons close enough to the dock to touch. I could not resist. A boy of twelve, I reached out from the dock and placed my hand against the great bulk. Even though the air was brisk, the metal was warm from the rays of the sun. As boys are prone to do, I placed both hands on the steel and pushed against it with all my might. To my utter astonishment, the ship moved a few inches away from the pier. My eyes lit up with delight and revelation. I could hardly believe that I could move that mountain of steel. Of course, I knew that on land it would be impossible for me and a thousand others to move it a fraction of an inch. But on the water it had been placed within the realm of the possible, even for a pre-teen boy. What a wonder! And I felt God speak in my heart. He told me that when he asked me to do the impossible, I should obey and not question how to see it done. His ways are limitless. As time passed, I fell into a degree of anxiety in my Pentecostal beliefs. I was not aware of it as such. It is something I can see looking back from the perspective of years and experience. This anxiety arose from hearing repeated teaching at church about the difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and other subsequent fillings with the Spirit. This teaching was an attempt to deal with a way such a powerful encounter with the Lord could fade and perhaps be renewed again. We grew anxious to keep our Holy Spirit baptism topped up, as we called it. Ironically, this teaching tended to downplay the element of faith. Rather than trust in the gift that had been given, the insecure believer would storm heaven to obtain a refilling of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, this was our heritage, 
a great deal of responsibility for seeing the power of God at work in our lives rested squarely on our own shoulders. Thus, a degree of anxiety was present in our worship. Unscriptural ideas crept into our language, into our prayers, and into our singing. Oh, for a new anointing! But I thought the gifts and calling of God were without repentance. Give us a new Pentecost. I did not find it in Scripture that the first century church ever returned to the upper room once they had received the initial experience. Lord, be with us. He had said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Fill my cup, Lord. How could a mere cup contain the rivers of living water he promised to pour through us? As I grew up with these contradictions, I began to know that errors were present in our fellowship. Still, none of these errors seemed fatal to me. Rather than turn my back on the Pentecostal movement, I sought God to clarify these issues for me. Our Pentecostal prayer meetings sometimes became times of deep introspection. The influence of the holiness movement was seen here. There was much preaching about keeping short accounts with God. That meant that we must confess any and every sin to God in prayer, not to mention our sinful thoughts, so that all of it was under the blood and not hindering our relationship to God. Going back to Azusa Street, I have read that there was teaching like this at the very beginning. Some had held that total sanctification enabled and preceded the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It became something someone had to earn or deserve through a holy living. This part of the Pentecostal tradition explains why some seekers tarried for so long as in the case of my mother. She felt great pressure about having not spoken in tongues as the wife of a Pentecostal preacher. The longer she tarried, the more it seemed to indicate that she had some unconfessed sin in her life that was holding her back. This kind of peer pressure actually kept her from receiving the gift until she was at home alone in her bed. In this, I can see that she too was a circus elephant with a thread around her ankle that felt like a chain. Another emphasis at Azusa Street can be found printed repeatedly in the Apostolic Faith, the official publication of the revival. This emphasis was on power more than purity. The leader of the Azusa revival, William J. Seymour, had emphasized that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was for the empowerment of the Great Commission in the last days before the coming of the Lord. This emphasis comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until they received power, not holiness. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This missionary and evangelistic emphasis of Pentecost, of course, 
has had the greatest effect worldwide. It has permeated the charismatic movement that followed the Pentecostal revival. The result is the greatest harvest of souls in the history of mankind. Need I mention that this is the emphasis that I also embraced? Even as a boy, I am so blessed and thankful that it came from Azusa Street. It passed through Louis Graf to August Bonke and to his son Hermann. Praise God, it stuck to me. But in Glückstadt and Krempe, all of these elements were so entangled in our weekly worship that it was impossible to separate one from the other. We were caught up in it. The good and the bad, the truth and the error, the clear and the contradictory, all in one big bundle. None of us in those days had the perspective to step back and separate the issues so that they could be better understood. As the years have gone by, I have interacted with other Christian denominations and traditions. I see that they also have dealt with this problem. Our dilemma was not a particular Pentecostal dilemma. It was, in fact, a human dilemma. The Christian faith has been handed forward in imperfect earthen vessel through every movement of history, through every denomination, every organization and revival from the first century onward. In fact, I now see that this is part of God's design. It is part of the mystery of the church and part of the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus said, he that receives you receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. Receive or reject. The one who receives the imperfect Christian receives Christ. The one who rejects the imperfect Christian rejects Christ. And the one who rejects Christ rejects God the Father too. This important relationship between God and His Son and His children was not stated with qualifications. How an individual responds to this relationship leads to very different ends. It can lead to heaven or hell. To rebel and chafe against the imperfections of the church and of God's people is to fail to see the imperfections in your own mirror. The rebel suffers great loss over time. The unrepentant rebel suffers ultimate loss in eternity. In the Gospels, Jesus spoke a parable about the nature of his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. This seems to indicate that God is well aware that his kingdom will make an imperfect appearance in our fallen world. It will be hidden inside a church body or inside a believer's body for a period of time. Hidden means it will not reflect the full glory of his kingdom in its early stages. In time, however, it will go through a transformation till the whole is leavened. It is always a mistake to discard three measures of meal before the leaven has had time to finish its work. More importantly, 
it is vital to grasp by faith that the leaven of his kingdom is at work even when our eyes cannot see it. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. My father's pension allowed us to abandon his bicycle and ride by train together to and from Krempe. I delighted in this opportunity to be with him for his Sunday assignment. His church had shrunk in attendance as refugee families became settled elsewhere in Germany. By now, it had become possibly the smallest congregation in all of Germany, with perhaps 25 in attendance. I recall one prayer meeting in my father's church in Krempe, where we were tarrying all night. Admittedly, our prayers contained a tone of anxiety as if we were trying to twist God's arm to show up in response to our tenacity. I think it is so wonderful that God did not require that we always get him right, but rather that our hearts were right with him. That's what counted. The leaven of his kingdom works by grace and mercy. At some point in the prayer meeting, dear sister Elisa Köhler received a vision. She stood and said that she had seen clothes on an ironing board. Some of the people in the room laughed aloud when they heard this homey illustration. She went on to say that the clothes had come from the laundry. They were clean garments, she said, but full of wrinkles. These wrinkles were being ironed out. Her vision had been inspired by the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Sensing that all was not right in our little fellowship, her application of this vision was to say that we had been washed in the blood and had been made clean, but we still found ourselves full of wrinkles. In our times of prayer and fellowship together, we were in the process of having the wrinkles ironed out of our Christian lives. Now, I found this priceless, a picture from the Spirit that applied gently to our situation. We were clean but needed work. Who would have thought of such a thing? I have submitted myself to have more and more wrinkles ironed from my robes from that day until this. But the same illustration drew ridicule from some believers, like my older brothers. To them it was proof that the gifts of the Spirit were not valid. In their view, people simply used so-called visions and words of prophecy, knowledge and wisdom to present their own homespun opinions with God's name attached. God, they said, would not stoop to such an illustration of divine truth. My brothers, and in fact many others in Pentecostalism, reacted so strongly against imperfections in God's three measures of flour that they threw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater. I could not do that. My new birth 
and spirit baptism were absolutely real to me and beyond compare. I already knew that God had favored me to hear his voice. Reinhardt, the null boy, the zero, had been graced with his calling and the confirming vision of a boy with a loaf of divine bread had been given to seal it. This indicated to me that he hadn't chosen the brightest and best for his service, but he had chosen one who would value the right things. The baby was worth so much more to me than the bathwater that it became my birthright, though my father never gave up his hope of seeing Martin preach the gospel as the bonky firstborn. Martin rejected and came to despise his Pentecostal heritage. His calling skipped over the pecking order and landed on me. This is a recurring theme in scripture. We see it in the selection of Gideon and his army, and in the selection of Joseph over his brothers, and David over his brothers. Finally, the Apostle Paul distilled the idea in his great passage found in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Oh, how could it be said better than that? One particular manifestation of a spiritual gift in Krempe took me by surprise. I went to an evening prayer meeting with my father. It was held at a local residence. It was what we called a cottage prayer meeting, held in a home rather than in the meeting hall. All of the members began to share their prayer needs as usual. Some requested prayer for healing from illness and injuries, others for the salvation of unsaved loved ones, and others for God's provision for financial needs. Then we all began to pray at once, some in German, others in tongues. And yes, some with perhaps an element of faithless anxiety. As the evening progressed, the Holy Spirit came upon me in a way like never before or since. At first I wasn't sure it was the Holy Spirit at all. I thought I might be dying. It was like an electrical charge had penetrated my body and surged from my hands up to my shoulders. As I continued to pray, the Lord fastened my eyes on a woman across the room who had requested prayer for an illness. No one was praying with her. I instantly knew that this visitation of the Holy Spirit was not for me, but for her. No one had to tell me that if I laid my hands on her, she would be healed. That is the kind of knowledge one automatically knows under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, my problem was in the natural. 
my father would not allow me to lay hands on that woman. He saw me as the son who always had a mind of his own. This kind of action would be presumptuous, one step short of rebellion in his mind. I knew that. If I stepped out of line and did what the Holy Spirit seemed to be telling to me, I run the risk of incurring my father's wrath, which could be greater and of more consequence than my mother's. So a debate raged in my mind, but not for long. I remembered how I had moved the ship in the Glückstadt harbor. On this night the Holy Spirit was giving me orders, and my job was to obey, simply obey, leaving the outcome to God. But I was still afraid of my father. I ducked behind furniture and began to work my way around the room on my hands and knees. With each movement of my arms, the supercharge running through my hands made me buck and tremble like a man with palsy. As I reached the place behind the woman, I rose up and placed both hands on her shoulders. She screamed and was jettisoned from the chair to the floor. Peeking over the back of her chair, my eyes met the eyes of my father. Reinhardt, what did you do to her? Father, the Holy Spirit told me to lay my hands on her. Before he could recover from his surprise, she leaped from the floor. Brother Bonky, Reinhardt laid hands on me, and it was like a bolt of electricity shot through me from top to bottom. I am healed. I am healed. Praise God, I am healed. She leaped and praised God, dancing around the room with joy. I looked now at my father and rose from my knees. I could see that there would be no punishment for what I had done. But he seemed stunned and somewhat undone. Now that I am older, I think perhaps he wondered why the Holy Spirit would overlook the faithful pastor of the Pentecostal church in Krempe and move with a dramatic spiritual gift through the least of his children. Indeed, I think the Apostle Paul might have given him the best answer. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. The world's rejects are God's elects. During these growing up years, I had a vision of Africa. It happened during another of those prayer meetings. I don't remember if in Krempe or Glückstadt. It bore a peculiar mark of authenticity to prove it was not from my own imagination. In the vision I saw a map. I recognized it was the continent of Africa. In the vision the name of the city of Johannesburg was illuminated as if God was indicating that my assignment to Africa would be there. Perhaps this was where I would break the bread of life and see it multiply, as seen in the vision by Grandma Bouchos. In my mind, this map vision of Johannesburg puzzled me because earlier I had seen an actual map of Africa and from memory had placed Johannesburg at another location. I kept the vision to myself 
and puzzled over it as I went home that night. The next day, in school, I went to the library and looked up the Atlas of the World. Finding South Africa, I located the city of Johannesburg. It was not where my memory had recalled it. In fact, it was where the vision had shown it to me. God's spirit is more than accurate. His directions come from the very mind of omniscience, and I should not be surprised to learn that God knows his geography better than I. After all, he was the one who spoke and divided the continents from the seas. So my heart became set not only on Africa, but specifically on Johannesburg, South Africa. My brothers were growing worldlier by the day. As I entered my teens, they were far ahead of me in every way. They had begun to notice girls and were saying things about them out of earshot from mother and father. Things that made me blush, though I confess I did not understand half of it. Seeing my awkwardness, they enjoyed ridiculing me, calling me the missionary boy, the holy boy, and naive. I didn't even know what the word naive meant. I guess they were right. But it was more than naivety. I had the spirit of Christ in me that informed me of the way I ought to think about girls and women. They were automatically precious to me because they were precious to God. I took offense at disrespectful language and images. Eve had been created especially for Adam. I had read in Genesis that in the Garden of Eden they had been naked and unashamed. This was God's idea, not some lewd boy's description. I wondered what the full difference was. One day, as I walked along the Glückstadt waterfront past City Hall, I looked up and noticed the flag of our city flying below the West German flag. The symbol for our city was Lady Luck, and she was naked. Why had I never noticed before? As the flag undulated slowly in the breeze, I also noticed that the banner bearing her title had been conveniently painted across her midsection. Still, her breasts were bare and open for all to see. I felt a stirring in myself that made me uncomfortable. I suddenly worried about what my mother had meant when she had spoken of women who would flaunt their bodies and arouse sinful passions in men. Is that what I was feeling? Was it sinful passion? Something had to be done about this right away. I would go to my dad. He was a man of God. Surely he understood these things. God would not create this kind of beauty and this kind of desire and not have a wonderful plan to deal with it. So I took up the conversation with him as we rode the train toward the prayer meeting in Krempe. Father, have you noticed the city flag of Glückstadt? I never let my eyes go there. And neither should you. It's disgusting. This confused me a bit. I wouldn't have called it disgusting. Wrong? Yes, but not disgusting. What is the right way? A man and a woman are naked, Father. Like when they were in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, it says they were naked and unashamed. 
Reinhardt, we are on our way to church. You should be thinking of the things of God. We are his creatures. I'm thinking that one day I will marry someone, and I know that marriage is not sinful. You and mother are married. You have children. I know that it is not something sinful. I want to know how that works. How do a man and a woman who love God get married and have children and not be sinful? Well, marriage is the only way, otherwise it is something that will send you to hell. So his answer was, marriage, period. This was obviously right, but it seemed like such an incomplete answer to my question. We traveled in silence for a time, then began to talk again. He talked of several seekers in the congregation he thought were close to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of them had stopped smoking. The other had given up a nightcap of peppermint schnapps. A woman had stopped braiding her hair in accordance with the instructions in the book of First Timothy. Another brother had confessed that he had slipped and cursed during the week. He felt that if he fasted and prayed, he would be ready at the next invitation to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and on and on. I needed my father to step up to his role. Sexuality was such a big discovery for me, and I was lost in the woods. I didn't want to learn any more details from my brothers, or friends at school, or from the city flag, or from another circus poster with scantily clad trapeze artists flying through the air. But he had changed the subject, and without saying so, had forbidden me to bring it up again. That day, my father stepped down from his high position in my eyes. To find my answers, I would seek my father in heaven for guidance. I would look for clues in the Bible and wherever else I could find them. And I would never do this to my own son when I became a father. In the meantime, nearing the age of 14, I would remain naive for a while longer. My father approached me not long afterwards saying, Reinhard, if you want to become a missionary to Africa, you must learn a trade. Our Pentecostal denomination requires it. In poor countries, most of our missionaries have to support themselves with the local profession. The support of church offerings is seldom enough. I have found a carpentry school here in Krempe. Carpentry is a basic trade throughout the world. Wherever you go, you can find work. I want you to attend this apprenticeship and begin the training that will support your calling. I did not feel good about this idea, but I was an obedient son and I went to the school. The master carpenter was a very rough man. He screamed at me for the smallest mistake and I made many. So much about carpentry simply escaped my understanding. It was almost as bad as trying to learn English. I was totally intimidated. Week after week I attended the workshop and the master tormented me with his angry outbursts. Finally one day he just chased me off screaming, You will never be a carpenter. Get out. Get out. I remember that it was an eight-kilometer ride to my home on my bicycle. All the way home I cried, thinking 
I cannot be a missionary because I'm not suited to be a carpenter. There could be no greater defeat for me. At home, I told my dad what had happened. He felt very sorry for me. He returned to the carpenter school and spoke with the headmaster. He explained to him that I had to find a trade that I could practice as a missionary one day. Please, try Reinhardt one more time. He did. After a few weeks, he came to me again. He was not shouting anymore. In sympathy, he said, Reinhardt, you had better look for another trait to support your African ministry. You will never be a carpenter. A heavy burden lifted from my shoulders. I understood he was right. I could now tell my father that I had simply tried the wrong trade. Something else would be the right trade for me. I rode my bicycle home, this time with joy in my heart. I'm free. I don't have to be a carpenter, I thought. Father accepted this verdict, realizing that I had been obedient. I had tried and had given it my best. I was even willing to try a second time. Now we could move on. I was now 15, and as most boys my age, I found an internship in Glückstadt. In this case, it was a job that fit my abilities. It was at the local Edeka, wholesale and export, with a goal that I would eventually become a professional merchant. It involved three days of the week in internship and two days in vocational school. At the end of each month, my boss would count into my hand the pay I had earned. I felt so good. I had accomplished something and I had earned this money. At the end of each week, I took my money home and put it into a jar that I kept in my bedroom. It began to build in volume, 10, 20, 50 Dutch marks and more. I watched it grow and began to dream of ways to spend it. The second Sunday in May in 1955, our church prepared to celebrate Mother's Day. We were instructed as sons and daughters to find some way to honor our godly mothers. At home, I decided I would give mother a very nice card from the bookstore. I went to remove money from my growing jar of money. Suddenly, the vow I had made at the age of nine returned to me. Counting the money I found, I had accumulated somewhat more than 100 marks. I knew what I must do. I went to the store and bought a fine card and signed it. Inside, I tucked 100 Deutschmarks in cash. When mother opened it, she could not believe her eyes. Reinhardt, she gasped. Why did you do this? It's so much money. No, mother, it is not so much. Remember when I stole money from your purse to buy chocolate? Her jaws dropped. She replied slowly, yes. I had a debt to pay. I vowed that one day I will give my mom 100 Deutschmarks. Now I have done it. From the look on her face, I knew that I had completely dumbfounded her. Never in a million years had she expected it, but I was so happy that I had not forgotten. I was even more happy that I had remembered 
on Mother's Day. How should I properly describe the operation of the gifts of the Spirit during those Pentecostal prayer meetings in Germany? They were fantastic. Indeed, things took place there that I still cannot classify. At times we experienced common visions. One, two or three people would report seeing the same scenes like on a movie screen. The others would interpret its meaning. This kind of thing does not happen in all times and places, but it happened then and there. One day when I was 16, I attended an all-night prayer meeting in Kempe. I was lost in prayer for hours when I received a word from the Lord. This idea entered my consciousness from the realms of above. It sliced through my mind and sent all other thoughts out of my head. You and Manfred Fischer are to go to preach in Tostate. Now I knew where Tostate was. It lay 50 miles beyond Hamburg and across the Elbe River. We had enjoyed fellowship with another Pentecostal congregation from there when coming together at special joint meetings. But the idea of Manfred and I preaching there seemed impossible. My own father did not invite me to preach in his church. How could I expect a pastor from a distant town to allow a 16-year-old or even Manfred, who was 17, preach from his pulpit? The idea was preposterous. But as I prayed, a scripture came to mind in connection to the original outpouring of Pentecost. The apostle Peter had stood in Jerusalem and explained the manifestation of the Spirit to the curious crowd. He had quoted from the prophet Joel. Part of that quotation came back to me now. I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I knew that the word prophecy was our word for preach. Scripture seemed to back up the idea that under the influence of the Spirit one did not need the maturity of years or the education of a seminary to be enabled to preach. Still, I felt reluctant. How could I presume to do this thing? I felt a tap on my shoulder. Raising my head from prayer, I looked into the eyes of Manfred Fischer. Reinhardt, he said, the Spirit of God has spoken to me. We are to go to Tostate to preach. I felt the hair rise on the back of my neck. More than that, I felt faith leap up in my heart. I was totally energized by the voice of the Spirit speaking to both of us about the same thing. How could we do this? We decided that we would invite others and go as a group of young people from our church to the church in Tostate. If the pastor there would have us, we would come and conduct a service for him, sons and daughters prophesying. After putting the idea before my father and receiving his approval to pursue it, we put our heads together and wrote a letter to the pastor in Tostit. His name was Rudolf Winter. We told him how the Spirit had spoken to us during a prayer meeting. 
We also quoted the scripture from the day of Pentecost where Peter had spoken to the crowd, If you agree that this is something from the Lord, then we would be pleased to respond to your invitation, we wrote. A few days later, an invitation arrived in the mail from Pastor Rudolf Winter. Manfred and I were ecstatic. I showed the invitation to my father and he gave the approval for these dates. Then we were filled with dread. What would we say? I had never preached from a pulpit before. Bolstered by a group of three other young men who accompanied us, we took the train from Glückstadt to Tostedt. When we arrived, the pastor introduced us to his congregation by saying, The Holy Spirit sent them. I had my guitar, and we led singing and praise, and then began to offer exhortations as the Spirit gave us utterance. One after another, the young people spoke. The crowd received us well. Then I took my Bible to preach. This was not an evangelistic sermon. I was not yet an evangelist, though I had led one man to Christ while preaching on the street. This was something else that I spoke to the believers in such a way that I still do not understand. It was as if the Holy Spirit began to fall on that crowd like a gentle rain. They began weeping all across the room. There was such sweetness in the atmosphere that you could almost smell it like the perfume of lilac blossoms. We worshipped and took a long bath in the refreshing flow of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit manifested and the service was out of my hands. When we returned home, Pastor Winter told my father what had happened. He especially noted the response of the congregation when I had spoken. Father listened and took it all in, but we were not asked to repeat our ministry in his pulpit. It would be another three years before he opened his pulpit to me. In the meantime, he continued to say, Martin shall be my successor, though his voice had lost its normal tone of absolute certainty. Martin had begun his higher education in a secular university. Just recently I was preaching in Germany. After the sermon an old Pentecostal saint approached me. She was still clothed and groomed in the way of the old-time holiness believers. Her hair was long and straight and fixed in a bun. Her clothes were drab and not a sign of a ring or a jewel could be seen on her anywhere. Not even a brooch. With eyes shining, she took my hand. Do you remember when you were just a boy and you came to Tostate and preached? Yes, of course, I do. I was there. She took my hand in both of hers and tears welled up in her eyes. It is something I shall never forget. The tremble of her voice and the tone of it suggested to me that the memory had somewhat different meanings for the two of us. For me, Tostate had been a confirmation that I was moving in the right direction as a young man. It showed me that obeying the voice of the Spirit would produce remarkable and unexpected results. 
and I should continue to walk in faith and obedience. For her, the experience had become nostalgic, something that took her back with longing to a time that was no more. I sensed that she felt something had been lost in Pentecost since then. For me, nothing could be further from the truth. So much had been gained. Tostate was merely a launching pad, a beginning, not an end in itself. I have not been able to recall the disagreement to this day. It was one of those issues that make no real impact, has no lasting value. Yet, the kind that drives people apart and leaves them raw and angry. It was one of the little foxes that spoiled the vines, Solomon called them. The thing I remembered most was that I was right about the issue and my father would not accept new information that would help him to see my point of view. That was the general character of this disagreement. We were riding the train together to a prayer meeting in Kempe when it happened. As we discussed it, my father reacted far more forcefully than the issue required. He concluded by berating me severely and summarily imposing his will over mine. I suppose the roots of the conflict were in the impression that I was a boy with a mind of my own and I had the temerity to express myself. That is just a guess at this point in time, and my father is not here to clarify it. At the time, I knew his action was unfair, and it hurt me deeply. I could do nothing but submit to his authority and fall silent. We rode the last mile to Kempe in that stony kind of silence that says more than the argument itself. Out of the smoldering atmosphere of our train ride, we walked into the meeting room. There we put on our smiles, greeted everyone, and turned our minds toward worship. I played my guitar and led singing as usual. Then we received the list of prayer requests from those assembled. Finally, we began to pray. As the saints entered their prayer zone, Sister Elisa Köhler spoke up. I see a vision, she said, her voice rising with a quiver of anguish above the others. I see a shepherd with his sheep on a meadow. But there's something wrong with the shepherd. He has the shepherd's crook upside down in his hand. The crooked end is on the ground instead of upright. The crook, which is meant to protect the sheep, has injured one of the lambs. A deep and thoughtful silence followed. Then I heard my father sob across the room. I looked up and saw that his head was in his hands. From where he sat, he cried out, Forgive me, Reinhard. I'm sorry, son. Please forgive me. I went to him and we embraced. Our tears flowed freely. Everyone saw it. Together in Krempe, by the gifts of the Spirit, God was ironing wrinkles from our robes. Chapter 12 
father invited a Pentecostal elder statesman from England to preach in Krempe. His name was Reverend Morris, and father greatly respected him. When Morris came, he was very impressed with the spiritual fervor he found among our Pentecostal youth in the greater Hamburg area. He proposed to organize a friendship bus tour to England. He would arrange for 50 German Pentecostal youth to travel there. We would visit two churches, Peniel Chapel in North Kensington and People's Church in Liverpool. Both of these churches were vibrant fellowships with strong evangelistic outreaches. Morris wanted us to take our musical instruments and sing and preach in German. None of us spoke English, so he would travel with us and be our interpreter. He was excited to share the spirit-led ministry of German youth with English youth. He felt such a gesture would be good for both parties. Fourteen years after these two nations had stopped bombing each other in the war, the time was right. Father agreed. This opportunity fired my imagination. I had been reading for years about John Wesley's revival and later the Welsh revival. These movements of God had more than filled the churches in England. They had changed the entire culture. As a result, it seemed to me that the British Isles had a better spiritual heritage than our homeland, even though we were the birthplace of Protestantism. Lutheranism seemed dark and oppressive to me. German Pentecostalism seemed to labor under the inferiority complex of the Berlin Declaration. I was eager to visit my brothers and sisters in England. After I spoke at People's Church in Liverpool, the pastor there, Reverend Richard Case, took me aside. I was nervous, hoping I had not said something in German that had hit the wrong key. Using Reverend Morris as an interpreter, he asked me about my plans for the future. I told him that I had been called to Africa. Reinhardt, he said, you should consider enrolling in a Bible college that suits your calling not just any Bible college. You need a school with an evangelistic and missionary heart. What Bible college opportunities do you have in Germany? There is a German Pentecostal school, I said. I don't know about that school, but I do know a first-rate missionary school. It is the Bible college in Swansea, Wales. Reverend Morris agreed. I talk to your father when we get back, he said. I think you should consider the school in Wales. My heart nearly skipped a beat. I knew this was the school founded by Rhys Howells. He had been a coal miner in 1909 when the Welsh revival exploded. Totally transformed, he had gone in the fervor of that revival to southern Africa as a missionary. After seeing great results, he returned to start the Bible College of Wales as an act of tremendous faith. There were absolutely no funds. He prayed in every pound and over the decades had sent hundreds of missionaries around the world. His faith was celebrated like that of George Muller, his predecessor in the faith from nearby Bristol. 
I had read about Müller too. I had even more in common with this man. He had been a German from Prussia and a wild sinner even as a Lutheran seminarian. After he met the Lord, he became famous throughout the world as a man of great faith. He moved permanently to England and learned to speak English. Eventually, he preached in crusades around the world, including a tour from one end of America to the other during the days of the Holiness Revival. Starting in Bristol with only pocket change, he and his wife had prayed in secret and had seen the Lord provide millions of pounds miraculously, providing for the great orphanages they built there that housed and fed more than 2,000. It was a story that had resonated strongly with me because of our common heritage. It had been part of my longing to follow his path. Now it seemed that it might be possible by attending school in Wales, not in Germany. A dozen years after Müller's death, Rhys Howells had emerged from the Welsh revival. The school he built was not primarily about academic achievement. It was a two-year school of practical ministry. It emphasized relationship with God over theology, prayer over good works, and faith above all. Howells had died in 1950 and his son Samuel had taken over. Samuel faithfully followed his father's ways. Everything about the school seemed to shout my name. I immediately sensed this was God's leading. Upon my return, my parents were not pleased with this news. They wanted me to attend our German Bible school, but I had felt a strong connection to the descriptions of the school in Wales. It was a direction I felt compelled to go in. I immediately filled out an application and sent it. In the meantime, God did not wait for Bible college. My life of ministry began on May 1st, 1959. It was a Friday, and I was in prayer because I had received an invitation to preach for the summer in Berlin. My father had not allowed me to preach in his pulpit, but this invitation came from one of my former Sunday school teachers, Marion Franz. She and her husband, Eduard, had been led by the Spirit to work with East German refugees in Berlin. The Berlin Wall had not yet been constructed and two million fellow Germans had fled the Soviet lifestyle, seeking a better life in the West. Their conditions were horrible. When Edward and Marion described their work with the Berlin refugee mission, all of the oppression of my years in the Danish prison camp came flooding back to me. These memories were transformed into a godly compassion for these lost refugees. I went before the Lord in prayer, and God spoke clearly to me, calling me then and there to full-time service. I was 19 years of age. To this day, I mark this date as year one in my life of ministry. I immediately began to raise support for the mission which would last for the summer months. But for some reason, my efforts seemed to stumble. The funds necessary for me to make this trip were simply not coming together. I presented myself to various Pentecostal groups in the region, requesting their help. 
The help I received was meager. It seemed I could more readily raise train fare to preach in trust state than to arouse compassion for lost refugees in West Berlin. This reality began to settle upon me in a way that tested my faith. The way I responded to this difficulty would lay down a pattern that I would follow again and again, decades later, raising funds to preach the gospel in Africa. The world found it easy to overlook refugees and Africans, dismissing them as inconsequential to the best efforts of world evangelism. When first dealing with this in connection to my summer ministry in Berlin, I was tempted to depend on resources other than those supplied by the Holy Spirit. That temptation nearly proved disastrous. In a neighboring village, a young Swedish pastor had established a Pentecostal work. I will not use his name here for reasons that will become clear. While presenting my mission to his congregation, he took me aside. Reinhardt, he said, you need to learn how to raise funds. You don't really seem to know how it's done. I can teach you. After the service, he took me for a ride in his brand new Volvo 544 sedan. I was more than impressed. Here was a minister of the gospel who lived in true abundance. I was completely intimidated. My father had never been able to own even a primitive car. This was a fiery red speedster with sleek lines and a high-performance engine. It was something completely unheard of in Pentecostal ministry. When we got inside, he switched on the Stromberg Carlson AM radio and dialed in a powerful station from Hamburg. The fine upholstered interior of the car was suddenly filled with the pulsing sound of Elvis Presley singing blue, blue, blue suede shoes. He was all the rage in Germany. Starting the four-cylinder engine, the minister revved it several times before roaring off down the street, shifting the four on the floor, manual transmission, like a road race veteran, he quickly covered the winding back roads to Glückstadt. My body was used to traveling at the speed of a bicycle or of a diesel-powered commuter train. This trip sent me into sensory overload. When we arrived at my house, I was literally trembling. Before dropping me off, he made a stunning proposition. Reinhardt, I'm going to make a fundraising tour through Sweden in a few weeks. I will be raising money to fund a ministry at an orphanage. Why don't you come with me? You can play your guitar and sing, and I will teach you the secrets of fundraising. We will be gone for six weeks. This seemed like a gift from God. I was swept completely off my feet. Thank you so much, I replied. I really need to learn, and I would really like to do this. I will give you a tentative yes, but I need to talk to my father. I will also pray about it. I must hear from God before I do anything like this. Fine, he said. I will need your answer in one week so we can make plans. I will give you my answer. Mother and father were at the window watching as I entered the house. 
Their jaws dropped in amazement. I told them of the proposition and asked what they thought about it. It seems like a wonderful opportunity, Mother said. We will all pray with you about it. But I have never seen a preacher driving a car like that, my father said with a disapproving frown. I am not sure what to think about it. If he is raising money for orphans, how much of it is going to make payments on that automobile? I would not judge him at first sight, I said. I know that he is helping a lot of orphans, as well as pastoring a thriving congregation. What about Berlin? Dad asked. I thought God had called you to minister in Berlin to the refugees. He has, and I will. Maybe I will be better equipped to do it after I have learned how to raise funds. I would like to go to Sweden first, then to Berlin. As I prayed that night, I felt no peace. This indicated to my heart that God was saying no. I didn't understand why. In prayer, I continued to argue in favor of the trip. My discouragement with sluggish fundraising was driving the desire of my heart. A few days later, my brother Peter came home from the university. He was determined to become a medical doctor. By this time, all of my older brothers had graduated from high school and were pursuing higher education. Martin had his sights set on a doctorate in the natural sciences. Gerhard was a mathematics whiz and was following the path towards an accounting degree. Jürgen had entered the military. Peter and I took a walk through Glückstadt together, visiting old horns. I hear that you are going to be a preacher. Yes, God has called me to full-time service. None of us, Martin, Gerhard, Jürgen, me, none of us understand you, Reinhard. Why would you choose something like our father has chosen? What future is there in it? Look at his church. It is the smallest in all of Germany. And the Pentecostals are embarrassing. Why would you choose to follow dad in his profession? It is not a profession. It is a calling. The greatest thing in the world is to serve God. He snorted in derision. Reinhard, where is God? Do you see him anywhere? Look around you. Did he build these buildings? Did he invent the railroad? Did he win the war? Look at the world. It is changing. Exciting things are happening in science and education, and you could make yourself a part of it. Be a doctor, a lawyer, a musician, a politician, or a professor. But something that counts. Anything but a preacher. You've got to learn that God has no real leverage in this world, little brother. Don't you see that? I became angry. God has more than leverage. He is the very lever itself. Nothing that exists in this world exists without him. You do not take one breath without his permission. I'm choosing to serve the very highest calling. I breathe my own air. God gets nothing done. Why doesn't God stop the bad things if he is so powerful? He has no leverage. Look at mom and dad. Without dad's pension from the government, his ministry would fall apart. 
Do you think for one moment he could have given us a roof over our heads with what he gets from Krempe? Huh? What a joke. Show me God's leverage. Where is it? I'll show you. I just met the Pentecostal preacher who drives a Volvo 544. I said, driving the name of the car home like a spike. He stopped in his trucks. No. Yes, he gave me a ride in it. He wants me to go to Sweden with him a few weeks from now. How's that for leverage? You are lying. I am not lying. I spoke in this church, and he is going to teach me about fundraising. I will show you that God has leverage in this world. All preachers don't have to be poor like Father. He shook his head and began to walk again. I never heard of a preacher driving a 544. That's just the beginning, I promised. We had reached the waterfront, and to my surprise, I saw that another large tanker ship moored at Town Pier. It gave me an inspiration. Come with me, I said. I will show you something. We walked onto the pier and up to the huge side of the ship tied to the pilings. I put my hand on it and pushed with all my might. Nothing happened. It did not move one inch. It was as if I didn't exist. I felt a bit taken aback. Looking down, I began to understand why. The tide was out. The harbor was shallow, and the full weight of the tanker had responded to the pull of gravity. It was now settled in the mud. When I was twelve years old, I came here when the tide was in. I explained, I put my hand on the side of a ship and I got move the whole thing because it was lifted by the water. Now the tide is out. I can do nothing. God is like the tide, Peter. With him, nothing is impossible. He has leverage. Peter smiled a superior smile and shook his head. I feel sorry for you, Reinhardt. This is the time of your life when you should choose a career wisely. You will never have these days of your youth back again once they are gone. Put your energy into something real, not something you simply wish to be true. He made me feel sad. I felt like our family was coming apart at the seams. Mother and father would not tolerate this kind of talk coming from him, nor would he say it in front of them. He spouted such nonsense behind their backs. After seeing the hand of God in our family, how could he not embrace the Lord above all? We made our way home again. As the day for the decision about the trip to Sweden approached, I grew agitated. No matter how I prayed, I could not feel peace about it. The agitation came from how much I wanted to go and could not find a reason not to except for my lack of peace. It was as close to arguing with God as I had ever come. I accompanied Dad to Krempe again. On the way he suggested that I seek the help of Sister Elise Köhler in making this decision. She was known as a woman of prayer and a woman who received gifts of the Spirit. 
she also knew nothing about the decision facing me. I will do it, I said. I found her as soon as we entered the building and asked her to go with me into a smaller prayer room adjacent to the meeting hall. She agreed to do that. Sister Köhler, I said, I have a problem. I don't know what to do. I've come to pray with you about it. Maybe the Lord will show you what I must do. Certainly, she replied. I could feel her eagerness to perform this act of support and kindness. She took my hand and we knelt together immediately. We had been praying for perhaps 10 or 15 minutes when suddenly she spoke up. I see a vision. I see a fast car going along a straight road, she said. Suddenly I see an angel of the Lord step into the middle of the road and the car stops. That's it. She looked up at me. I do not know what the vision means. I smiled at her and replied, but I have the interpretation of this vision, and I felt the warmth of the peace of God that passes understanding flood my heart. The peace that did not come from her vision, it came from submitting my own ambitious desires to the voice of the Spirit. God had already spoken in my heart. I had wanted a different answer. Her vision was a marvelous and gentle confirmation of his will for me. I needed no other prompting. I went home and wrote a quick letter to that Swedish pastor. I am not coming with you to Sweden, I wrote. I am going to Berlin to minister for the summer. He was very angry with me. Only a few years later, I found that the decision was the right one, since there were some stories around this minister that could have taken me off the very road I was going. The voice of the Spirit had disapproved from the very start. Oh, how I needed to learn to obey and not to question him. I managed to raise the necessary support for my Berlin summer mission on my own. This was another lesson in itself. The slow start to fundraising did not demand a new strategy after all. It only required faithfulness to the call. Soon I had packed my bags and had purchased a train ticket. Mother accompanied me to the station. Father had business at the church. This was for the first time I could be gone so long from home. Mother fretted and worried over little details of my packing, asking me again and again if I had packed my comb and toothbrush and extra underwear. I reassured her that all was well and I was ready to leave. We arrived on the Krempe-Holstein train platform early. Suddenly we were alone with nothing to occupy our time. Our ability to carry on a conversation was polite at best. Usually we had related to one another with Martin, Gerhard, Jürgen, Peter and Felicitas in the mix. Now the boys had gone to various colleges. Felicitas had gone to piano lessons. The silence between us grew awkward. After ten minutes, at last, we saw the puff of the steam engine rounding the corner down the long, shimmering track. My heart raced. 
Long before the train arrived, I picked up my luggage and stood with both hands full, eager to board. The smoke from the stuck seemed like the smoke of my altar of service to the Lord. My destiny was approaching, 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 ever nearer. My life of ministry was about to begin. I wanted to run to meet it. As the train pulled to a stop, releasing a cloud of steam across the platform, I suddenly became aware of another sound, a sound of anguish. Turning to my left, I saw my mother doubled over in pain. She was sobbing uncontrollably. In shock, I dropped my luggage and ran to her, taking her in my arm. What's wrong, Mama? What's wrong? She could not speak. She could only shake her head and sob into her handkerchief even more. I'd never seen such pain. At first, I assumed that she had become sick with some life-threatening illness. But as she carried on, I realized that she was not in physical pain, but emotional pain. It slowly dawned on me that she was mourning my leaving. But her emotions made no sense. I thought she would be glad to see me go. I had been the boy she wished had been a girl. All those years... I had felt myself a burden to her. I had been the naughty one that she might as well give a good hiding to at first sight. The boy who stole money for chocolate and could not be trusted. The one who lusted after the sinful circus. How was she now in such anguish to see me go to Berlin for the summer? I could hardly take it in. I embraced her again and again, don't cry, Mama, the conductor called out, all aboard. My train was preparing to leave, and she still sobbed. Not one word of explanation had come from her lips. I began to struggle with the feeling that I should not leave her. If I stayed, her emotional turmoil would surely end. How could I go and willingly cause such suffering for my dear own mother? The conductor swung himself from the platform onto the doorstep of the passenger car. I wondered if some terrible thing would happen to me if I went through with my plans. Would I die in Berlin? No, no, these were not my plans. God had called me to Berlin. I had been invited. Suffering refugees were in need of the gospel. Jesus said, He that loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Perhaps this was the very kind of dilemma he had anticipated for his servants. The engine chucked once and a wrenching shudder ran through the length of the train. It chucked again and began to move, and I knew that my destiny lay in the direction of Berlin. Kissing her once more on the cheek, I grabbed my two suitcases and leaped past the conductor into the doorway of the moving train. My choice was clear. I followed the Lord. I turned and waved, but Mother could not wave back. 
she was still weeping uncontrollably into her handkerchief. As the chugging engine gained speed and increased the distance between us, I felt a deep root being ripped slowly from my chest. The pain of it was excruciating and wonderful at the same time. This was the way a boy became a man. He left his mother and followed God. Still, as the train platform faded in the distance, I felt such sadness. I did not understand my mother's outburst. Only years later, when I had children of my own, I gained that perspective. The grief that she had felt on the platform that day was the grief of revelation and regret. The revelation was that I had been the child she had overlooked. She had seen me through attitudes and assumptions and had never truly stopped to see me for who I was until that train came into view. Then it was too late. Suddenly her eyes were opened and she knew how much she loved me. She had her revelation just as I was leaving the nest. I smile now. All was forgiven. She had been God's good gift to me and she had given me so much more than she knew. Nothing would ever diminish that fact. In time, God worked it all for good of our relationship. I served the Berlin mission in every way possible for the next three months. They had me involved in feeding, clothing, helping obtain government papers and citizenship for the refugees. I was able to preach the gospel there several times each day. A few received the Lord as Savior as a result. It was a difficult environment. Furthermore, as I continued there, mother and father telephoned me with the bad news. The reply from the Bible College in Wales had arrived. I had been rejected. The reason was the school instructed only in English. I spoke only German. I was devastated. Do you remember how you resisted learning English? Mother reminded me. I heard that familiar scolding edge in her voice. You always said, why do I have to learn this subject? Now it has stopped you from being able to go to Wales. Even in this conversation, I could hear her old attitudes towards me. She could not help herself. This cannot stop me, I said. This will not stop me. I know God wants me to go to that school. I know it. Why to that school, my father said. What's wrong with our Pentecostal school? Maybe now you will listen to me. Father, I will always listen to you. I will not always agree with you. I will learn English. I'm not the little boy who could not do his English homework. I have grown. My mind has grown. And I know God will enable me to learn fast. But it is too late. They have rejected you, son. You need to face it and go on. I did not reply for a long time. I felt hot tears well up in my eyes. I just don't understand it. I was sure 
This was God's direction for me. I hung up the telephone. Nothing could be done, so I continued in the mission and prayed for God to intervene. He intervened so beautifully. Reverend Morris returned to Kempe to follow up on our youth trip to England. My parents informed him of my Bible school rejection. Why? Because he does not speak English. No, no, cried Morris. That is no obstacle, not for Reinhardt. Let me write a letter to Sam Howells. He knows me well. I have interpreted for Reinhardt, and I know that he is not far from grasping the language. He is bright. He can do it. My parents could hardly say no. Morris wrote the letter and sent it. When I arrived home from Berlin, Mom and Dad presented me with a letter from the Bible school in Wales. The school had reversed its decision and opened the doors for me to come. After Morris's intervention, they had agreed to tutor me in English even as I undertook my two years of studies. I was ecstatic. I ran around the room with that letter in my hands, praising God for his goodness. My parents' objections were overwhelmed. Nothing could hold me back. I hugged them both. My mother was once again sobbing. They both realized that my life was taking a completely new direction, not one of their choosing, but certainly one that God was blessing. As the time of my departure neared, I could see a change in my father. He was beginning to accept that Martin would never be his successor. Martin was studying for a career in science. Hermann had invested so much of his hope in his eldest son, but it would be his youngest who took up the torch of ministry. He also realized he had done very little to prepare me in his stead. In an awkward sort of gesture, he invited me at last to speak to his little church in Krempe. It was my last Sunday in Germany before leaving for Wales. I stood and opened my Bible. As I began to speak, it was a repeat of Tostet. The people were deeply touched and responded with tears and a time of worship. As I shook the hands of all 25 or so members at the door, my father stood beside me. He heard them say to me again and again, Reinhard, you are called of God. You are truly called. Afterward, as my father and I rode the train toward home, he asked, Reinhard, where did you get that sermon? From the Bible, Father. But you've never been to Bible school. Where did you get those ideas? When I read the Bible, Father, things pop out of the page at me. He wrote some time in silence. I've read those same passages and I've never seen those things that you spoke of today. At home, I prepared to catch my train to England. One day, I noticed a large leather-bound volume on a bookshelf. It was a genealogy Martin had compiled of the Bonke family history. It represented a great deal of research. Only someone with my brother's intellect and tenacity would have compiled it. To me, it seemed impressive in a dark sort of way, and as I browsed through it, 
It disturbed me. I sensed I was part of the Bonky family history and breaking away from it at the same time. Two opposite clans were reaching out to define me, the historic family and the spiritual family. Like Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees, I was departing Germany, but I could not completely shake its dust from my feet. Father, I said, as I look at our family heritage, I am amazed that any of us serve the Lord today. Who in our family serves the Lord besides you? Very few, Father said, as he sat down opposite me. How did God break into the Bonky family? How did he do it? This was the defining question I wrote about in chapter 2. For the first time I heard the story of Louis Graf coming to Tons, of Grandfather August's healing and conversion. And it was the first time I heard the story of Father's tuberculosis, his healing and his subsequent surrender to God. In these stories, as I prepared to leave for another nation and another culture that I admired, I began to gain a sense of my roots, both natural and spiritual. God's call on my life could not be totally separated from my East Prussian origin. This had been part of his mysterious design. Whatever he chose to do with me in life would grow out of this dark soil. It would be something similar to Isaiah's words concerning the coming of the Messiah. He would come forth as a root out of a dry ground. My life would follow an unlikely path, but I had already learned that God seemed to specialize in such triumphs. As I looked at the genealogy and the impressive list of godless bonky heroes, I saw my brilliant older brothers choosing to follow in those pagan footsteps rather than fathers. The words of Paul returned to me, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Chapter 13 I travelled by train from Germany to Calais, France. Taking a ferry, I crossed the English Channel at its narrowest point to Dover. From there I caught a train to London, switching to a final connection that took me across the island to Wales. Greeted at the train station by a fellow student, I was escorted to Swansea by bus. Near the coast, we entered a walled compound through a small green door that the students affectionately called the narrow gate. Inside were a group of houses, student dormitories, classrooms and lovely gardens on a slope that overlooked the sea. Always in that compound, I can remember the chatter of songbirds and the cooing of homing pigeons housed in the keeper's hutch. To me, this lovely place promised to become a spiritual garden of Eden where I would feast on biblical and practical lessons pertaining to my calling. I was brimming with excitement for what God had in store for me here. Soon, however, the narrow gate took on an added meaning. I was surprised to learn that there were only two Pentecostal students in the entire student body. 
This I learned from my roommate, Bryn Jones. Shortly after being introduced to him, he informed me that he was the other Pentecostal student at Swansea. He instructed me that we were not to speak in tongues. It was forbidden. I looked at Bryn with amazement, but Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Forbid not to speak with tongues. How can a Bible school take a position that is unbiblical? You should not press that issue here, Reinhardt. Look at it this way. They know we are Pentecostal. That's why they have housed us together. They obviously want us here. Let's just abide by the rules and get all the Lord has for us. Of course, you are right. At least they have not signed a document like the Berlin Declaration saying we are of the devil. That is truly something to be thankful for. Still, to me this was a shock. I had not imagined that people of such vibrant faith might not speak in tongues. Pentecostals were the only Christians in Germany I knew who had any faith at all. Well, any with an ounce of life that might be detected. During my youth group visit during the summer, I had only visited Pentecostal churches. The pastor of the People's Church had recommended the school to me. He was charismatic. I had just assumed he would not recommend me to a school that did not approve of speaking in tongues. But, in fact, he had not recommended the school for its Pentecostal beliefs. Rather, he had recommended it for its evangelistic and missionary reputation. After a while, I began to learn more about the great Welsh revival that had given the school its identity. It had happened during the era called the Holiness Revival, a couple of years before Azusa Street in America. It had changed Wales from bitter to sweet, but had not featured speaking in tongues. Those who did not agree with tongues often looked to the Welsh Revival as their example of a true revival. Their Azusa Street, if you will. In that sense, they wanted to preserve what was pure and true about their own tradition. The discussion of tongues always seemed divisive to them, and they wished simply to avoid it, concentrating instead on the things that united them. As I spent two years among them, I met Methodists, Anglicans, Presbyterians and Baptists, who obviously loved Jesus and were serious about living fully for him. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was alive and well among them. I could sense the reality of the Christian brotherhood we shared in spite of our denominational differences, and this exposure became important to me later in Africa. It was on the African continent that I expanded into mega-evangelistic crusades, and they included the sponsorship of many denominations. Well, I said to Bryn on that first day, perhaps they have housed us together to contain the tongues issue in one room. We will try not to let the cat out of the bag. As I began to attend classes, I had my hands too full to even think about theological and denominational differences. In the beginning, I took notes in a kind of English-German phonetic shorthand that only I could read. This primitive stage of learning preceded my mastery of writing in English. 
Though my spoken English was awkward and halting, I was reasonably well understood. Because of my calling, I was highly motivated to learn to speak the language fast, and I did. The lectures about the Bible and the work of the gospel taught in English made much better sense to me than the dull and lifeless language lessons I had suffered in German schools. As the first weeks passed, I learned that the word sea in Swansea stands for its place by the ocean. The school was perched where the Bristol Channel enters the Celtic Sea. There are a few sunny days in this part of the world, but mostly rain, rain, rain. All the necessary ingredients to maintain the beautiful gardens. But in this region, when the sun does shine, people take full advantage of it. In our case, we took our classes from the classrooms to the beautifully landscaped lawns and fairways. These are some of the most blessed memories I have of this place. Ian Jones was my favorite instructor. He was the senior member of the faculty and had been a contemporary of Rhys Howells. I felt I was rubbing shoulders with history being near him. When I was introduced to his Bible courses, I only thought I knew my Bible. Hearing him was like drinking from a fresh flowing fountain as he expounded the word as I had never heard it before. I could hardly endure the time between his classes, feeling something like a palpable hunger for more of the word. He could see my eagerness, and I felt a special bond with him. He also taught the required course in homiletics, which is the art and craft of preaching. Before coming to school, I'd never thought of pulpit delivery as an art form or a craft. To me, preaching was simply opening my Bible and speaking as the Holy Spirit gave utterance. With this approach, the audiences in Tostate and Krempe had been deeply moved. I had also been effective in Berlin. Plus, I had seen a man come to Jesus in my first street sermon as a boy. I knew nothing of homiletics. Within two months of my arrival, Ian asked me to deliver my first sermon in front of the homiletics class. I would speak and the class would critique the delivery. Actually, the assignment was called an exposition and the specific topic was the book of Second Timothy. I had a personal grasp of Second Timothy, Paul's final address to his young protégé. I could hardly wait to let loose on the subject, but letting loose on the subject was not exactly the assignment. An exposition is a disciplined delivery, something a teacher or even a college professor might present. As expositions go, I would say that I delivered more of an exhortation. Ian was not impressed. My halting English was not the problem. He and the entire class, in fact, began to take my exposition apart, criticizing its lack of structure, forethought, and organization. For them, my sermon was purely an academic exercise. They focused their criticism not so much on what I said, but how I said it. 
The art and craft of pulpit delivery had apparently escaped me. I thought Ian Jones would understand the heart of my presentation and that he would stand up for me, but he did not. Perhaps I had totally misread what I thought was the special bond between us. I was devastated. For me, this was not academic. It was an acid test of my ability to preach the gospel. I had delivered my soul and had fallen short of connecting to my audience. In deep pain, I escaped into the far reaches of the Italian garden to a stone tool shed. It was secluded and hopefully soundproof. I crept inside and broke down in tears. My father, I'm not a preacher or an expositor or a teacher or an evangelist, but I have called you to be an evangelist. In mid-cry, the Holy Spirit stopped me dead in my tracks and dried up my tears with these words. Everything else became meaningless. I had heard and saw it and accepted it. My sermons might never be homiletical masterpieces. They might never be printed in books and reproduced as examples of form and content. They were meant for the ear and for the heart of the sinner, not for professors or great books or classrooms. Before God, the only critic that counted was the man or woman who raised their hand and came forward to receive Jesus. All else counted as dung. Yes, I shouted, I am an evangelist. You have called me to be an evangelist. From that day to this, there has never been any doubt about my calling. God confirmed it to me in that little stone shed after flunking my first homiletics test. God's true lessons are never academic. The glory of the Swansea Bible College was that it forced us to live by faith. We prayed for everything, for the huge supply of winter coal necessary to heat our buildings, to the bus fare to take us street preaching on the weekends. The school supplied only food and lodging for us, all the extras we were instructed to pray in, and always we were required to pray in secret without publicly mentioning our needs. This had been George Muller's legacy and the legacy of Rhys Howells as well. Now Rhys's son Samuel followed the faith path. I learned to embrace it. Whenever a student or staff member saw their need met by the Lord, they would testify about it. These stories were meant to encourage the other students to live in complete dependence upon God. The phrase that was used when God met a need was, I've been delivered. Samuel Howells joined us in a student prayer meeting one morning not long after I arrived. Winter was knocking at the door. Nighttime temperatures were plunging towards the freezing mark. He asked that we pray for several hundred pounds to buy coal to heat the classrooms and dormitories. This amount was needed by the end of the week. 
To me, this seemed a huge sum of money. I had never faced a need so large, nor had I been forced to come up with such an amount so quickly. I joined my prayers with the others and waited to see what God would do. At the end of the week, Samuel returned to our prayer meeting. His eyes were bright and his face beaming. Praise God! We've been delivered, he said. Right then, I prayed in my heart, Lord, I also want to be a man of faith. I want to see your way of providing for needs. Soon thereafter, a missionary visited the college. As he spoke, I heard the Lord speak in my heart to give all the money I had received from home. My parents and the church in Kemper and Glückstadt sent packages containing gifts and money to help me with expenses beyond room and board. This was all I had. I agreed to give it, but then I decided to hold back one pound for emergencies. Just one pound, I reasoned. As I prepared to make the gift, I knew God had asked for all of my spending money. How would I know what he would do if I continued to hold back? I gave it all. Time passed, and I had nearly forgotten about it. One Saturday, an invitation came asking me to minister on Sunshine Corner Beach near Swansea. This was a popular weekend gathering place for families. A local church had established a regular outreach to children there. I invited Tön de Reuter, a fellow student from Holland, to accompany me. As we searched our pockets, we found that I had exactly enough bus fare to get us both there, but no money to bring us back. We prayed and decided that we would put our faith to the test. We would go and believe God for the return fare. We went. The ministry was fine. As we finished and returned to the bus stop, the pastor of the church came walking along the street. He recognized us and knew we had been ministering on the beach. I felt immediately that I was witnessing the deliverance God had planned for us. Hey boys, would you join me for a cup of tea? We would love to, I said. He took us to a local cafe near the beach and we had several cups of tea and passed the time in pleasant conversation. When we finished, he called for the bill and opened his wallet to pay. I looked inside and saw more money than I could imagine. I began talking to God about it. I felt sure he had brought this man to us as our provision for the return trip. Surely God would move on him in his abundance to donate our return bus fare now. We would say nothing about it. Well, thank you for the tea, I said. We must be going now. We have to catch a bus back to school. This broad hint fell on deaf ears. He paid the bill, closed his wallet, and did not offer to pay for anything more. We smiled grimly at one another as he walked away, leaving us at the bus stop. The bus would soon arrive, and we had no fare. How would we make it? 
In my heart, I prayed, Lord, where is the fair? How will you provide? Just then, a woman who was leaving the beach area saw us at the stop. As the bus approached, she came running. Boys, here is a little something for you. Thank you so much for ministering on the beach today. I so appreciated it. She grabbed my hand and pressed money into it, then walked away, leaving us standing there. When I looked down and counted it, it was exactly enough for the bus fare for both of us to return to school. Praise God, Tain, we've been delivered. I felt that day like I was walking in the footsteps of George Muller and Rhys Howells. More than that, I was learning something important about relationship to my Heavenly Father. It is never my job to second-guess his provision. He might use a preacher, a woman, a layman, a criminal, a saint, a natural disaster, a beggar, or he might tell me to take my fishing pole and go look in the mouth of a fish for my bus fare. He is unlimited, and it is his delight to surprise us. Most of all, I was beginning to learn that faith in God would take me places I would not otherwise go. It would produce results I would not otherwise see. Jesus said that with faith we could speak to a mountain and see it removed into the sea. I was not moving mountains yet, but with faith my relationship to God had come alive. It was dynamic making a difference in the world around me. As the first year of my school came to an end, I was praying one day and felt strongly that I should return home for the summer break. This feeling came in spite of the fact that I had no money to purchase the train fare. After praying more about it, I decided I would trust God to supply the money. I would not tell anybody of my need, but I would act as if the need was already met. That day, I went to a travel agent in Swansea and booked a reservation in advance. No deposit required. As the day of my departure approached, I received a packet from home. My heart rejoiced. I thought, this is it. I opened it thinking that the money I needed would be in sight. It was not there. The day of my booking arrived. I packed my bags. Still no money. I found my friend Tone and asked him to agree with me in prayer for the supply. We went into one of the empty classrooms and began praying. I did not feel our prayers were effective. As we continued, the words of a song came to mind. Turn, we've prayed enough. God has heard us. Let's sing together. I led him in a song we often sung in Swansea. There's nothing too hard for thee. I'm trusting alone in thee. It's never too late for thee, dear Lord. Suddenly, I received the answer in my spirit. 
The money is there, Tone. Where? Somehow I had received in my spirit the evidence of things not seen. It is there. I don't know where, but it is there. Let's go and get my bags. We run from the classroom across the garden area as we headed towards the narrow gate. A fellow student named Jin approached me. He was an upperclassman graduating that year. I did not know him well. You need money to travel home, he said. I'd like to help you. How much do you need? God knows how much. I will not say. He also was a student of faith. He reached in his pocket and pulled out a wad of money, placing it in my hands. And then he abruptly turned and walked away. It was the last time I saw him as a Bible college student. As Tone and I hurried to the travel agent's office, I counted it. Tone recounted it. Praise God, Reinhardt. We've been delivered. It was just the amount we needed for the fare. The Sunshine Beach story and the train ticket story may seem small compared to other faith stories that come later in life, but they may be the most important stories of all. In our life of faith, we must begin small and graduate to greater challenges. In that respect, we are like the boy David. He first killed a lion and bear while protecting sheep, and then he was ready to kill Goliath, delivering his people from the Philistines. And what was true for David is true for all. You have faith stories too. No matter how small, remember them, recite them, count them, and celebrate them. They build your faith for what is coming next in your life. As the first year at Swansea became the second year, the cat got out of the bag. My Pentecostal beliefs became fully known. For one thing, I could not keep totally quiet about it. For another, most everyone at the school was curious. Some were more than curious. Many times Bryn and I were invited into polite discussions of the baptism of the Holy Spirit at odd times and places. When someone asked, I answered. In fact, the official rule of the evangelical school was that we were not allowed to talk about it. But discreetly, even instructors would come after hours and ask Bryn and me to tell them about our experience. Most of them compared their own experiences and could see that we had something they didn't. In general, they tended to lose the enthusiasm for their experiences with God while ours burned endlessly in our hearts. This attracted rather than repelled them, though I suppose for some there was a kind of spiritual jealousy. For the most part, we developed great respect for one another, even though there remained an official divide. Finally, all arguments for the baptism of the Holy Spirit fall short. It is seldom good biblical positions that win the day. Rather, it is the example of the Spirit's overflow. One day after hours, my Dutch friend, Tön de Reuter, came to me. Reinhardt, he said, I want what you have. I want the baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
Let's go to one of the empty classrooms and you pray for me to receive it. Of course, I said, and off we went. Once there, he said, I want you to know that I want the baptism, but I do not want the speaking in new tongues. He said it like I had the power to hold back that part of the blessing. For a moment, I was stumped. I thought, how can anyone receive the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues? Should I pray, Lord, baptize, turn with your Holy Spirit, but hold back on the speaking in tongues? Amen? But then I thought, Jesus is the baptizer. Let's see what he does. Very well, turn, I said. I will pray for you to receive just the baptism of the Holy Spirit, nothing more. We prayed for about ten minutes, then lightning struck. He fell from his chair and began rolling on the floor. He was not just speaking in tongues, he was trumpeting in tongues. On and on he went until finally, after several minutes, he calmed down. You got it, turn, I said. You got it. You even spoke in new tongues. No, I didn't. His face was flushed with embarrassment. You did. I did not. Well then, what did you speak when you spoke what you spoke? What did I hear? It was loud enough that I feared you might draw the attention of the school authorities. A puzzled look came over his face. He thought long and hard about it before replying, I just spoke unspeakable words, he said at last. I burst out laughing. What a fine euphemism. We are friends to this day. Turn went on to be a respected lecturer at a Bible college in the Netherlands and even worked in the administration. Today he pastors a Pentecostal congregation in the Netherlands. I graduated in 1961. I was 21 years old. As I neared the end of my time, I wrote my father asking if I could perform a practicum under his leadership in Krempe. In the meantime, our family had moved there. The church had built an apartment in the second story of the meeting house. Mother and father were both living there and the train commute was a thing of the past. Serving with father would allow me to be exposed to the realities of actual church ministry before I assumed such duties for myself. It was a required period of testing before ordination and licensing with the German Pentecostal Church, the Arbeitsgemeinschaft der Christengemeinden in Deutschland, or in short, ACD, as we called it. Father was delighted by my request and immediately agreed to it. Furthermore, he informed me that the Felberter Mission Board, which was the foreign mission branch of the ACD, would require that I follow the practicum with two years of pastoring a church before they would consider a missions appointment to South Africa. He told me that he would welcome me to do this pastoring also at his church. This sounded like my best opportunity to follow my calling, so the plan was set. After finishing school in Swansea, I said my goodbyes. 
lifelong relationships were begun there at the school in Wales. So many memories. The fellowship, the tests of faith and the wonderful Bible classes. These had now become forever a part of me and would follow me wherever I went. Furthermore, my English had become passable. I traveled by train to London. Having some money to spare, I decided I would simply take an unguided sightseeing tour of the great city. Big Ben, the famous Parliament building, Trafalgar Square, the Tower of London. I hopped from bus to bus, crisscrossing the city as if on a holiday, which in fact I was, my first holiday. At length I arrived at a place called Clapham Commons, a large park in a lovely residential section of the city. With no specific destination in mind, I decided to stretch my legs. I began walking through the surrounding neighborhood totally at random. All of a sudden, I stopped because I saw a blue nameplate in front of a house. On that nameplate I read, George Jeffries. I thought to myself, could this be the great George Jeffries who had founded the Elim Pentecostal churches in Ireland and England? I had read much about him. He had been a great firebrand evangelist who had traveled across the world, preaching to overflow crowds in some of the largest venues. Miraculous signs and wonders had accompanied his preaching. I recalled that 10,000 had been saved in his historic Birmingham crusade. 14,000 had responded during a crusade in Switzerland. He was known to many as the greatest evangelist Britain had produced after George Whitfield and John Wesley. My heart pounded with anticipation to think that of all the residences in London I might have stumbled upon, I had stumbled upon his. I paused at the gate. Should I go in and introduce myself? I felt almost compelled to do it. But who was I to do such a thing? I felt a spiritual and natural link with this man. As with so many other British revival leaders, Jeffreys had been born in Wales to a miner's family. He had been a teenager during the great Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905, and for him the fire had never gone out. What especially linked him to me was that he had also ridden the tide of the Pentecostal revival that followed from Azusa Street and onward. He had embraced both revivals. You only live once, I decided. I walked through the front garden gate and climbed the porch, pausing at the door. There I rang the bell. A lady opened the door. Pardon my intrusion, ma'am. Does the George Jeffreys live here? Who was that famous firebrand evangelist I've heard so much about? Yes, he does. May I please see him? No. Under no circumstances. She had hardly said no 
when I heard a deep voice from within the house say, Let the young man come in. I squeezed past that lady in a heartbeat and into the house. As my eyes adjusted to the dim light, I saw him coming slowly down a staircase, holding it unsteadily as he made his way downward to me. As he reached the landing, I stepped forward, took his hand, and introduced myself. I told him I had a call of God on my life to be an evangelist and to preach the gospel in Africa, but I had been to college in Swansea and was now returning home to Germany. What happened next was extraordinary. All of a sudden, he took me by the shoulders and fell to his knees, pulling me to the floor with him. He placed his hands on my head and began to bless me as a father blesses his son, as Abraham blessed Isaac, who blessed Jacob, and on and on. The room seemed to light up with the glory of God as he poured out his prayer over me. I was dazed by that glory. I do not remember the words with which he blessed me, but I do remember their effect. My body felt electrified, tingling with divine energy. After about half an hour, he finished. I stood up and helped him to his feet. He seemed very frail. We said goodbye. The lady came and escorted him away. He could hardly stand, nor could I for different reasons. I stumbled from his house and staggered back towards Clapham Commons like a drunken man. There, with my head spinning, I waited for a bus to carry me on my way to the railway station. What were the odds that this had happened to me? Even more, what did it mean that it had happened to me? It seemed like a dream. I had to convince myself again and again that it had actually happened. Why would God grant me this unexpected and unplanned meeting as a 21-year-old Bible college graduate in London on his way home to serve a practicum at the smallest church in all of Germany? I didn't know. I kept it to myself. I arrived at home and began the process of serving with my father in Krempe. I had been home for just a few months when one day father said to me, Son, did you hear the sad news? No. What news? George Jeffries died in London. George Jeffries? That's impossible, father. I just saw him. I met him. And then I told him the story of my meeting with him in London. In fact, he died on January 26, 1962. I was still 21, three months short of my 22nd birthday. As I absorbed the news, I realized something wonderful had happened in London. I had caught Elijah's mantle that day. God had connected me with former generations of evangelists, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Evan Roberts, 
George Müller, Rhys Howells, George Jeffries. The gospel is like a baton in a relay race. That day I got the baton into my hands. The fire I had already within me. The fire is always fresh. The baton of the gospel is always old and it is passed on from generation to generation. I now understood that on that day in London, the baton and the flame had met. I could not yet dream of what it would mean. Chapter 14 Upon returning to Krempe, I became something of a novelty within German Pentecostal circles. To some I was considered a prodigal, having left the fold for an evangelical school in Great Britain. Others thought I had snapped our denomination's Bible school, as if I thought I was too good for it. Still others regarded me with curiosity, wondering how my Swansea education might change me. Had I lost my German Pentecostal identity? In fact, some things had changed. Soon after arriving, I departed even further from the norm by acquiring a new Volkswagen Beetle. The Beetle was a great choice, the most inexpensive and reliable car in Germany. It was just beginning to become popular in America and elsewhere. Designed by Ferdinand Porsche in the 1930s, the ugly little rear-engine car had been mocked by Western automakers. But after the war, the Volkswagen began to write automobile history, making affordable transportation available to people like me. My humble little Beetle was hardly a prestigious Volvo 544, nor did it resemble the elegance of Louis Graf's Mercedes, but it was a huge departure from the way my father had always operated. The Volkswagen's transmission required a skilled double pump of the accelerator when gearing up or gearing down. It was a source of pride for me not to brush the teeth of the transmission when shifting gears. In America they call it grinding the gears, I enjoyed driving the little car with real expertise, no grinding the gears. Not long after arriving at home, a leader from the Pentecostal Fellowship, ACD, came to visit and inspect our practicum arrangement. After having dinner at our house, he said to me, Reinhardt, the ACD does not recognize that college in Wales. It is not Pentecostal. The academic credits you earned there will not count with our organization. You will have to start over in our Bible school if you are serious about your missionary appointment. I was stunned to silence. When at last I found my voice, all I could say in reply was, No, sir, I will not go to the Bible school again. He left our house with an appreciation for something mother and father often said. He has a mind of his own. In fact, having my own mind was not the issue. It was God who had led me to Swansea. I would not think of it as something less than what it truly was, 
a great preparation for the mission field. Peter came home from the university. Among other things, he wanted to see if I had stuck with my calling or if my experience in Wales had changed my mind about becoming a minister. You are serving a practicum with Father in Krempe? Yes. So you are going to take Martin's place, eh? Like Jacob and Esau? No, I will not take Martin's place. I will not be Father's successor. I'm going to be an evangelist and a missionary in Africa. You still haven't let go of that idea? He chuckled. You have always been little slow to catch on to things. I'd rather be slow on the right track than fast on the highway to hell. You do sound like father. Do you plan to get married like him? Yes. Then I think you are going to be one of the most irresponsible people on earth. What do you mean? You are going to have children and not be able to pay for their education. Education is the only thing that stands between your children and poverty. Without father's pension, the church in Krempe could not have allowed any of us to go to college. Think of that. God's work pays in more than money, and education is overrated. There are a lot of college-educated fools. He sighed like he was dealing with a dimwit. Well, maybe... I will make enough money to keep you from starving, he said. I'm going to be a doctor. I want to be where the money is. It's money that gets things done, and being a minister of the gospel just doesn't seem to have any financial leverage in this world. God has plenty of leverage, more than enough. It was the same old argument. After the conversation, I felt deeply pained. I went to my room and placed my Bible on the bed in front of me. Lord, I need to hear from you. You have called me to Africa. How will you take care of me? Will I be in poverty like Peter says? Or will you see to it that I am not a poor beggar? Speak to me, I pray. I opened my Bible at random and read the first verse that came before my eyes. I did that in the same way Mother had done when asking whether or not the Lord would protect us crossing the Baltic Sea to Copenhagen. The verse that I read was Nehemiah 9, verse 15, And gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger, and broughtest forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hadst sworn to give them. I made a deal with God right then. Perhaps the reward for serving him was not luxury food and drink. His provision might be simply bread and water, the basics necessary to sustain life. Okay, Lord, I said, if you provide bread and water, that is good enough for me. I accept it, and it will be like a gourmet meal to me. I would rather serve you and eat your bread and drink your water than feast with a wealthy man who do not know or care about you. Of course, as the years passed, I found that the bread he provided has been the finest cake with frosting, and the water has been the most exquisite tea. His supply has always been more than I asked for. 
as the next story will illustrate. At the moment, I had concentrated on the bread and water part of the scripture, but the full promise involved possessing a land that flowed with milk and honey. After a few weeks of serving the practicum, Father and I climbed into the Volkswagen and traveled north to the town of Rendsburg for a regional pastor's conference. It was near the Peppendorf prison camp, where we had first been reunited as a family after the war. Along the way, we visited the old camp and recalled the difficulties of those times. Father did not want to spend much time there. The first thing I noticed was the absence of that ugly barbed wire. Vegetation grew where once fear and misery ruled. Then on to Rendsburg. During the pastor's meeting, the host, Reverend Franz Wegner, approached me with some startling news. Every year in summer, he said, we have a tent revival here. I have been praying about it and the Holy Spirit tells me that you, Reinhardt, are to be our tent evangelist this year. Father and I were both amazed. Pastor Wegner was one of the senior clergymen in the ACD. He was well respected. I've just come from Bible college and don't have any experience, I said. I am merely doing my practicum at this time. I know that. I have also heard that you are called of God. In fact, it is known that your calling is the call to be an evangelist. This is what we need here in Rendsburg, an evangelist. How long do the tent meetings last? As long as you need to get the message out. We will not put any limit on your sermons. No, I mean, how many days will the meetings continue? Three weeks, Sunday morning services included. I didn't say anything, but my math skills had improved so that I could quickly calculate the number of sermons I would have to preach. Twenty-four in all. In my Bible college files, I might be able to find a dozen sermons ready to go. My preaching disaster in Ian Jones's homiletics class also came to mind. I had barely begun my practicum. I hardly felt ready for this. It seemed impossible. So the Holy Spirit has spoken to you? I asked. He has. Well, I'm confident that if he has spoken to you, he will also speak to me, and I will pray about it. Okay, you pray, Reinhardt, and then call me, he said cheerily. I honestly thought I had shaken him off my trail with that answer. Back in Kremper, I knelt at my bedside. Father, should I accept this invitation? Expecting to hear nothing. I imagined that I would simply say to Pastor Wegner, God has not spoken, therefore I cannot accept. The opposite happened. Suddenly these words were burned into my heart. Go, and twelve baskets full shall remain. I immediately knew this answer had not come from my mind. It was not the answer I sought. Furthermore, it was a profound statement, the kind that had the familiar imprint of the Holy Spirit on it. 
God was stirring up the vision Grandma Boucher's had when I was ten. She had seen me distributing a loaf of bread to a large crowd. The loaf continued to grow. The scene had been inspired by the gospel accounts of the feeding of the five thousand. In that story found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, a little boy had provided five loaves and two fish to Jesus in the face of a hungry multitude. Jesus had used the boy's lunch to feed them all. Afterward, twelve baskets full of bread fragments had been gathered in order to show that the Lord had not only met the need, but had supernaturally provided more than enough. Go, and twelve baskets shall remain. This word from God could not have hit the mark more perfectly. Without hesitation, I called Pastor Wigner. The Lord has spoken to me, I said. I will come and preach in your tent meetings. I began to prepare in prayer and Bible study. I reviewed the dozen sermon outlines I had made in Bible school. But that's when I noticed that I did not have a dozen sermons. I really had just one. One sermon presented in a dozen disguises. Seeing this for the first time made me feel even more inadequate. But today I understand it. I still have only one sermon. I'm an evangelist. I preach the simple ABC of the gospel. When I preach, I'm not trying to sound like a professor or a Bible scholar or a homiletics expert. I'm helping people who are outside of the kingdom of God enter it by the blood of the Lamb. So I repeat the ABC over and over again, each in perhaps a new disguise or with a new illustration or applied to a new culture or occasion, but always the same good news of God's invitation to join his family. I was soon to be 22 years old. When the day of the meetings in Rendsburg arrived, I drove with my Volkswagen northward from Krempe. It was a lovely spring day and the trees were blossoming. The fragrance of apple and cherry blossoms filled the air. I arrived in Rendsburg early. The tent had been set up at the huge fee-marked square and a woman was seated in a chair at the main entrance. The flaps were open. I packed my beetle and approached her, smiling, Looking inside, feeling a bit shy, I did not introduce myself. I looked at the rows of chairs set up beneath the canvas and felt a nervous knot in my stomach. If I may ask a question, how many seats are in the tent? There are 250 chairs. How many people do you think will show up? The woman sighed wearily and shook her head. Her attitude struck a familiar chord with me. For a moment I thought she might say, I ought to give you a good hiding right now, young man, and get it over with, as my mother had said so often in my younger years. But then I quieted my thoughts, realizing that my mind was taunting me with old memories. I was not a naughty boy anymore. I was called to be an evangelist here in Rendsburg. 
there were 250 seats in that tent for the hearing of the gospel. Well, the woman continued, lowering her voice in a confidential tone, I'll tell you the truth. Our pastor has put us on a limb. He went against the board of elders and invited some young evangelist who isn't even dry behind the ears to be our preacher this year. I won't be surprised if we don't fold the tent and go home early. I see, I said. Thank you. I returned quickly to my car, feeling suddenly anxious and unbalanced. That woman had no idea the power of her words to turn my confidence into mush. Satan himself could not have put a greater scare into me. Looking back, however, I suppose it was a test arranged by my father in heaven. I drove out of town to a secluded spot on the north Ostsee Canal, a man-made waterway that crossed the peninsula between the Baltic and North Seas. I stopped the car, fixing the handbrake. Oh, Lord, I prayed, help me, help me, help me. How can I possibly go on if you do not rescue me now? As I prayed and talked to God about it, I began to feel peace. It is the kind of peace that only comes from him. My thoughts returned to the truth. I had not come to Rendsburg because I was barely out of Bible college and hardly dry behind the ears. I was here because the Holy Spirit had spoken to Pastor Wigner. He had also spoken clearly to me. As the voices of doubt and fear were slowly replaced by the voice of the truth, Peace again flooded my heart. I praised his holy name in English and in other tongues. From the outspoken lady, I had learned that Pastor Wegner had obeyed the Holy Spirit even above the voice of his board of elders. She may have seen it as a bad sign, but to me it was a sign that I was God's choice. If God before me, who can be against me, I thought. I stayed in this place of faith and peace and prayed until the time for the start of the first service. When I arrived at the tent, it was full. Perhaps the people had come out of curiosity to see how the young preacher would fail. Maybe they thought it would be entertaining. Pastor Wigner met me outside. He was very excited and led me to the platform. The music was beginning. I sat down and looked out over the crowd. Pastor Wegner stood and announced that evangelist Reinhard Bonke had arrived and would be our crusade evangelist tonight. In the front row of the audience, my eyes met the eyes of Mrs. Meyer, who had spoken to me earlier outside the tent. She gasped and her hands flew to her cheeks. Her face turned red, and she bowed her head low in shame and embarrassment. But it was totally unnecessary. I was already seeing the humor in it. Later this became a good story for both of us to repeat. 
When I stood to preach, I opened my Bible to a redemption scripture. As I read, I saw in my mind what I might describe as the shape of the gospel. My preaching did not depend upon notes. My brain visualized the path for my words to follow. God put an outline there, and I simply filled in the outline with words and ideas and scriptures as they flowed into my mind. It was the ABC of the gospel that came out of my mouth. It was the gift of the evangelist at work. In the hearts of the people, the Holy Spirit did his work. Many raised their hands for salvation in that service, and in every service that followed, my heart overflowed with gratitude. As the meetings continued, I began to notice a pretty girl in the audience. She seemed very engaged in the meetings, and I sensed she was a godly person. This drew me to her even more, and my interest became strong. I found myself making excuses to be near her and to have conversation with her after the meetings. Others were attracted to her as well, because she had a very pleasant personality. I could not help but wonder if such an attractive girl might be a lifelong match for me. One day we were speaking of spiritual things. I asked her the question that was most on my mind. If God called you to Africa, would you go? No, she replied immediately, never. I would never leave Germany. My interest in her died on the spot. No longer did I seek to be near her or to have conversation with her. This incident revealed to me that I was seriously seeking a wife who would share my calling. I had no interest in dating as a pastime. My heart was set on Africa, and I had no time for anything that would distract from that purpose. In the second week of the meetings, the local newspaper sent a reporter and a photographer to do a front-page story for the Rendsburg newspaper. Word of the meeting had begun to circulate in the town. The reporter came to Pastor Wegner, who introduced him to me. You have misunderstood, the reporter said. I want to speak to the main speaker, not to his apprentice. I need a statement from the evangelist. But this is the evangelist. This is Reinhard Bonke. He laughed and shook his head. Licking his pencil lead, he began to write on his notepad. Have you saved your first soul, young man? Oh, I have. I saw a man come to Jesus when I was just a boy of eleven. Just a boy of eleven? Huh? You don't appear yet to have had your first shave. Am I right about that? Yes, sir. How old are you? Twenty-one. In fact, I had not yet shaved in my life. My hair was a boyish shade of blonde and my beard so light that it didn't show. The photographer took my picture and the story about the boy evangelist hit the front page. The tent would not hold the crowds. What a wonderful evangelistic crusade it was. My first tent meeting. I preached every day for three weeks and twice each Sunday. In terms of numbers, it certainly does not compare to the crowds that were to follow. 
But God is not only a God of the big numbers. He is God of the smallest numbers too. Some of the people who were saved in that meeting in Rendsburg are still among my ministry partners. They support me as I reach out to crowds of millions with the ABC of the Gospel today. God kept his promise. I did not run dry. When the meetings ended, I could have extended for another three weeks. Twelve baskets full remained. Following the meetings, Pastor Wegner brought a number of the converts from the meetings to Krempe. Father invited his church members in Krempe to join us in a special joint service. The new converts stood in front of the people and with tears and praise to God told of their conversions in the Rendsburg tent meetings. One woman had been bound by demonic forces and she told how she had been set free. The fruit of the meetings was bountiful and my father Hermann was moved to tears to hear these testimonies. Little did I know that the meetings in Rendsburg would begin a small landslide of offers to preach. Word spread quickly through the ACD that if you want new people in your church, call Reinhard Bonnke. Offers came from all over Germany, some from as far away as Switzerland and England. Not long after that, I was approached by Pastor Ludwig Eisenlöffel, the ACD official who had declared my Wales Bible College education invalid. He extended his hand to me and shook it warmly. He then assured me that the ACD recognized the anointing of God upon my ministry. They would not hold my Swansea education against me. As my father saw this happen, it pleased him, but it also strained our relationship. In his military mind, rules were rules. They should not be bent for anyone. He did not bend rules, and rules were not to be bent for him, nor would he want them to be. He was a straightforward man, a faithful servant. Also, he did not receive offers to preach like I did. His preaching style was faithful, steady, yet a bit bland in its delivery. At this stage in his life, The pattern was well set for him. By contrast, I was his youngest son, barely out of Bible school, not yet ordained, still serving a practicum, and I was breaking the mold. Already I received invitations to preach from far and wide. Of course, when reason prevailed, he understood that my calling was different to his. He was a pastor. I had the calling of an evangelist. Still, whether consciously or subconsciously, he began to put pressure on me not to accept these preaching invitations. In fact, I never bowed to his pressure one way or the other. I did decline many offers after praying and not feeling God's peace about it, but never because of my father's pressure. After a while, father could not seem to help himself. If I went to the right, he leaned to the left. If I said I would go, he found reasons for me to stay. If I spoke of my call to Africa, he insisted that I stay in Germany. More and more, we did not see eye to eye on important matters. 
I celebrated my 22nd birthday on April 19, 1962. Father and I began to discuss the necessity of my taking the pulpit in Krempe for two years. The ACD required that the church I served be affiliated with the denomination. Afterward, they would appoint me to a mission station within the fellowship. They simply must appoint me to Africa, Father, I said one day. Well, the board determines appointments. They may have a missionary need in India or Indonesia and not in South Africa in the beginning. Are you saying that you would refuse it? I would have to refuse it. Are you saying that the missions board would not consider my call to South Africa? Oh yes, they will consider it, but it may not be available. Available? How could it not be available? Would they appoint me to some place God had not called me? It has happened to others. Perhaps you should prepare yourself that it might happen to you. I do not want to prepare myself that way. I will pray that God will move on their hearts to appoint me to the place He has appointed me. If they do not acknowledge that, I am not sure what I will do. Reinhardt, I must say that I do not feel your call to Africa should become before the need of the place where you live. You were born in Germany. This is your home, and we need revival. How can you go off to preach in Africa when the needs are so desperate around you here? It seems hypocritical. Let revival begin here first. Jesus said that after the Holy Spirit came on the disciples at Pentecost, they were to go to Jerusalem first, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost part of the earth. You seem to be jumping to the last of the list before serving the first. Many of us have done the hard work of sowing in this hard German soil for decades. Still, we have not seen much harvest. The Lord said, one sows, another reaps. How will we reap if our reapers go off to Africa? I had to think this argument through before replying. My own heart and calling was on the line. In fact, it was in that very place of my calling that I found my answer. I said to him, The Lord said to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into his harvest field. It is not for me to decide where I will serve, Father. If God sends me to Germany, I will go to Germany. If he sends me to Africa, then I must go to Africa. The other issues are in his hands. This difference was never settled between us until I actually went to Africa. In the meantime, Father continued to make this Jerusalem first argument. It was a great test of my calling. If I had not been so sure of my direction, I might have found it compelling. I might have changed my course and missed so much of what God had planned to accomplish through me. I began to receive offers to serve my two-year practicum beyond Krempe. In fact, some of the largest churches in the denomination called me. For a young man my age, this was unheard of. Father was again taken aback at this early success. It placed more strain on our relationship and forced me to think more deeply about how and where I would pastor for the required two years. 
The more I thought about it, the more I began to consider that I should accept none of these fine offers, nor would I serve in Krempe. Not only did I want father to feel slighted, but I did not want my brothers to think that I was trying to take Martin's place as father's successor. Instead of a choice between Krempe and one of the larger churches, I began to see a third way. I felt I should make a completely new mark. Since evangelism was my calling, I could go where no church existed. I could see people converted and after two years leave a brand new church behind when I left for Africa. I began to make a mental checklist of possible cities where I could accomplish this kind of plan. Also, as I thought about being a pastor for two years, I thought about the extra challenge it would create being unmarried. When preaching in other churches, I found myself receiving too much attention from women who wanted to introduce me to their eligible daughters. This could distract me from a full focus on evangelism. I did not want this complication to continue when I began my work as a pastor. Being married to a woman who shared my calling would be a great blessing and a great relief of mind. At that time, Father and I escorted some of our young people to a musical youth rally held in Neumünster. All of the church youth from the region sent musical groups to represent them at this rally in a kind of talent contest. While there, a beautiful mandolin player caught my eye. She never once looked my way, but I had a feeling she saw my every move. How could I know that? Well, actually, I didn't know that. I just wanted it to be true so badly that I imagined it was so. I certainly saw her every move, even though I pretended not to. I watched her all evening from the corner of my eye, not wanting to be obvious. If I was so smitten by her, oh, how I wanted her to be smitten by me, too. But as the night wore on, I began to doubt that she knew I existed. Not once did I have the satisfaction of receiving even a sideways glance. The challenge of gaining her attention grew to the sky. During the service she occasionally shared secrets with another girl from Mane. Boys never did things like that. She cupped her hand and whispered into her friend's ear. Suddenly, I wanted to be the subject of that secret she shared. I wanted to be special to her in that way. Every move this beautiful young musician made ignited my imagination with a greater desire to know her. Other groups stood on the platform to perform their musical numbers. As they did, I noticed how she cradled her mandolin like a child, stroking its teardrop-shaped soundboard with her fingers. As a member of the musical Bonkis and a guitar strummer myself, I appreciated that she had chosen an unusual stringed instrument. This Italian dual-stringed guitar produced delicate tones. It was a descendant of the romantic lute and of David's harp. In Germany we were used to music played with pomp and bombast. The mandolin was a rare choice here and I liked that about her. 
At last it was announced that the musical group Fromane would perform. She stood with her friend and walked to the platform. Now I knew where to find her. The city of Mane was some 50 miles to the north of Krempe on the North Sea coast. Already the scheming began. Perhaps I thought I will be invited to preach there one day. From the platform she plucked the mandolin strings and they began to vibrate, creating a lovely melody. The girls began to harmonize. Soon I saw a look of consternation cross their features. Something was wrong. As in most musical performances, the musicians should never betray that anything was wrong. Part of the challenge of performing is to make sure the audience is at ease. But the problem they faced was insurmountable. The limits of their vocal range would not allow them to reach the song's climax. They stopped. I am so sorry, the mandolin player said. I set the key too high. We will have to start again. She began to strum the introduction again, playing in the adjusted key, and the song was performed beautifully. Any hope of placing in the contest, however, was lost. I was so impressed with her grace. She had spoken with great poise and dignity in an embarrassing situation. The entire contest was at stake, but she had handled it as if nothing was lost. It made her natural beauty twice as appealing to me. I began a conversation with God. Might such a girl be his choice for me? Certainly, to follow his calling to Africa, I would need a wife and mother with her kind of character. Afterward, I was too shy to approach her. I asked others, who is that girl from Marne who sang and played the mandolin? That is Annie Sulzle, I was told. I laughed her name from the moment I heard it. I forgot the names of others, but never that one. I prayed, Lord, how can I connect with that girl? I so much want to talk to her. I cannot say that I waited for an answer. In fact, I took matters into my own hands that night and did something totally manipulative. Perhaps later I suffered uncertainty because of it. I went to her pastor from Mame with a suggestion. I told him I was doing a practicum at my father's church in Kempe and I offered to swap pulpits with him. He liked the idea and that is how I got to Mame and finally met Annie. When I preached there I was introduced to her and we had a good conversation after the meeting. I learned that she had been born in Romania into a family of eight children. Her family had moved to Marne after suffering terribly during the war. They lived a farm life and always had plenty of food on the table. Friends and guests were made welcome. She had accepted Jesus as her savior in Sunday school. I told her that I would like to see her again. She said to me she might be able to come to visit me in Kempe on her way to the ACD Bible College. I was very pleased to learn that she was planning to attend the German Pentecostal school. When she came to visit, she told me she had been called to be a missionary. 
Do you mean God has called you to preach? Well, no. It is just that since becoming a Christian, I have always wanted to become a nurse so that I could serve the Lord on the mission field. I was relieved. I did not want to marry another preacher. What I sought was a wife, a helper, and a mother for my children. But of course, a mother with a missionary's heart would be essential to my calling. Africa lay ahead. I placed it before the Lord again, reminding him that the wrong wife could put all of it at risk. I asked him to make it clear to me if Annie was the one he would choose for me to marry. I'm not outlining a prescription to find a mate here. I'm simply relating my own story. I know of many others who have taken different paths just as successfully. Over the next year, Annie and I found it hard to be together. We wrote letters to one another. She was busy at school and I was working with father in Krempe or else traveling in various churches and crusades. It just didn't work out for us to spend much time together after our first meeting. This began to allow doubts to creep into my mind about our relationship. Meanwhile, my father campaigned against it. He said that Annie was no much for me. She was not well educated enough. In this, perhaps he thought too highly of the education I had received in Wales. But his objections did not really impact my thinking about her. I had to deal with my own doubts. Perhaps I had been presumptuous to act on my feelings in our first meeting, not waiting for a clear signal from God. I wrote to Annie and suggested that we put our relationship on ice for a time. She graciously understood and agreed. She was busy with school and with preparation for a life in missions work. After that, I began to look seriously for another candidate. As I traveled around in preaching engagements, there were lovely girls everywhere. But to connect meaningfully with just one proper candidate was not so easy. Along the way, I met another young preacher who told me about his beautiful sister. He said that his family lived in southern Germany and would welcome a visit from me if I would like to get to know her. The visit was arranged. His sister was indeed beautiful. We were all at dinner with the family at their house. I hoped that I was making a good impression. I thought she would make a price for any man. Suddenly she turned to me and said, I understand that you are the son of a poor preacher. It was as much the disapproving tone of her voice as the words themselves. Nothing more needed to be said. I thought she should marry one of my brothers. They are of the same mind. My attraction for this lovely girl vanished. My interest could not have been resurrected with a deep channel dredge. I would have departed immediately, except I had to stay and endure the rest of the plant visit. In the end, I said my polite thank you for the hospitality and said goodbye. I could not wait to return home and renew my correspondence with Annie. As I continued to pray about it, I felt the Lord saying to me, Annie is my choice for you. In February of 1964, 
I wrote a letter to break the ice I had placed between us. The ice didn't break, it melted in a heat wave. Our letters were filled with much more than casual affection. Suddenly, our romance was off to the races. I arranged to come see her at the Bible College. However, they had a rule that no boy could meet a girl on campus. We met outside the campus near a grove of trees. Taking a picnic lunch, we walked together. As we walked, I took her hand. So much is communicated in a touch. I began to know in my heart that Annie was the one for me. We were bonding and I could sense that my passion for her could be lifelong. I told her that I was almost finished with my practicum. The ACD president, Pastor Erwin Lorenz, was coming soon to conduct my ordination ceremony. Immediately afterward, I explained I would be required to serve as a pastor for two years in order to receive a missionary appointment. Furthermore, I told her that I would not serve as a pastor in Krempe nor in another church within the ACD. Rather, I would seek a new city that had no Pentecostal church and establish a congregation there for the required two years. She did not show a trace of fear or uncertainty about how this would be done. She had no question about the difficulties of such a pioneering effort. Her eyes sparkled as she talked with me about it, and I could see that she loved the very idea. Yes, she was the adventurous girl who had chosen to play the mandolin and had the wisdom to stop and change the key when she had started wrong. This Annie Sulzle was someone special. I visited her again and again. In the meantime, I found an engagement ring and bought it. My ordination was completed in March. In May, we walked beneath the blossoming apple and plum trees in our favorite grove. I dared to take her in my arms and kiss her for the very first time. I suppose the feeling was second only to the charge of the Holy Spirit that had surged through my hands when I had prayed for the woman in Father's prayer meeting as a boy. Annie, will you marry me? Yes. I've never seen her face so radiant. I placed the ring on her finger and kissed her again. I could have swung through the trees or pounded my chest. My days of waiting and dreaming of Africa were over. The reality of following my calling with the love of my life was about to begin. Immediately, I felt the controlling bonds to Hermann and Meta Bonki slip from my shoulders. In their place, a new bond with my life partner took hold. Annie and I were together now, as of one before the Lord. I could hardly wait to marry her and make a place to call our own. Chapter 15 The place we began our married life was Flensburg. The name of the city came to me as a strong impression during a time of prayer. It was the northernmost city in Germany near the Danish border. 
It had the reputation of being the best city between Hamburg and Copenhagen. Situated at the end of a rocky fjord from the Baltic Sea, it was a unique maritime community surrounded by dairies and rich farmland. I knew not one soul there, which made the choice just about perfect. As usual, my father took issue with the decision. More and more, the way I conducted my life left father scratching his head. There are so many better choices, he said. It is freezing cold in Flensburg. You've given yourself a handicap by going to a city where there is no Pentecostal church. Why? It is unnecessary. Father, I've heard from God, I replied. I'm going to Flensburg. But you are going to be married in November. Where will you live with your new bride? We will live in a place God provides for us. But you don't even have a church. I've worked all these years in Krempe, and it still doesn't pay the bills. How will you make a living? Bread and water, Father. God has promised bread and water. We will not starve. My plan began to take shape. It was late summer, and I would go pitch a tent and let it stand for six weeks. Every night I would preach the ABC of the gospel. When the meetings were finished... I would take the harvest of souls God had given me and find a permanent place of worship. In the process of seeing all this take place, Annie and I would be married. Father would conduct the ceremony. What a great way for Annie and I to start our life together, I thought. In Krempe, Glückstadt, Hamburg, Tostedt, Rendsburg and across the whole of Germany, I knew enough talented young musicians to schedule special performances throughout the meetings. The groups would take turns so that none were obligated beyond reason. I also had found a preaching companion named Erich Theis. He agreed to share the preaching schedule with me so I could remain fresh. Everything was set. When we had organized the crusade, Erich and I went to Flensburg with a tent. We obtained permits from the city to pitch it on a large field at the edge of town called the Exe. Everyone knew where it was. To advertise that we were set up at the Exe would be immediately understood by anyone in the region. That seemed perfect. We placed our advertising around town and waited for the first crowd. It was modest in size. I preached, and one old gentleman came forward to accept Christ. He was a German farmer in his seventies. This truly inspired me. Night after night, the momentum began to pick up. About midway through the meetings, I was exhilarated. I had seen fifty people come to the Lord. Already, I had doubled the size of Father's Church in Krempe. Then the devil moved in next door to us, literally. A large circus came to town and pitched its big top right next to our tent. It towered above us, dwarfing us. We were being eclipsed by a monster of sinful entertainment. As I watched them put up that massive canvas, 
I remembered the elephant, the lions and the other wonderful animals from the circus of my childhood. But I also remembered mother's description. The circus is an excuse for women to flaunt their bodies to arouse sinful passions in men. I felt as if the enemy had thrown a wet blanket over my meetings in an attempt to smother our little revival fire. One day, as I tidied up the interior of our crusade tent, a man came through the opening. He walked up to me and introduced himself. I am the circus director, he said. I would like to speak with a man who is preaching in this tent. That is me. I am Reinhard Bonke. I would like you to preach in my tent. I was stunned. Preach to the circus crowd? Yes, I will advertise a special meeting to be held here on Sunday morning before the circus begins. I would like you to preach. Would you do that? What better place to preach the gospel than in a tent full of sinners? How could an evangelist refuse? Yes, I will be there, I said. I will be there. I shook his hand like a water pump. My vision of a sinful circus took on a new meaning. The circus had not come to take away from the harvest, but to add to it. I felt as if the Lord had broken a restraining thread around my ankle that once had been a heavy chain. On Sunday morning I arrived early and walked through the tent. High above me, the great tent poles held the canvas taut against the elements. Strong supporting ropes were rigged inside and out, making a comfortable space for the people to gather. Father, I prayed, someday I want a circus tent as big as this one for the preaching of the gospel. And I want to see it full of people who have come not to see a circus, but expecting to meet Jesus. A few workers were making last-minute adjustments to the trapeze gear and the main performance ring. I introduced myself. A clown in all his makeup brought his performance props into the main ring. Seeing me, he quickly took them to one side and sat on them to wait until I had finished delivering my sermon. People from Flensburg were already gathering, finding seats in the bleachers. When the time came for the sermon, I preached the ABC of the Gospel. I had an altar call and a few people responded. As I prayed with them, I heard the sound of weeping. It was coming from behind me. Turning, I saw something I've never seen before or since. That circus clown had come all undone. Trembling from head to toe, he came to where I stood and knelt in the center ring, his tears falling into the dust. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior, he said. I led him in the prayer for salvation. When the circus finished its run of performances, he left his old life behind, quit the circus and joined my congregation in Husum. Merely two weeks remained in the tent crusade. I went to my next point of business. Where would I find a building for the fifty converts? 
I took my Volkswagen for a drive into the heart of downtown. The city was charming and picturesque, perched at the end of a natural waterway. As I made my way along one of the main streets, a large shuttered building caught my eye. Looking closer, I noticed that all the shutters on the ground floor were closed tight, while all those on the second floor were opened. I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, The ground floor is your church building. I packed the car and climbed to the second floor. People were working in their group of offices. One of the door signs read Hansen Rum. This company was quite famous in the region. It imported fermented sugarcane and molasses from a distillery on the island of Aruba. Here, at this factory, it was further distilled and blended for bottling and sale in Scandinavia and northern Germany. Many a sailor and many a farmer had ruined to soul with this infamous stuff. I almost turned around and left, feeling as if I had made a mistake. What good could come from this place? Lord, I asked, would you really use a rum company to provide my church building? In some corner of my head, I heard the words of Nathanael when he heard that the Messiah was supposedly from Nazareth. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a despised place, a ghetto in the biblical world. Once again, like a detective dusting a crime scene, before my very eyes, God's fingerprints began to emerge on the door with a Hansen rum sign on it. I was ever learning that he enjoys using unlikely sources. I knocked on the door. A man rose from his desk and approached me. Excuse me, I said. I'm wondering if the ground floor of this building can be rented. No, this building is scheduled to be demolished. We have built a new plant across town. So it is impossible, I thought. Nothing can be done with a building to be demolished. But again I was thinking too small. A new thought came into my head. In response I asked, when will the demolition begin? Oh, they say in two or three years. Another company plans to build a shopping market on this site. Immediately I saw the new possibility. Would you mind showing me the first floor? I have an idea about using it in the meantime. He gave me a tour. It had a large empty main room. I could envision 75 people easily fitting into the space. I also saw two small ante-rooms along one wall. One was empty the other contained a small worker's kitchen. What a bonus! Annie and I could use this for an apartment. Everything would work. They told me the agent in charge of this space was located in the nearby town of Kappeln. I drove there and met him. He was a cripple in a wheelchair. Soon I could see that the Holy Spirit had gone before me. I sensed that I had great favor with this man. I told him who I was and what I wanted to do with the first floor of the building. 
he seemed to emanate warmth towards every word I said. Do you know that the building is going to be demolished? He asked. Yes, but it can provide us with a good space in the meantime. We will look for a more permanent home when we are better established. I would like to rent it. I will rent it to you. I don't have much money. We are a new congregation and still small. How much would you need? Oh, about 1200 Deutschmark per month. I cleared my throat and my eyes grew wide. He could see that I was out of my financial depth. The bottom dropped out of my enthusiasm. That was a price far too high for my little congregation to pay. What can you pay? He continued. 250, I said, somewhat cheapishly, realizing that we were worlds apart on price. It's yours, he said, smiling. He leaned forward in his wheelchair, his hand extended. I could not believe it. As we shook hands, something occurred to me. There is something else, I said. It is very cold here in winter, and I will need to heat the place. How much would that cost? Oh, don't worry about that. We have to heat the building anyway. I will just say that it's included in the rent. The provision had the mark of a loving Heavenly Father all over it. God wanted to provide our church building through the generosity of a rum company. Why not? He had supplied converts through a summer circus, both unlikely sources. In this series of events, I began to see how I might miss God's provision if I limited him to my preconceived standards. My walk with him was becoming more and more of an adventure of faith. I should not predict where it would lead. Before leaving town, I found a chair supply store and priced 75 chairs for our gatherings. I believed that we would need chairs enough to grow beyond our present numbers. I returned to the tent that night to make the announcement that we had a church home in the Hansen Rum building. More than that, I shared the incredibly reduced rent as a sign of God's favor. I was so excited. The people shared my enthusiasm. Now we will seek God to supply the chairs we will need for seating. That night, the old German gentleman, who had been my first convert, asked me to come and visit him on a dairy farm in the neighboring village of Handewitt. The following day I drove across the farmland in my Volkswagen, recalling the tears in the man's eyes as he had raised his hand and come forward in our little tent meeting. In the barn I found him sitting on a milking stool. That was his job. He was a milker, not the owner of the dairy, merely the hired hand. I sat on a stool opposite him. He showed me the technique for milking a cow and, of course, amused himself by insisting that I give it a try. That cow thought about as much of my attempt to milk her as the master of the carpentry school in Kemper had thought of my efforts to be a carpenter. She wanted to kick me right out of the barn. 
There's a reason why I'm a preacher and you are a milker, I said, releasing the other. He laughed. After pleasant words, I asked him why he had asked me to come and see him. He said he wanted to make a donation for the chairs. He reached inside his shirt and pulled out a folded piece of newspaper, handing it to me. I thanked him and looked inside. His gift was enough to buy all of the chairs. He was such an unlikely candidate to make this donation, simply a hired farmhand, just the kind of person that I would overlook in the natural, and just the kind of person God delights in using for his glory. That night I stood before the tent crowd. Praise the Lord, people, we've been delivered, I shouted. We've received a donation, and I've purchased all the chairs for the new sanctuary. My faith was rising like a tide to believe God for even greater things. Do you, Reinhard Bonke, take Annie Sulzle to be your lawful wedded wife, to live in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love, honor, comfort and cherish her from the day forward, forsaking all others, keeping only unto her for as long as you both shall live? My father's voice filled the first story of the Hansenram building with the words I had been waiting five months to hear. My first fifty converts filled the share of the chairs we had recently bought. Another fifty members from both sides of our family and dozens of well-wishers sat in rented chairs that crowded the extremities of the room. I do, I said, looking at Annie's smiling face. She never looked more beautiful to me than on that day, dressed in white, her oval face framed in lovely flowers. In my imagination I could hear the most delicate tones of a mandolin playing. Whatever the tune, it was from heaven and it was our song. In our invitations to the wedding guests, Annie and I had stated our goal to go to Africa after two years of service in Flensburg. We asked them to give us only gifts that we could carry with us. We suggested that they make gifts of money to a missions fund that would help us on our way. After bringing the traditional wedding ceremony to its final moment, my father delivered a short homily to the gathered guests. Had I been preaching, of course, it would have been the ABC of the gospel. But Dad was a pastor, not an evangelist. He opened his Bible and read a scripture that he knew would have great significance for our marriage. He also wanted the audience to appreciate it. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Hermann Bonke had not agreed with me on many things through the years. He had not agreed on my calling to Africa, nor on my timing, nor on my choice to marry Annie. On this day he had changed his mind. He was more than agreeing with me. He was as much as admitting that his judgment of my choice of Annie and of many other of his opinions had been wrong. And it was not just that we had a difference of opinion, nor was it that I simply had a mind of my own. In his sermon text, taken from John chapter 2, verse 5, he explained that I had heard from God, 
and this had made all the difference. Father, in his wedding sermon, wanted to bow to that higher voice in my life. Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. This was a most priceless gift from him to Annie and me. When God speaks, he said, nothing else matters. As I thought about it, the scripture had even more layers of meaning for both Annie and I, especially on this, our wedding day. The words of scripture Father had chosen were the words spoken by Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the famous wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. It seems that the host of wedding had run out of wine. The crisis was potentially embarrassing and would have tainted the celebration for the bride and groom. Grabbing her son by the sleeve and advising him of the shortage, Mary had turned to the servants of the host standing by, saying, Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. That was the context for my father's text. As father enlarged on this topic, I glanced around the room, smiling. Water into wine, I thought, and a rum factory into a place of worship. God, you are so gracious. You may now kiss your bride, father said. My thoughts returned to the present. I needed no further encouragement. It was a kiss like the finest wine from the Savior's water pots. We broke the bread of communion together and then dismissed our guests. Our honeymoon began in that small anteroom in Flensburg. I had purchased a used Heidebed. During the day it would double as a sofa and at night we would make it down into our bed. Quite the efficient solution, I thought. We retired to our two-room living quarters and had everything we needed. We had the lord of the wedding feast, and we had each other. In spite of my father's failure to teach me the way of a man with a woman at the age of 14, we needed no instructions on that night. The flame of our kiss guided us through the night and ignited our relationship across the years. Our love will continue as long as we both shall live. Chapter 16 Oh, what revelations await a newly married man! My Annie began to look at everything in our small apartment with new eyes. Things that seemed perfectly okay before we were married were suddenly no longer adequate. Windows could no longer be covered with bed sheets. They simply need real curtains with something called valances. The sofa arms needed lace doilies with matching crochet patterns. Perfectly adequate floors suddenly needed throw rags. The bathroom needed matching towels and washcloths. We needed wicker waste baskets instead of discarded metal mop buckets. How would I have ever known? I am convinced that part of God's plan in creating romantic love is that the man should not hesitate to make these changes for his beloved. Annie's wishes became my commands. But lo, barely had one wish been granted that a new one appeared. 
In my simple male mind, I thought each wish was an end in itself. But no, what I did not suspect was the other part of God's plan in creating romance. It is that the woman should have these urges because she is by nature a nest builder. And the nest she is building is not a love nest for two. Rather, it is the kind of place in which to nurture children. Ah, the revelations were coming fast. One day I came into the apartment to see Annie staring at the bare wall above our sofa. Her arms were crossed, and one of her mandolin-playing fingers was tapping thoughtfully upon her lips. By now I knew what this meant. What is missing, my love? We do not have much space here. I think we should take advantage of that big bare wall. What do you have in mind? A mirror? A picture? I had yet to learn never to answer for her. I don't know, she said. I'm not sure it exists, but something that would hold things like shelves for books and pictures, plans, knick-knacks, our phono. Can you see it? It would cover the entire wall and straddle the sofa. It would be the showcase for this room. If we had guests sitting on the sofa, there would be a sense that we are people of substance. What do you think? In fact, I began to picture it in my mind. Let's sit down and draw it, I suggested. This will need to be custom made, and I know just the person to do it. In our congregation was a man who made smaller shelves and pieces of furniture. His name was Mr. Hornick. I had seen his shop, and his finished work was exquisite. This would be a big job for him, but he would pour his energies into it with abundance. He would want to make the finest piece of furniture for the preacher and his wife. All of our guests who admired it would learn that he had done it, and new business would come to him. Perfect. I took Annie's drawing of the wall unit to him. He made an estimate, and the cost was high. But I knew his work. It was second to none, so his price should not underestimate the outcome. Annie and I dipped into the precious monetary gifts people had made to us on our wedding day. We barely had enough, but this would be the crown jewel in our living space for the two years we would spend in Flensburg. I agreed to the price and paid some money down so that he could begin work immediately. As we anticipated the outcome, I began to feel I had outdone myself. I had really provided something that was symbolic of my love for Annie and something that would slow down the pace of what men call the honey-do list. Honey-do this, honey-do that. One Sunday at church, Mr. Hornick announced that he would have our wall unit delivered the next day. He was glowing with pride, and I knew he had something that was far beyond his normal scope of work. We were filled with excitement and high expectations. He made a time in the morning for us to meet him at the square outside the main entrance. The next morning we both stood on the doorsteps watching the cobblestone square in front of the Hansenrum building. To our left the street descended from a hill and entered the intersection. 
The main thoroughfare handled two-way traffic traveling in the other direction. Suddenly, a feeling of dread hit the pit of my stomach. Looking to the left, I saw Mr. Hornick, our woodworking brother, driving his car down the incline toward the intersection. He had strapped our prized wall unit on top of his Volkswagen sedan. It protruded from the front and back and over both sides. Ropes and pads were holding it like Gulliver struck down by the Lilliputians. I could hear his brakes squealing as he struggled to keep his feet down on the steep descent. How could he have jeopardized all this weeks of craftsmanship this way? He did not want to spend a portion of his profit margin to obtain two men with a truck to haul this price properly. I was furious to see it. Had I known what he had planned, I would have put up the extra money to have it delivered myself. At the bottom of the hill, the worst that I could imagine happened. He suddenly encountered traffic, fearing a collision. As he entered the square, he engaged his emergency brake. The wall unit ejected from his roof and flew forward into the intersection, sliding across the cobblestones and smashing into the steps of a neighboring building where it broke into pieces. He leaped from his car, holding his head in his hands. I'm ruined, I'm ruined, he cried. I've lost everything. I had to disagree. He had not lost his life, which was something. I felt like taking it from him at the moment. I could almost see myself strangling the man. He ran to the wall unit and fell to his knees. I'm ruined. All is lost. He carried on like one of his children had been struck by a car. I looked at Annie. We were both speechless and horrified. The crown jewel of our humble parsonage lay shattered in the street. I went to where the man was kneeling in anguish. What about insurance? I asked. Surely you have insurance to cover such a thing. Yes, but if I collect it, my rates will be too high to maintain. My insurance was not made for claims of this size. At this point, I began to pray inside of myself. Lord, what shall I do? The answer came immediately with a sense of complete calm. You must spare your brother. Though I had every right to demand that he use his insurance to make us a newborn unit, I would not do that. I knew that he would not be ruined by it, but in his mind he believed that he would be. All the hopes and expectations Annie and I had built up for this day were let go. Plan B became God's plan A. It was more important to save my brother from his own perceived disaster than to impose my standards on him. Here is what I propose, I said. Let's get these pieces into the house and you bring your tools to put them back together. I want you to patch it up and see if you can make it look like new. We will take delivery of this wall unit. That is what we did. As we recovered from our shock and disappointment, 
he was actually able to repair that unit until only one part of it appeared damaged. Nothing could be done to repair the left side base where the cobblestones had removed significant portions of the wood. When he had finished his repair, and he took a large plant and placed it in front of the damage. There, she said, smiling grimly, who will know? I learned a great lesson. When dealing with human beings, anything that can go wrong probably will, sooner or later. We should hold our expectations in check with this truth. We take precautions whenever we can to avoid disaster, but sometimes we cannot cover all the bases. We are at the mercy of people God has placed in our circle. The Apostle Paul put it this way, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. As our two years in Flensburg passed, that wall unit became a symbol of something far more than we had first expected. It reminded Annie and me every time we saw it that we were our brother's keeper. Our pleasure at owning something fine and elegant was replaced by the Lord's eternal pleasure at having spared our brother. I am with child, Annie said softly. She stood looking down at her midsection, one hand resting lightly there. It still amazes me how these words could slam the brakes on every activity in my brain. Since our wedding day, I had been in constant motion. We were both so excited and blessed to be serving God together in Flensburg. Time had flown like a train at top speed and we had hardly been able to stop to catch our breath. Each night we converted our sofa into a sleeper and back again into a sofa at the break of dawn. There were more activities on our list of things to do than we could possibly check off in a week. There were worship services to conduct, Bible studies, prayer meetings, board meetings, organizational meetings, paperwork, counseling, preaching, paying the bills, celebrating weddings and conducting funerals. In between, we did odd jobs to keep house and home together and we constantly put money away for Africa. But when Annie said she was pregnant, the treadmill stopped instantly. I didn't know what to say at first. Hallelujah, I finally shouted. When I could find my voice, I hugged her and then stupidly asked, I wonder, is it a boy or a girl? Of course, how could you know? The words had just slipped from my mouth and I immediately sensed a bit of trouble. How often had I said it? During our courtship in the months leading up to our marriage, in the weeks that followed, I had said again and again in my youthful enthusiasm, Annie, Give me a houseful of boys. I want six boys. Yes, six. I love sons, and so I want to be a good father to them. Why had I been so thoughtless? What if this child was a girl? It had begun to dawn on me that with an actual pregnancy, I now had to consider realities, 
not fantasies. And the consequences of my exuberant words were suddenly serious. It was then I began to know the root of my problem. How often had my mother spoken of her disappointment at my birth? Too many times to count. It was like a broken record. Though she loved me, she often recited the fact that she had wanted to have a girl in the worst way, and I had been her fifth son. My birth seemed to have weighed her down like an extra burden. It never occurred to her that her words would have a lasting effect on me. Of course, if I had any choice in the matter, I would have chosen not to disappoint my mother. In so many subtle ways, I had tried to make up for it, but my efforts had only backfired. I had been the naughty boy, the troublesome one, the disappointment. This was a load a child should not have to carry. Now I could see why I had become so overly zealous in my wish for a house full of boys. I didn't want just one boy or two or three. I had stated my ridiculous wish for six boys. Why? Because I did not want a son, especially not my fifth son, to feel unwelcome the way I had felt, not even for a moment. How often does it happen that a childhood vow ends up producing the curse it seeks to cure? After speaking so thoughtlessly to Annie, a daughter born of this pregnancy might now produce disappointment to her. She so wanted to give me one of those six boys just to please me. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I began a campaign of reassurances. And you know this child you are carrying is from God, our Heavenly Father. He has sent the perfect baby to us. If it is a girl, I will be as happy as if it were a boy. Do you know that? Do you? She smiled and nodded, but there was a veil deep in her eyes. I could see it. My words could not be retracted. I had intended no harm, but the harm had been done. Annie carried a burden with this child growing in her womb. In spite of her better judgment, in some part of her soul, she surely felt she must produce a boy. In the meantime, there was nothing the doctor could do to solve the question. These were the days before ultrasound, by which parents can learn the sex of the child after only 20 weeks. We would have to wait nine months to know the outcome. These were also the days before birthing rooms. Fathers were not considered worthy to be present at the advent of their children. For better or worse, it was an event reserved for the doctor, the nurse and the mother. As Annie went into labor and entered the hospital, I remained in our apartment, pacing and praying. I prayed God's full protection over her and his blessing on the doctor and nurse and on everything involved with the birthing process. My prayer laid hold upon the truth and the promises of God's word. He is good, no matter what comes. He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. We are safe from the devourer. In him we have rest. The phone rang. Reverend Bunky, you are the father of a fine son. My jaw dropped. 
a son, and he had been spared the effects of my words, I felt so exceedingly blessed and unworthy. Is Annie safe? Is she okay? She is just fine. Mother and baby are doing fine. Hallelujah, I shouted. The entire Hansendrum building could hear me now, but it wasn't enough. I needed a huge celebration, and I knew just the ticket. On Annie's wall unit, we had placed the phono. I found a long play record album of Handel's Messiah and set the turntable to the Hallelujah Chorus. Turning the volume as high as the speakers would bear, I raced to the windows and threw them open. Leaning out, I shouted to the cars and to the pedestrian traffic crossing the square, Hallelujah! I have a son from God. The Hallelujah Chorus backed me up. It was a fitting symphony to match the joy in my heart. I decided that this would become a traditional way for us to welcome each new child into our family. I would announce them with the Hallelujah Chorus at full volume on the phono. Two girls were to follow our son in the years ahead, and I can testify that the celebration for each was as joyful and fresh as the first one. He was a beautiful baby. We named him Kai-Uwe, a traditional German and Scandinavian name. His full name was Kai-Uwe Friedrich Bonke. His name has many shades of meaning, but I was pleased to learn that in certain cultures Kai had the meaning of fire and Uwe came from the word for blade. And so my son would be a sword of fire in the hands of the Lord. Amen and Amen. God is so good. Our family was off to a rich start. We do not send missionaries to South Africa. The words echoed in the cold hall like plaster falling from the ceiling in an empty room. It was one of those rooms where the scent of mothballs waged a battle against the omnipresent smell of mildew. Annie and I huddled together. A half-dozen members of the Felberter Mission Board looked at us from across a long table. They were the official missions arm of the ACD in Germany. They worked under the auspices of the Apostolic Faith Mission in South Africa. The AFM provided training and guidance, and the ACD provided the financial support to our German missionaries who worked there. That was the arrangement. As we waited in the room, Bear-like fixtures dangled from the electric cords high above us, providing illumination. I suppose the white light in the white room was a fitting atmosphere for an interrogation. To us, it seemed a bit like an inquisition. You say you were called to Africa when you were just ten years old. That is correct. Africa is a huge continent with many nations. I nodded. So why do you insist that you cannot go to Zambia? One of the members asked. The AFM can provide a position for you in Zambia. It is very simple, I answered. A few years after God called me to Africa, he called me to South Africa, very specifically. In a prayer meeting, I received a vision of the city of Johannesburg on a map. 
I didn't know where the city actually belonged on the map. When I later checked the world atlas, I found that the vision had been correct. God knows his geography. He called me to the country of South Africa. But the AFM has no openings in South Africa. I do not need an opening. I will gladly pioneer a new work from the converts God gives me as I did in Flensburg. That would be wonderful, but we have no way to provide oversight if you do not go to Zambia. Then, what am I to do with my calling? We can offer you Zambia. It is south of the equator, as close to South Africa as we can get. Besides, it is a beautiful country. The great Victoria Falls are there and the Zambezi River. You could start there and later move to South Africa, if that is still your heart's desire. Oh no, South Africa is not my heart's desire, I said. It is the place God has called me. That is an important difference. It was a long interview. I stuck to my guns about my call to South Africa. Eventually they agreed to a compromise. I would serve a South African apprenticeship for a year under an AFM minister named Reverend Stephanus Spies. His work was anchored in Ermelo in eastern Transvaal. His sphere of ministry covered the Transvaal region and extended into Swaziland. When the ACD, the AFM and Reverend Spies all agreed to the plan, I felt that God had given me great favor. Most of all, I was so very pleased that we had honored his call given to me in the childhood vision. We would be working on the edge of Johannesburg. It was 1967. Annie and I prepared to leave in earnest, but another surprise waited in the wings. Reinhardt, she said, I'm with child again. Kaiuvu was not a year old and another child was on the way. Once again my thoughts were arrested. Our departure for Africa would be made the more challenging, especially for Annie. But as we discussed it, she assured me that she had trusted God from the beginning. She was called to the life of a missionary, and such challenges went with the territory. We would continue packing uninterrupted. The only difference was I refused to allow her to lift things. It also helped that we were packing light. The wall unit went to Annie's mother. The sofa bed was sold. All our belongings that remained made a very small package. We kept nothing that would tie us down. The Volkswagen Beetle was traded for a Volkswagen Type 2 camper van. In America, this rear-engine vehicle was becoming popular as a hippie van. Its boxy looks made it appealing to the growing counterculture. But for Annie and me, it would provide a shipping container for our belongings and reliable transportation once we arrived. Not to forget, it would convert easily into a temporary living quarters. We felt this would prove ideal when ministering in needy areas of Africa. It also provided low-cost travel expenses as we made our way southward on the German Autobahn. We crossed the Swiss Alps and the Italian Alps to Trieste, racing to meet a departure date on a ship bound for Durban, South Africa. 
As the sky-blue water of the Adriatic Sea came into view, I flashed back to my boyhood when I used to stand on the Glückstadt Pier, feeling like this day would never come. How time had passed. It did not seem like such a long time ago. We would not be departing from Hamburg, but from Trieste, Italy. It would be a long-awaited epic voyage for us, nonetheless. Saying goodbye to our friends, family and church in Germany had not been difficult. Our eyes had been set on this day since we first met. And we had been saying goodbye in effect to everyone for years. We were so excited to finally be going. When you pull up roots in order to fulfill a divine destiny, there is not a sense of pain or loss. Rather, there is a sense of great expectation for things to come. From Trieste, our cruise ship went to Venice. However, the Lord slowed us down for our own good. In fact, a dock worker strike played to our great advantage. It delayed our departure in Venice for 10 days, which provided us with an unexpected honeymoon in one of the most romantic cities on earth. Those were the days we have never forgotten. Three other missionary families were traveling on the same ship. Each day Annie and the wives took turns babysitting the children so that the others could spend the day exploring Venice. That gave Annie and me two days out of every three to be together, just the two of us. What an abundant blessing. We thoroughly enjoyed our honeymoon in Venice, expenses paid. At last we sailed for Africa. Our route took us through the Adriatic, passing by Italy's toe of the boot and into the open Mediterranean. These were the waters sailed so often by the Apostle Paul. We continued southeast past the Greek islands to Egypt and to the entrance of the Suez Canal. The canal would take us into the Red Sea, which in turn led us into the great Indian Ocean. Sailing south along the east coast of Africa, we would eventually reach the port of Durban. As we entered the Suez Canal, I remained on deck watching the process. The strip of water was a man-made wonder that allowed ocean-going vessels to sail 100 miles through desert sands between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. It had no locks because the sea level on both ends was virtually the same and no elevation changes were needed such as were found on the Panama Canal. As we sailed through the sands of Egypt, we passed an airfield. I noticed that it was filled with hundreds of brand new white Russian MiG-21 jet fighters. In recent days, the saber rattling between Israel and her Arab neighbors had increased. I had been keeping my eyes on the news. Annie, I said, look at those MiGs. I feel that war is near, very near. In fact, our ship was one of the last to pass through the canal before Egypt ordered United Nations peacekeepers out and took control of the canal. Soon after, Israel launched a surprise attack, beginning what is now called the Six-Day War. Israel 
gradually destroyed Egypt's air force on the ground, including all the shiny new Russian MiGs I had seen on the bank of Suez. The loss of military hardware was far more than Egypt could afford, even though greatly outnumbered by the armies of Egypt, Syria and Jordan, in a matter of six days, Israel had gained control of the entire Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights, the West Bank and Eastern Jerusalem. It stands as one of the most miraculous military victories in modern warfare and called to mind Bible prophecies that God would once again fight for Israel. As the Middle East fell into turmoil, the passengers on our ship discussed our near miss if the dock worker strike in Venice had gone on for one more day and we had enjoyed more sightseeing, we might have found ourselves in the middle of the conflict. Our ship would have been held up in the Suez Canal until the mess was resolved. In fact, 14 ships that followed us remained trapped for the next eight years. Once again, we saw the blessing and confirming hand of God upon the choice we had made to follow him. Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. We needed that confirmation because an immediate trial came to test our faith. As soon as we left the canal and entered the Red Sea, Annie became very sensitive to the motion of the ship. We joked about Moses and the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry land. We would gladly have walked rather than endure more of the sensation. We were not sure if it was motion sickness or morning sickness or a combination of the two, but her condition became worse. Her complexion became like green cheese and she got so sick. Forget the dry land. She would gladly have allowed herself to drown with Pharaoh's army rather than go on like this. We called the ship's doctor and she was kept under medical supervision as we continued toward the Gulf of Aden and our entrance into the Indian Ocean. We had a long voyage ahead, and I so wanted her well enough to enjoy it. My hopes were dashed. In fact, she was miserable for the rest of the trip. For several days we continued down the eastern coast of Africa, sailing through the Mozambique Channel between the African mainland and Madagascar. The voyage grew long and I had brought along an accordion. I began to sit in a deck chair and teach myself to play it. Annie lay in the infirmary and the hours were on. As I think back on it, my fellow passengers may not have appreciated my diligence in this matter. By the time we had arrived at our destination, I had become quite accomplished. We emerged again into the waters of the Indian Ocean near the southern tip of Africa and cruised towards our berth in the harbour of Durban. At last, Annie was able to get out of bed and walk. Perhaps she was inspired by anticipation of soon being able to place her feet on solid ground. The worst of her ordeal was over. I had received scant instructions from Reverend Spies that we would be met in Durban by a man named De Toy, a French name. That is all I knew, De Toy. As we approached the docks, I could see more than a thousand people waiting to greet passengers. Out of that great crowd, how would I ever find De Toy? 
Coming down the gangway, I had an inspiration. My eyes swept the crowd, and I shouted to the top of my lungs, Hallelujah! Sure enough, out of the crowd, one voice shouted back, Hallelujah! He was a white man, which disappointed me. I had come expecting to be met by an African. Very few black people were in the crowd waiting to greet our ship. I held Annie's arm as we left the gangway and felt the dock beneath our feet. She held little Kaiuva in her arms and began to gain new strength with each step on solid footing. When we approached the man who had returned my hallelujah, I extended my hand. To toy, I presume. He laughed heartily, recognizing the famous line from the meeting in Africa between Stanley and Livingston. He took my hand. Yes, he was the toy. After he gave us directions, we took off, heading to Ermelo and to the home of Pastor Spice. And that is how we took our first steps onto the soil of Africa, our land of destiny.